Chapter 29 Nico Given a choice between death and the Buford Zippy Mart, Nico would have had a tough time deciding. At least he knew his way around the land of the dead. Plus, the food was fresher. I still don't get it, Coach Hedge muttered as they roamed the center aisle. They named a whole town after Leo's table? I think the town was here first, Coach, Nico said. Huh. The coach picked up a box of powdered donuts. Maybe you're right. These look at least a hundred years old. I miss those Portuguese farturas. Nico couldn't think about Portugal without his arms hurting. Across his biceps, the werewolf claw marks were still swollen and red. The store clerk had asked Nico if he'd picked a fight with a bobcat. They bought a first aid kit, a pad of paper, so Coach Hedge could write more paper airplane messages to his wife, some junk food and soda, since the banquet table in Reina's new magic tent only provided healthy food and fresh water, and some miscellaneous camping supplies for Coach Hedge's useless but impressively complicated monster traps. Nico had been hoping to find some fresh clothes. Two days since they'd fled San Juan, he was tired of walking around in his tropical Isla del Encantorico shirt, especially since Coach Hedge had a matching one. Unfortunately, the Zippy Mart only carried T-shirts with Confederate flags and corny sayings like, Keep calm and follow the redneck. Nico decided he'd stick with parrots and palm trees. They walked back to the campsite down a two-lane road under the blazing sun. This part of South Carolina seemed to consist mostly of overgrown fields, punctuated by telephone poles and trees covered in kudzu vines. The town of Buford itself was a collection of portable metal sheds, six or seven, which was probably also the town's population. Nico wasn't exactly a sunshine person, but for once, he welcomed the warmth. It made him feel more substantial, anchored to the mortal world. With every shadow jump, coming back got harder and harder. Even in broad daylight, his hand passed through solid objects. His belt and sword kept falling around his ankles for no apparent reason. Once, when he wasn't looking where he was going, he walked straight through a tree. Nico remembered something Jason Grace had told him in the Palace of Notus. Maybe it's time you come out of the shadows. If only I could, he thought. For the first time in his life, he had begun to fear the dark because he might melt into it permanently. Nico and Hedge had no trouble finding their way back to camp. The Athena Parthenos was the tallest landmark for miles around. In its new camouflage netting, it glittered silver like an extremely flashy 40-foot-tall ghost. Apparently, the Athena Parthenos had wanted them to visit a place with educational value because she'd landed right next to a historical marker that read Massacre of Buford on a gravel turnout at the intersection of nowhere and nothing. Reina's tent sat in a grove of trees about 30 yards back from the road. Nearby lay a rectangular cairn, hundreds of stones piled in the shape of an oversized grave with a granite obelisk for a headstone. Scattered around it were faded wreaths and crushed bouquets of plastic flowers, which made the place seem even sadder. 
Aram and Argentum were playing keep-away in the woods with one of the coach's handballs. Ever since getting repaired by the Amazons, the metal dogs had been frisky and full of energy, unlike their owner. Reyna sat cross-legged at the entrance of the tent, staring at the memorial obelisk. She hadn't said much since they'd fled San Juan two days ago. They'd also encountered no monsters, which made Nico uneasy. They'd had no further word from the hunters or the Amazons. They didn't know what had happened to Hilla or Thalia or the giant Orion. Nico didn't like the hunters of Artemis. Tragedy followed them as surely as their dogs and birds of prey. His sister Bianca had died after joining the hunters. Then Thalia Grace became their leader and started recruiting even more young women to their cause, which grated on Nico, as if Bianca's death could be forgotten, as if she could be replaced. When Nico woke up at the Baracina and found the hunter's note about kidnapping Reyna, he'd torn apart the courtyard in rage. He didn't want the hunters stealing another important person from him. Fortunately, he'd gotten Reyna back, but he didn't like how brooding she had become. Every time he tried to ask her about the incident on the Calle San Jose, those ghosts on the balcony, all staring at her, whispering accusations, Reyna shut him down. Nico knew something about ghosts. Letting them get inside your head was dangerous. He wanted to help Reyna, but since his own strategy was to deal with his problems alone, spurning anyone who tried to get close, he couldn't exactly criticize Reyna for doing the same thing. She glanced up as they approached. I figured it out. What historical site this is? Hedge asked. Good. "'Cause it's been driving me crazy.' "'The Battle of Waxhaws,' she said. "'Ah, right,' Hedge nodded sagely. "'That was a vicious little smackdown.' Nico tried to sense any restless spirits in the area, but he felt nothing. Unusual for a battleground. "'Are you sure?' "'In 1780,' Reyna said. "'The American Revolution.' Most of the colonial leaders were Greek demigods. The British generals were Roman demigods. Because England was like Rome back then, Nico guessed. A rising empire. Reyna picked up a crushed bouquet. I think I know why we landed here. It's my fault. Ah, come on, Hedge scoffed. The Buford Zippy Mart isn't anybody's fault. Those things just happen. Reyna picked at the faded plastic flowers. During the Revolution, 400 Americans got overtaken here by British cavalry. The colonial troops tried to surrender, but the British were out for blood. They massacred the Americans even after they threw down their weapons. Only a few survived. Nico supposed he should have been shocked, but after traveling through the underworld, hearing so many stories of evil and death, a wartime massacre hardly seemed newsworthy. Reyna, how is that your fault? The British commander was Bannister Tarleton. Hedge snorted. I've heard of him. Crazy dude. They called him Benny the Butcher. Yes. Reyna took a shaky breath. He was a son of Bologna. Oh. Nico stared at the oversized grave. It still bothered him that he couldn't sense any spirits. Hundreds of soldiers massacred at this spot, 
that should have sent out some kind of death vibe. He sat next to Reyna and decided to take a risk. So you think we were drawn here because you have some sort of connection to the ghosts? Like what happened in San Juan? For a ten count, she said nothing, turning the plastic bouquet in her hand. I don't want to talk about San Juan. You should. Nico felt like a stranger in his own body. Why was he encouraging Reyna to share? It wasn't his style or his business. Nevertheless, he kept talking. The main thing about ghosts, most of them have lost their voices. In Asphodel, millions of them wander around aimlessly, trying to remember who they were. You know why they end up like that? Because in life, they never took a stand one way or another. They never spoke out, so they were never heard. Your voice is your identity. If you don't use it, he said with a shrug, you're halfway to Asphodel already. Raina scowled. Is that your idea of a pep talk? Coach Hedge cleared his throat. This is getting too psychological for me. I'm going to write some letters. He took his notepad and headed into the woods. The last day or so, he'd been writing a lot, apparently not just to Melly. The coach wouldn't share details, but he hinted that he was calling in some favors to help with the quest. For all Nico knew, he was writing to Jackie Chan. Nico opened his shopping bag. He pulled out a box of Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies and offered one to Reyna. She wrinkled her nose. Those look like they went stale in dinosaur times. Maybe, but I've got a big appetite these days. Any kind of food tastes good. Except maybe pomegranate seeds. I'm done with those. Reyna picked out a cream pie and took a bite. The ghosts in San Juan. They were my ancestors. Nico waited. The breeze ruffled the camouflage netting over the Athena Parthenos. The Ramirez Ariano family goes back a long way, Reyna continued. I don't know the whole story. My ancestors lived in Spain when it was a Roman province. My great-great-something-something grandfather was a conquistador. He came over to Puerto Rico with Ponce de Leon. One of the ghosts on the balcony was wearing conquistador armor. Nico recalled. That's him. So, is your whole family descended from Bologna? I thought you and Hilla were her daughters, not legacies. Too late. Nico realized he shouldn't have brought up Hilla. A look of despair passed over Reyna's face, though she managed to hide it quickly. We are her daughters, Reyna said were the first actual children of Bologna in the Ramirez-Ariano family, and Bologna has always favored our clan. Millennia ago, she decreed that we would play pivotal roles in many battles. Like you're doing now, Nico said. Reyna brushed crumbs from her chin. Perhaps. Some of my ancestors have been heroes. Some have been villains. You saw the ghost with the gunshot wounds in the chest? Nico nodded. A pirate? The most famous in Puerto Rican history. He was known as the pirate Cofresi, 
but his family name was Ramirez de Arellano. Our house, the family villa, was built with money from treasure that he buried. For a moment, Nico felt like a little kid again. He was tempted to blurt out, That's so cool! Even before he got into mythomagic, he'd been obsessed with pirates. Probably that was one reason he'd been so smitten with Percy, a son of the sea god. And the other ghosts? he asked. Reyna took another bite of cream pie. The guy in the U.S. Navy uniform. He's my great-great-uncle from World War II. The first Latino submarine commander. You get the idea. A lot of warriors. Bologna was our patron goddess for generations. But she never had demigod children in your family. Until you. The goddess. She fell in love with my father, Julian. He was a soldier in Iraq. He was... Reyna's voice broke. She tossed aside the plastic bouquet of flowers. I can't do this. I can't talk about him. A cloud passed overhead, blanketing the woods in shadows. Nico didn't want to push Reyna. What right did he have? He set down his oatmeal cream pie and noticed that his fingertips were turning to smoke. The sunlight returned. His hands became solid again, but Nico's nerves jangled. He felt as if he'd been pulled back from the edge of a high balcony. Your voice is your identity, he told Reyna. If you don't use it, you're halfway to Asphodel already. He hated when his own advice applied to himself. My dad gave me a present once, Nico said. It was a zombie. Reyna stared at him. What? His name is Jules Albert. He's French. A French zombie? Hades isn't the greatest, Dad, but occasionally he has these want-to-know-my-son moments. I guess he thought the zombie was a peace offering. He said Jules Albert could be my chauffeur. The corner of Reyna's mouth twitched. A French zombie chauffeur. Nico realized how ridiculous it sounded. He'd never told anyone about Jules Albert, not even Hazel. But he kept talking. Hades had this idea that I should, you know, try to act like a modern teenager, make friends, get to know the 21st century. He vaguely understood that mortal parents drive their kids around a lot. He couldn't do that. So his solution was a zombie. To take you to the mall, Reyna said, or the drive through at In-N-Out Burger. I suppose. Nico's nerves began to settle. Because nothing helps you make friends faster than a rotting corpse with a French accent. Reyna laughed. I'm sorry. I shouldn't make fun. It's okay. Point is... I don't like talking about my dad either, but sometimes, he said, looking her in the eyes, you have to. Reyna's expression turned serious. I never knew my father in his better days. Hilla said he used to be gentler when she was very small, before I was born. He was a good soldier, fearless, disciplined, cool under fire. He was handsome. He could be very charming. 
Bologna blessed him as she had with so many of my ancestors, but that wasn't enough for my dad. He wanted her for his wife. Over in the woods, Coach Hedge muttered to himself as he wrote. Three paper airplanes were already spiraling upward in the breeze, heading to God's new wear. My father dedicated himself completely to Bologna, Raina continued. It's one thing to respect the power of war. It's another thing to fall in love with it. I don't know how he did it, but he managed to win Bologna's heart. My sister was born just before he went to Iraq for his last tour of duty. He was honorably discharged, came home a hero. If, if he'd been able to adjust to civilian life, everything might have been all right. But he couldn't, Nico guessed. Reyna shook her head. Shortly after he got back, he had one last encounter with the goddess. That's the, um, reason I was born. Bologna gave him a glimpse of the future. She explained why our family was so important to her. She said the legacy of Rome would never fail as long as one of our bloodline remained, fighting to defend our homeland. Those words, I think she meant them to be reassuring, but my father became fixated on them. War can be hard to get over, Nico said, remembering Pietro, one of his neighbors from his childhood in Italy. Pietro had come back from Mussolini's African campaign in one piece, but after shelling Ethiopian civilians with mustard gas, his mind was never the same. Despite the heat, Reyna drew her cloak around her. Part of the problem was post-traumatic stress. He couldn't stop thinking about the war, and then there was the constant pain. A roadside bomb left shrapnel in his shoulder and chest. But it was more than that. Over the years, as I was growing up, he... he changed. Nico didn't respond. He'd never had anyone talk to him this openly before, except maybe for Hazel. He felt like he was watching a flock of birds settle on a field. One loud sound might startle them away. He became paranoid, Reyna said. He thought Bologna's words were a warning that our bloodline would be exterminated and the legacy of Rome would fail. He saw enemies everywhere. He collected weapons. He turned our house into a fortress. At night, he would lock Hilla and me in our rooms. If we sneaked out, he would yell at us and throw furniture. And, well, he terrified us. At times, he even thought we were the enemies. He became convinced we were spying on him, trying to undermine him. Then the ghosts started appearing. I guess they'd always been there, but they picked up on my father's agitation and began to manifest. They whispered to him, feeding his suspicions. Finally, one day, I can't tell you for sure when, I realized he had ceased to be my father. He had become one of the ghosts. A cold tide rose in Nico's chest. A mania, he speculated. I've seen it before. A human withers away until he's not human anymore. Only his worst qualities remain. His insanity. It was clear from Reyna's expression that his explanation wasn't helping. 
Whatever he was, Reyna said, he became impossible to live with. Hilla and I escaped the house as often as we could, but eventually we'd come back and face his rage. We didn't know what else to do. He was our only family. The last time we returned, he... He was so angry, he was literally glowing. He couldn't physically touch things anymore, but he could move them. Like a poltergeist, I guess. He tore up the floor tiles. He ripped open the sofa. Finally, he tossed a chair, and it hit Hilla. She collapsed. She was only knocked unconscious, but I thought she was dead. She'd spent so many years protecting me. I just lost it. I grabbed the nearest weapon I could find, a family heirloom, the pirate Confrassi's saber. I... I didn't know it was imperial gold. I ran at my father's spirit and... You vaporized him, Nico guessed. Reyna's eyes brimmed with tears. I killed my own father. No, Reyna, no. That wasn't him. That was a ghost. Even worse... A mania. You were protecting your sister. She twisted the silver ring on her finger. You don't understand. Patricide is the worst crime a Roman can commit. It's unforgivable. You didn't kill your father. The man was already dead, Nico insisted. You dispelled a ghost. It doesn't matter, Reyna sobbed. If word of this got out at Camp Jupiter... You'd be executed, said a new voice. At the edge of the woods stood a Roman legionnaire in full armor, holding a pillum. A mop of brown hair hung in his eyes. His nose had obviously been broken at least once, which made his smile look even more sinister. Thank you for your confession, former Praetor. You've made my job much easier. Chapter 30 Nico Coach Hedge chose that moment to burst into the clearing, waving a paper airplane and yelling, Good news, everyone! He froze when he saw the Roman. Oh, never mind. He quickly crumpled the airplane and ate it. Reyna and Nico got to their feet. Aram and Argentum scampered to Reyna's side and growled at the intruder. How this guy had gotten so close with none of them noticing, Nico didn't understand. Bryce Lawrence, Reyna said. Octavian's newest attack dog. The Roman inclined his head. His eyes were green, but not sea green like Percy's, more like pond scum green. The auger has many attack dogs, Bryce said. I'm just the lucky one who found you. Your Greek is friend here, he pointed his chin at Nico. He was easy to track. He stinks of the underworld. Nico unsheathed his sword. You know the underworld? Would you like me to arrange a visit? Bryce laughed. His front teeth were two different shades of yellow. Do you think you can frighten me? I'm a descendant of Orcus, the god of broken vows and eternal punishment. 
I've heard the screams in the fields of punishment firsthand. They're music to my ears. Soon, I'll be adding one more damned soul to the chorus. He grinned at Reyna. Patricide, eh? Octavian will love this news. You are under arrest for multiple violations of Roman law. You being here is against Roman law, Reyna said. Romans don't quest alone. A mission has to be led by someone of centurion rank or higher. You're in probatio, and even giving you that rank was a mistake. You have no right to arrest me. Bryce shrugged. In times of war, some rules have to be flexible. But don't worry. Once I bring you in for trial, I'll be rewarded with full membership in the Legion. I imagine I'll be promoted to Centurion, too. Doubtless there will be vacancies after the coming battle. Some officers won't survive, especially if their loyalties aren't in the right place. Coach Hedge hefted his bat. I don't know the proper Roman etiquette, but can I bash this kid now? A fawn, Bryce said. Interesting. I heard the Greeks actually trusted their goat men. Hedge bleated. I'm a satyr, and you can trust I'm going to put this bat upside your head, you little punk. The coach advanced, but as soon as his foot touched the cairn, the stones rumbled like they were coming to a boil. Out of the gravesite, skeletal warriors erupted. Spartoy in the tattered remains of British redcoat uniforms. Hedge scrambled away, but the first two skeletons grabbed his arms and lifted him off the ground. The coach dropped his bat and kicked his hooves. Let me go, you stupid boneheads, he bellowed. Nico watched, paralyzed, as the grave spewed forth more dead British soldiers. Five, ten... Twenty, multiplying so quickly that Reyna and her metal dogs were surrounded before Nico even thought to raise his sword. How could he not have sensed so many dead, so close at hand? I forgot to mention, Bryce said, I'm actually not alone on this quest. As you can see, I have backup. These redcoats promised quarter to the colonials. Then they butchered them. Personally, I like a good massacre, but because they broke their oaths, their spirits were damned, and they are perpetually under the power of Orcus, which means they are also under my control. He pointed to Reyna. Seize the girl. The Spartoy surged forward. Aram and Argentum took down the first few, but they were quickly wrestled to the ground, skeletal hands clamped over their muzzles. The redcoats grabbed Reyna's arms. For undead creatures, they were surprisingly quick. Finally, Nico came to his senses. He slashed at the spartoy, but his sword passed harmlessly through them. He exerted his will, ordering the skeletons to dissolve. They acted as if he didn't exist. What's wrong, son of Hades? Bryce's voice was filled with fake sympathy. Losing your grip? Nico tried to push his way through the skeletons. There were too many. Bryce, Reyna, and Coach Hedge might as well have been behind a metal wall. Nico, get out of here, Reyna said. Get to the statue and leave. Yes, off you go, Bryce agreed. Of course, 
You realize that your next shadow jump will be your last. You know you don't have the strength to survive another, but by all means, take the Athena Parthenos. Nico glanced down. He still held his Stygian sword, but his hands were dark and transparent, like smoky glass. Even in the direct sunlight, he was dissolving. Stop this, he said. Oh, I'm not doing a thing, Bryce said. But I am curious to see what will happen. If you take the statue, you'll disappear with it forever, right into oblivion. If you don't take it, well, I have orders to bring Reyna in alive to stand trial for treason. I have no orders to bring you in alive, or the fawn. Seder! the coach yelled. He kicked the skeleton in its bony crotch, which seemed to hurt Hedge more than the redcoat. Ow! Stupid British dead guys! Bryce lowered his javelin and poked the coach in the belly. I wonder what this one's pain tolerance would be. I've experimented on all kinds of animals. I even killed my own centurion once. I've never tried a fawn. Excuse me. A satyr. You reincarnate, don't you? How much pain can you take before you turn into a patch of daisies? Nico's anger turned as cold and dark as his blade. He'd been morphed into a few plants himself, and he didn't appreciate it. He hated people like Bryce Lawrence, who inflicted pain just for fun. Leave him alone, Nico warned. Bryce raised an eyebrow. Or what? By all means, try something, underworldy Nico. I'd love to see it. I have a feeling anything major will make you fade out permanently. Go ahead. Reyna struggled. Bryce, forget about them. If you want me as your prisoner, fine. I'll go willingly and face Octavian's stupid trial. A fine offer. Bryce turned his javelin, letting the tip hover a few inches from Reyna's eyes. You really don't know what Octavian has planned, do you? He's been busy pulling in favors, spending the Legion's money. Reyna clenched her fists. Octavian has no right. He has the right of power, Bryce said. You forfeited your authority when you ran off to the ancient lands. On August 1st, your Greek friends at Camp Half-Blood will find out what a powerful enemy Octavian is. I've seen the designs for his machines. Even I'm impressed. Nico's bones felt like they were changing into helium, the way they'd felt when the god Favonius turned him into a breeze. Then he locked eyes with Reyna. Her strength surged through him, a wave of courage and resilience that made him feel substantial again, anchored to the mortal world. Even surrounded by the dead and facing execution, Reyna Ramirez Ariano had a huge reservoir of bravery to share. Nico, she said, do what you need to do. I've got your back. Bryce chuckled, clearly enjoying himself. Oh, Reyna, you've got his back? It's going to be so fun dragging you before a tribunal, forcing you to confess that you killed your father. I hope they'll execute you in the ancient way, sewn into a sack with a rabid dog, then thrown into a river. 
I've always wanted to see that. I can't wait until your little secret comes out. Until your little secret comes out. Bryce flicked the point of his pillum across Reyna's face, leaving a line of blood, and Nico's rage exploded. Chapter 31 Nico Later, they told him what happened. All he remembered was the screaming. According to Reyna, the air around him dropped to freezing. The ground blackened. In one horrible cry, he unleashed a flood of pain and anger on everyone in the clearing. Reyna and the coach experienced his journey through Tartarus, his capture by the giants, his days wasting away inside that bronze jar. They felt Nico's anguish from his days on the Argo II and his encounter with Cupid in the ruins of Salona. They heard his unspoken challenge to Bryce Lawrence loud and clear. You want secrets? Here. The spar toy disintegrated into ashes. The rocks of the cairn turned white with frost. Bryce Lawrence stumbled, clutching his head, both nostrils bleeding. Nico marched toward him. He grabbed Bryce's probatio tablet and ripped it off his neck. You aren't worthy of this, Nico growled. The earth split under Bryce's feet. He sank up to his waist. Stop! Bryce clawed at the dirt and the plastic bouquets, but his body kept sinking. You took an oath to the Legion. Nico's breath steamed in the cold. You broke its rules. You inflicted pain. You killed your own centurion. I... I didn't! I... You should have died for your crimes, Nico continued. That was the punishment. Instead, you got exile. You should have stayed away. Your father Orcus may not approve of broken oaths, but my father Hades really doesn't approve of those who escape punishment. Please! The word didn't make sense to Nico. The underworld had no mercy. It only had justice. You're already dead, Nico said. You're a ghost with no tongue. No memory. You won't be sharing any secrets. No! Bryce's body turned dark and smoky. He slipped into the earth, up to his chest. No! I am Bryce Lawrence! I'm alive! Who are you? Nico asked. The next sound from Bryce's mouth was a chattering whisper. His face became indistinct. He could have been anyone just another nameless spirit among millions. Be gone, Nico said. The spirit dissipated. The earth closed. Nico looked back and saw that his friends were safe. Reyna and the coach stared at him in horror. Reyna's face was bleeding. Aram and Argentum turned in circles as if their mechanical brains had short-circuited. Nico collapsed. His dreams made no sense, which was almost a relief. A flock of ravens circled in a dark sky. Then the ravens turned into horses galloping through the surf. He saw his sister, Bianca, sitting in the dining pavilion at Camp Half-Blood with the hunters of Artemis. She smiled and laughed with her new group of friends.
Then Bianca changed into Hazel, who kissed Nico on the cheek and said, I want you to be an exception. He saw the harpy Ella with her shaggy red hair and red feathers, her eyes like dark coffee. She perched on the couch of the big house's living room. Propped next to her was the magical stuffed leopard head, Seymour. Ella rocked back and forth, feeding the leopard Cheetos. Cheese is not good for harpies, she muttered. Then she scrunched up her face and chanted one of her memorized lines of prophecy. The fall of the sun, the final verse. She fed Seymour more Cheetos. Cheese is good for leopard heads. Seymour roared in agreement. Ella changed into a dark-haired, extremely pregnant cloud nymph, writhing in pain in a camp bunk bed. Clarice LaRue sat next to her, wiping the nymph's head with a cool cloth. Melly, you'll be fine, Clarice said, though she sounded worried. No, nothing is fine, Melly wailed. Gia is rising. The scene shifted. Nico stood with Hades in the Berkeley Hills on the day Hades first led him to Camp Jupiter. Go to them, said the god. Introduce yourself as a child of Pluto. It is important you make this connection. Why? Nico asked. Hades dissolved. Nico found himself back in Tartarus, standing before Aklas, the goddess of misery. Blood streaked her cheeks. Tears streamed from her eyes, dripped on the shield of Hercules in her lap. Child of Hades, what more could I do to you? You are perfect. So much sorrow and pain. Nico gasped. His eyes flew open. He was flat on his back, staring at the sunlight in the tree branches. Thank the gods. Reyna leaned over him, her hand cool on his forehead. The bleeding cut on her face was completely gone. Next to her, Coach Hedge scowled. Sadly, Nico had a great view right up the coach's nostrils. Good, said the coach. Just a few more applications. He held up a large square bandage coated with sticky brown gunk and plastered it over Nico's nose. What is... Ugh. The gunk smelled like potting soil, cedar chips, grape juice, and just a hint of fertilizer. Nico didn't have the strength to remove it. His senses started to work again. He realized he was lying on a sleeping bag outside the tent. He was wearing nothing but his boxer shorts and a thousand gross brown plastered bandages all over his body. His arms, legs, and chest were itchy from the drying mud. Are... are you trying to plant me? he murmured. It's sports medicine with a little nature magic, said the coach. Kind of a hobby of mine. Nico tried to focus on Reyna's face. You approve this? She looked like she was about to pass out from exhaustion, but she managed a smile. Coach Hedge brought you back from the brink. The unicorn draft, ambrosia, nectar, we couldn't use any of it. You were fading so badly. Fading? Don't worry about that now, kid. 
Hedge put a drinking straw next to Nico's mouth. Have some Gatorade. I... I don't want... You'll have some Gatorade, the coach insisted. Nico had some Gatorade. He was surprised at how thirsty he was. What happened to me? he asked. To Bryce. To those skeletons. Reyna and the coach exchanged an uneasy look. There's good news and bad news, Reyna said. But first, eat something. You'll need your strength back before you hear the bad news. Chapter 32 Nico Three days? Nico wasn't sure he'd heard her right the first dozen times. We couldn't move you, Reyna said. I mean, literally, you couldn't be moved. You had almost no substance. If it wasn't for Coach Hedge... No biggie, the coach assured him. One time, in the middle of a playoff game, I had to splint a quarterback's leg with nothing but tree branches and strapping tape. Despite his nonchalance, the satyr had bags under his eyes. His cheeks were sunken. He looked almost as bad as Nico felt. Nico couldn't believe he'd been unconscious for so long. He recounted his weird dreams, the mutterings of Ella the Harpy, the glimpse of Melly the Cloud Nymph, which worried the coach. But Nico felt as if those visions had lasted only seconds. According to Reyna, it was the afternoon of July 30th. He'd been in a shadow coma for days. The Romans will attack Camp Half-Blood the day after tomorrow. Nico sipped more Gatorade, which was nice and cold, but without flavor. His taste buds seemed to have phased into the shadow world permanently. We have to hurry. I have to get ready. No. Reyna pressed her hand against his forearm, making the bandages crinkle. Any more shadow travel would kill you. He gritted his teeth. If it kills me, it kills me. We have to get the statue to Camp Half-Blood. Hey, kid, said the coach. I appreciate your dedication, but if you zap us all into eternal darkness along with the Athena Parthenos, it's not going to help anybody. Bryce Lawrence was right about that. At the mention of Bryce, Reyna's metallic dogs pricked up their ears and snarled. Reyna stared at the cairn of rocks, her eyes full of torment, as if more unwelcome spirits might emerge from the grave. Nico took a breath getting a noseful of Hedge's fragrant home remedy. Reyna, I... I didn't think. What I did to Bryce. You destroyed him, Reyna said. You turned him into a ghost. And, yes, it reminded me of what happened to my father. I didn't mean to scare you, Nico said bitterly. I didn't mean to... to poison another friendship. I'm sorry. Reyna studied his face. Nico, I have to admit, the first day you were unconscious, I didn't know what to think or feel. What you did was hard to watch, hard to process. Coach Hedge chewed on a stick. I gotta agree with the girl on this one, kid. Smashing somebody's head in with a baseball bat, that's one thing. But ghostifying that creep? 
That was some dark stuff. Nico expected to feel angry, to shout at them for trying to judge him. That's what he normally did. But his anger wouldn't materialize. He still felt plenty of rage toward Bryce Lawrence and Gia and the Giants. He wanted to find the auger Octavian and strangle him with his chain belt. But he wasn't mad at Reyna or the coach. Why did you bring me back? he asked. You knew I couldn't help you anymore. You should have found another way to keep going with the statue. But you wasted three days watching over me. Why? Coach Hedge snorted. You're part of the team, you idiot. We're not going to leave you behind. It's more than that. Reyna rested her hand on Nico's. While you were asleep, I did a lot of thinking. What I told you about my father, I'd never shared that with anyone. I guess I knew you were the right person to confide in. You lifted some of my burden. I trust you, Nico. Nico stared at her, mystified. How can you trust me? You both felt my anger, saw my worst feelings. Hey, kid, said Coach Hedge, his tone softer. We all get angry, even a sweetheart like me. Raina smirked. She squeezed Nico's hand. Coach is right, Nico. You're not the only one who lets out the darkness once in a while. I told you what happened with my dad, and you supported me. You shared your painful experiences. How can we not support you? We're friends. Nico wasn't sure what to say. They'd seen his deepest secrets. They knew who he was, what he was. But they didn't seem to care. No, they cared more. They weren't judging him. They were concerned. None of it made sense to him. But Bryce, I... Nico couldn't continue. You did what had to be done. I see that now, Reyna said. Just promise me, no more turning people into ghosts if we can avoid it. Yeah, Coach said, unless you let me wail on them first. Besides, it's not all bad news. Reyna nodded. We've seen no sign of other Romans, so it appears Bryce didn't notify anyone else where he was. Also, no sign of Orion. Hopefully that means he was taken down by the hunters. And Hilla? Nico asked. Thalia? The lines tightened around Reyna's mouth. No word. But I have to believe they're still alive. You didn't tell him the best news, the coach prompted. Reyna frowned. Maybe because it's so hard to believe. Coach Hedge thinks he's found another way to transport the statue. It's all he's talked about for the past three days. But so far, we've seen no sign of... Hey, it'll happen! Coach grinned at Nico. You remember that paper airplane I got right before Creepmeister Lawrence showed up? It was a message from one of Melly's contacts in the palace of Eolus. This harpy, Nuggets, she and Melly go way back. Anyway, she knows a guy who knows a guy who knows a horse who knows a goat who knows another horse. Coach, Reyna chided. You'll make him sorry he came out of his coma. Fine, 
the satyr huffed. Long story short, I pulled in a lot of favors. I got word to the right wind-type spirits that we needed help. The letter I ate? Confirmation that the cavalry is coming. They said it would take a while to organize, but he should be here soon. Any minute, in fact. Who's he? Nico asked. What cavalry? Reyna stood abruptly. She stared toward the north, her face slack with awe. That cavalry. Nico followed her gaze. A flock of birds was approaching. Large birds. They got closer, and Nico realized they were horses with wings, at least a half dozen in V formation, without riders. Flying on point was a massive stallion with a golden coat and multicolored plumage like an eagle's, his wingspan twice as wide as the other horses. Pegasi, Nico said. You summoned enough to carry the statue. Coach laughed with delight. Not just any Pegasi, kid. You're in for a real treat. The stallion in front. Reyna shook her head in disbelief. That's the Pegasus, the immortal lord of horses. Chapter 33 Leo Typical Just as Leo finished his modifications, a big storm goddess came along and smacked the grommets right out of his ship. After their encounter with Kimopo What's-Her-Name, the Argo too limped through the Aegean, too damaged to fly, too slow to outrun monsters. They fought hungry sea serpents about every hour. They attracted schools of curious fish. At one point, they got stuck on a rock, and Percy and Jason had to get out and push. The wheezing sound of the engine made Leo want to cry. Over the course of three long days, he finally got the ship more or less back to working order, just as they made port at the island of Mykonos, which probably meant it was time for them to get bashed to pieces again. Percy and Annabeth went ashore to scout, while Leo stayed on the quarterdeck, fine-tuning the control console. He was so engrossed in the wiring, he didn't notice the landing party was back until Percy said, Hey man, gelato. Instantly, Leo's day got better. The whole crew sat on deck, without a storm or a monster attack to worry about for the first time in days, and ate ice cream. Well, except for Frank, who was lactose intolerant. He got an apple. The day was hot and windy. The sea glittered with chop, but Leo had fixed the stabilizers well enough that Hazel didn't look too seasick. Curving off to their starboard side was the town of Mykonos, a collection of white stucco buildings with blue roofs, blue windows, and blue doors. We saw these pelicans walking around town, Percy reported. Like, just going through the shops, stopping at the bars. Hazel frowned. Monsters in disguise? No, Annabeth said, laughing. Just regular old pelicans. They're the town mascots or something. And there's a little Italy section of town. That's why the gelato is so good. Europe is messed up, Leo shook his head. First we go to Rome for Spanish steps. 
Then we go to Greece for Italian ice cream. But he couldn't argue with the gelato. He ate his double chocolate delight and tried to imagine that he and his friends were just chilling on a vacation, which made him wish Calypso was with him, which made him wish the war was over and everybody was alive, which made him sad. It was July 30th, less than 48 hours until G Day, when Gia, the princess of potty sludge, would awaken in all her dirt faced glory. The strange thing was, the closer they got to August 1st, the more upbeat his friends acted. Or maybe upbeat wasn't the right word. They seemed to be pulling together for the final lap, aware that the next two days would make or break them. There was no point moping around when you faced imminent death. The end of the world made gelato taste a lot better. Of course, the rest of the crew hadn't been down in the stables with Leo, talking with the victory goddess Nike over the past three days. Piper set down her ice cream cup. So the island of Delos is right across the harbor, Artemis and Apollo's home turf. Who's going? Me. Leo said immediately. Everybody stared at him. What? Leo demanded. I'm diplomatic and stuff. Frank and Hazel volunteered to back me up. We did? Frank lowered his half eaten apple. I mean, sure we did. Hazel's gold eyes flashed in the sunlight. Leo, did you have a dream about this or something? Yes, Leo blurted. Well, no, not exactly, but you gotta trust me on this, guys. I need to talk to Apollo and Artemis. I've got an idea I need to bounce off them. Annabeth frowned. She looked like she might object, but Jason spoke up. If Leo has an idea, he said, we need to trust him. Leo felt guilty about that, especially considering what his idea was. But he mustered a smile. Thanks, man. Percy shrugged. Okay, but a word of advice. When you see Apollo, don't mention haiku. Hazel knit her eyebrows. Why not? Isn't he the god of poetry? Just trust me. Got it. Leo rose to his feet. And guys, if they have a souvenir shop on Delos, I'm totally bringing you back some Apollo and Artemis bobbleheads. Apollo didn't seem to be in the mood for haiku. He wasn't selling bobbleheads either. Frank had turned into a giant eagle to fly to Delos, but Leo hitched a ride with Hazel on Orion's back. No offense to Frank, but after the fiasco at Fort Sumter, Leo had become a conscientious objector to riding giant eagles. He had a 100% failure rate. They found the island deserted, maybe because the seas were too choppy for the tourist boats. The windswept hills were barren except for rocks, grass, and wildflowers, and of course, a bunch of crumbling temples. The rubble was probably very impressive, but ever since Olympia, Leo had been on ancient ruins overload. He was so done with white marble columns. He wanted to get back to the U.S., where the oldest buildings were the public schools and ye old McDonald's. They walked down an avenue lined with white stone lions. 
the faces weathered almost featureless. It's eerie, Hazel said. You sense any ghosts? Frank asked. She shook her head. The lack of ghosts is eerie. Back in ancient times, Delos was sacred ground. No mortal was allowed to be born here or die here. There are literally no mortal spirits on this whole island. Cool with me, Leo said. Does that mean nobody's allowed to kill us here? I didn't say that. Hazel stopped at the summit of a low hill. Look, down there. Below them, the hillside had been carved into an amphitheater. Scrubby plants sprouted between the rows of stone benches, so it looked like a concert for thorn bushes. Down at the bottom, sitting on a block of stone in the middle of the stage, the god Apollo hunched over a ukulele, plucking out a mournful tune. At least, Leo assumed it was Apollo. The dude looked about seventeen, with curly blonde hair and a perfect tan. He wore tattered jeans, a black t-shirt, and a white linen jacket with glittering rhinestone lapels, like he was trying for an Elvis-Ramones-Beach-Boys hybrid look. Leo didn't usually think of the ukulele as a sad instrument. Pathetic, sure, but not sad. Yet the tune Apollo strummed was so melancholy, it broke Leo's feels. Sitting in the front row was a young girl of about thirteen, wearing black leggings and a silver tunic, her dark hair pulled back in a ponytail. She was whittling on a long piece of wood, making a bow. Those are the gods? Frank asked. They don't look like twins. Well, think about it, Hazel said. If you're a god, you can look like whatever you want. If you had a twin... I'd choose to look like anything but my sibling, Frank agreed. So what's the plan? Don't shoot, yelled Leo. It seemed like a good opening line, facing two archery gods. He raised his arms and headed down to the stage. Neither god looked surprised to see them. Apollo sighed and went back to playing his ukulele. When they got to the front row, Artemis muttered, There you are. We were beginning to wonder. That took the pressure out of Leo's pistons. He'd been ready to introduce himself, explain how they'd come in peace, maybe tell a few jokes, and offer breath mints. So you were expecting us then, Leo said. I can tell because you're both so excited. Apollo plucked a tune that sounded like the funeral version of Camp Town Races. We were expecting to be found, bothered, and tormented. We didn't know by whom. Can you not leave us in our misery? You know they can't, brother, Artemis chided. They require our help with their quest, even if the odds are hopeless. You two are full of good cheer, Leo said. Why are you hiding out here anyway? Shouldn't you be, I don't know, fighting giants or something? Artemis's pale eyes made Leo feel like he was a deer carcass about to be gutted. Delos is our birthplace, said the goddess. Here we are unaffected by the Greek-Roman schism. Believe me, Leo Valdez, if I could, I would be with my hunters, 
facing our old enemy Orion. Unfortunately, if I stepped off this island, I would become incapacitated with pain. All I can do is watch helplessly while Orion slaughters my followers. Many gave their lives to protect your friends and that accursed Athena statue. Hazel made a strangled sound. You mean Nico? Is he all right? All right? Apollo sobbed over his ukulele. None of us are all right, girl. Gia is rising. Artemis glared at Apollo. Hazel Levesque, your brother is still alive. He is a brave fighter like you. I wish I could say the same for my brother. You wrong me, Apollo wailed. I was misled by Gia and that horrible Roman child. Frank cleared his throat. Uh, Lord Apollo, you mean Octavian? Do not speak his name. Apollo strummed a minor chord. Oh, Frank Jong, if only you were my child. I heard your prayers, you know, all those weeks you wanted to be claimed. But alas, Mars gets all the good ones. I get that creature as my descendant. He filled my head with compliments. He told me of the great temples he would build in my honor. Artemis snorted. You are easily flattered, brother. Because I have so many amazing qualities to praise. Octavian said he wanted to make the Romans strong again. I said, fine. I gave him my blessing. As I recall, said Artemis, he also promised to make you the most important god of the legion, above even Zeus. Well, who was I to argue with an offer like that? Does Zeus have a perfect tan? Can he play the ukulele? I think not. But I never thought Octavian would start a war. Gia must have been clouding my thoughts, whispering in my ear. Leo remembered the crazy wind dude, Aeolus, who'd gone homicidal after hearing Gia's voice. So fix it, he said. Tell Octavian to stand down, or, you know, shoot him with one of your arrows. That would be fine, too. I cannot! Apollo wailed. Look! His ukulele turned into a bow. He aimed at the sky and shot. The golden arrow sailed about two hundred feet, then disintegrated into smoke. To shoot my bow, I would have to step off Delos, Apollo cried. Then I would be incapacitated, or Zeus would strike me down. Father never liked me. He hasn't trusted me for millennia. Well... Artemis said, To be fair, there was that time you conspired with Hera to overthrow him. That was a misunderstanding. And you killed some of Zeus's Cyclopes. I had a good reason for that. At any rate, now Zeus blames me for everything. Octavian's schemes, the fall of Delphi. Wait! Hazel made a time-out sign. The fall of Delphi? Apollo's bow turned back into a ukulele. He plucked a dramatic chord. When the schism began between Greek and Roman, while I struggled with confusion, Gia took advantage. She raised my old enemy Python, the Great Serpent, to repossess the Delphic Oracle. 
That horrible creature is now coiled in the ancient caverns, blocking the magic of prophecy. I am stuck here, so I can't even fight him. Bummer, Leo said, though secretly he thought that no more prophecies might be a good thing. His to-do list was already pretty full. Bummer indeed, Apollo sighed. Zeus was already angry with me for appointing that new girl, Rachel Dare, as my oracle. Zeus seems to think I hastened the war with Gia by doing so, since Rachel issued the prophecy of seven as soon as I blessed her. But prophecy doesn't work that way. Father just needed someone to blame. So, of course, he picked the handsomest, most talented, hopelessly awesome god. Artemis made a gagging gesture. Oh, stop it, sister, Apollo said. You're in trouble, too. Only because I stayed in touch with my hunters against Zeus's wishes, Artemis said. But I can always charm father into forgiving me. He's never been able to stay mad at me. It's you I'm worried about. I'm worried about me, too, Apollo agreed. We have to do something. We can't kill Octavian. Hmm... Perhaps we should kill these demigods. Whoa there, music man. Leo resisted the urge to hide behind Frank and yell, Take the big Canadian dude. We're on your side, remember? Why would you kill us? It might make me feel better, Apollo said. I have to do something. Or, Leo said quickly, You could help us. See, we've got this plan. He told them how Hera had directed them to Delos, and how Nike had described the ingredients for the physician's cure. The physician's cure? Apollo stood and smashed his ukulele on the stones. That's your plan. Leo raised his hands. Hey, um, usually I'm all for smashing ukuleles, but... I cannot help you, Apollo cried. If I told you the secret of the physician's cure... Zeus would never forgive me. You're already in trouble, Leo pointed out. How could it get worse? Apollo glared at him. If you knew what my father is capable of, mortal, you would not ask. It would be simpler if I just smote you all. That might please Zeus. Brother, Artemis said. The twins locked eyes and had a silent argument. Apparently... Artemis won. Apollo heaved a sigh and kicked his broken ukulele across the stage. Artemis rose. Hazel Levesque, Frank Jong, come with me. There are things you should know about the Twelfth Legion. As for you, Leo Valdez. The goddess turned those cold silver eyes on him. Apollo will hear you out. See if you can strike a deal. My brother always likes a good bargain. Frank and Hazel both glanced at him like, please don't die. Then they followed Artemis up the steps of the amphitheater and over the crest of the hill. Well, Leo Valdez, Apollo folded his arms. His eyes glowed with golden light. Let us bargain then. What can you offer that would convince me to help you rather than kill you? Chapter 34. Leo A bargain. 
Leo's fingers twitched. Yeah, absolutely. His hands went to work before his mind knew what he was doing. He started pulling things out of the pockets of his magic tool belt. Copper wire, some bolts, a brass funnel. For months, he'd been stashing away bits and pieces of machinery because he never knew what he might need. And the longer he used the belt, the more intuitive it became. He'd reach in and the right items would simply appear. So the thing is, Leo said as his hands twisted wire, Zeus is already P.O.'d at you, right? If you help us defeat Gia, you could make it up to him. Apollo wrinkled his nose. I suppose that's possible, but it would be easier to smite you. What kind of ballad would that make? Leo's hands worked furiously, attaching levers, fastening the metal funnel to an old gear shaft. You're the god of music, right? Would you listen to a song called Apollo Smites a Runty Little Demigod? I wouldn't. But Apollo defeats the Earth Mother and saves the freaking universe. That sounds like a billboard chart topper. Apollo gazed into the air, as if envisioning his name on a marquee. What do you want exactly? And what do I get out of it? First thing I need. Advice. Leo strung some wires across the mouth of the funnel. I want to know if a plan of mine will work. Leo explained what he had in mind. He'd been chewing on the idea for days, ever since Jason came back from the bottom of the sea and Leo started talking with Nike. A primordial god has been defeated once before, Chemopolia had told Jason. You know of whom I speak. Leo's conversations with Nike had helped him fine-tune the plan, but he still wanted a second opinion from another god, because once Leo committed himself, there would be no going back. He half-hoped Apollo would laugh and tell him to forget it. Instead, the god nodded thoughtfully. I will give you this advice for free. You might be able to defeat Gia in the way you describe similar to the way Oranos was defeated eons ago. However, any mortal close by would be utterly... Apollo's voice faltered. What is that you have made? Leo looked down at the contraption in his hands. Layers of copper wires like multiple sets of guitar strings crisscrossed inside the funnel. Rows of striking pins were controlled by levers on the outside of the cone, which was fixed to a square metal base with a bunch of crank handles. Oh, this? Leo's mind raced furiously. The thing looked like a music box fused with an old-fashioned phonograph. But what was it? A bargaining chip. Artemis had told him to make a deal with Apollo. Leo remembered a story the kids in Cabin 11 used to brag about how their father Hermes had avoided punishment for stealing Apollo's sacred cows. When Hermes got caught, he made a musical instrument, the first lyre, and traded it to Apollo, who immediately forgave him. A few days ago, Piper mentioned seeing the cave on Pylos where Hermes hid those cows. That must have triggered Leo's subconscious. Without even meaning to, he'd built a musical instrument, which kind of surprised him 
since he knew nothing about music. Um, well, Leo said, this is quite simply the most amazing instrument ever. How does it work? asked the god. Good question, Leo thought. He turned the crank handles, hoping the thing wouldn't explode in his face. A few clear tones rang out, metallic yet warm. Leo manipulated the levers and gears. He recognized the song that sprang forth. The same wistful melody Calypso sang for him on Ogigia about homesickness and longing. But through the strings of the brass cone, the tune sounded even sadder, like a machine with a broken heart, the way Festus might sound if he could sing. Leo forgot Apollo was there. He played the song all the way through. When he was done, his eyes stung. He could almost smell the fresh-baked bread from Calypso's kitchen. He could taste the only kiss she'd ever given him. Apollo stared in awe at the instrument. I must have it! What is it called? What do you want for it? Leo had a sudden instinct to hide the instrument and keep it for himself, but he swallowed his melancholy. He had a task to complete. Calypso. Calypso needed him to succeed. This is the Valdezinator, of course. He puffed out his chest. It works by, um, translating your feelings into music as you manipulate the gears. It's really meant for me, a child of Hephaestus to use, though. I don't know if you could... I am the god of music, Apollo cried. I can certainly master the Valdezinator. I must. It is my duty. So let's wheel and deal, music man, Leo said. I give you this. You give me the physician's cure. Oh. Apollo bit his godly lip. Well, I don't actually have the physician's cure. I thought you were the god of medicine. Yes, but I am the god of many things. Poetry, music... The Delphic Oracle? He broke into a sob and covered his mouth with his fist. Sorry, I'm fine, I'm fine. As I was saying, I have many spheres of influence. Then, of course, I have the whole sun god gig, which I inherited from Helios. The point is, I'm rather like a general practitioner. For the physician's cure, you would need to see a specialist the only one who has ever successfully cured death. My son, Asclepius, the god of healers. Leo's heart sank into his socks. The last thing they needed was another quest to find another god who would probably demand his own commemorative T-shirt or Valdezinator. That's a shame, Apollo. I was hoping we could make a deal. Leo turned the levers on his Valdezinator, coaxing out an even sadder tune. Stop! Apollo wailed. It's too beautiful. I'll give you directions to Asclepius. He's really very close. How do we know he'll help us? We've only got two days until Gia wakes. He'll help, Apollo promised. My son is very helpful. Just plead with him in my name. You'll find him at his old temple in Epidaurus. What's the catch? 
Ah, uh, well, nothing, except of course he's guarded. Guarded by what? I don't know. Apollo spread his hands helplessly. I only know Zeus is keeping Asclepius under guard so he doesn't go running around the world resurrecting people. The first time Asclepius raised the dead, well, he caused quite an uproar. It's a long story, but I'm sure you can convince him to help. This isn't sounding like much of a deal, Leo said. What about the last ingredient, the curse of Delos? What is it? Apollo eyed the Valdezinator greedily. Leo worried the god might just take it, and how could Leo stop him? Blasting the sun god with fire probably wouldn't do much good. I can give the last ingredient to you, Apollo said. Then you'll have everything you need for Asclepius to brew the potion. Leo played another verse. I don't know. Trading this beautiful Valdezinator for some Delos curse? It's not actually a curse. Look, Apollo sprinted to the nearest patch of wildflowers and picked a yellow one from a crack between the stones. This is the curse of Delos. Leo stared at it. A cursed daisy. Apollo sighed in exasperation. That's just a nickname. When my mother Leto was ready to give birth to Artemis and me, Hera was angry. Because Zeus had cheated on her again, so she went around to every single landmass on Earth. She made the nature spirits in each place promise to turn my mother away, so she couldn't give birth anywhere. Sounds like something Hera would do. I know, right? Anyway, Hera exacted promises from every land that was rooted on the Earth, but not from Delos, because back then Delos was a floating island. The nature spirits of Delos welcomed my mother. She gave birth to my sister and me, and the island was so happy to be our new sacred home, it covered itself in these little yellow flowers. The flowers are a blessing, because we're awesome. But they also symbolize a curse, because once we were born, Delos got rooted in place and wasn't able to drift around the sea any more. That's why yellow daisies are called the curse of Delos. So I could have just picked a daisy myself and walked away. No, no, not for the potion you have in mind. The flower would have to be picked by either my sister or me. So what do you say, demigod? Directions to Asclepius and your last magical ingredient, in exchange for that new musical instrument. Do we have a deal? Leo hated to give away a perfectly good valdezinator for a wildflower, but he saw no other choice. You drive a hard bargain, music man. They made the trade. Excellent. Apollo turned the levers of the valdezinator, which made a sound like a car engine on a cold morning. Hmm. Perhaps it'll take some practice, but I'll get it. Now let us find your friends. The sooner you leave, the better. Hazel and Frank waited at the Delos docks. Artemis was nowhere in sight. When Leo turned to tell Apollo goodbye, the god was gone too. Man, Leo muttered, he was really anxious to practice his valdezinator. His what? Hazel asked. 
Leo told them about his new hobby as a genius inventor of musical funnels. Frank scratched his head. And in exchange, you got a daisy. It's the final ingredient to cure death, Jong. It's a super daisy. How about you guys? Learn anything from Artemis? Unfortunately, yes. Hazel gazed across the water, where the Argo Two bobbed at anchor. Artemis knows a lot about missile weapons. She told us Octavian has ordered some surprises for Camp Half Blood. He's used most of the Legion's treasure to purchase Cyclopes-built onagers. Oh no, not onagers! Leo said. Also, what's an onager? Frank scowled. You build machines. How can you not know what an onager is? It's just the biggest, baddest catapult ever used by the Roman army. Fine, Leo said. But onager is a stupid name. They should have called them Valdezapults. Hazel rolled her eyes. Leo, this is serious. If Artemis is right, six of these machines will be rolling into Long Island tomorrow night. That's what Octavian has been waiting for. At dawn on August first, he'll have enough firepower to completely destroy Camp Half Blood without a single Roman casualty. He thinks that'll make him a hero. Frank muttered a Latin curse. Except he's also summoned so many monstrous allies that the Legion is completely surrounded by wild centaurs, tribes of dog-headed cynocephali, and who knows what else. As soon as the Legion destroys Camp Half Blood, the monsters will turn on Octavian and destroy the Legion. And then Gia rises, Leo said, and bad stuff happens. In his head, gears turned as the new information clicked into place. All right, this just makes my plan even more important. Once we get this physician's cure, I'm going to need your help, both of you. Frank glanced nervously at the cursed yellow daisy. What kind of help? Leo told them his plan. The more he talked, the more shocked they looked. But when he was done. Neither of them told him he was crazy. A tear glistened on Hazel's cheek. It has to be this way, Leo said. Nike confirmed it. Apollo confirmed it. The others would never accept it, but you guys, you're Romans. That's why I wanted you to come to Delos with me. You get the whole sacrifice thing, doing your duty, jumping on your sword. Frank sniffled. I think you mean falling on your sword. Whatever, Leo said. You know this has to be the answer. Leo, Frank choked up. Leo himself wanted to cry like a Valdezinator, but he kept his cool. Hey, big guy, I'm counting on you. Remember you told me about that conversation with Mars? Your dad said you'd have to step up, right? You'd have to make the call nobody else was willing to make, or the war would go sideways. Frank remembered, but still, and Hazel, Leo said, crazy mist magicy Hazel, you've got to cover for me. You're the only one who can. My great granddad Sammy saw how special you were. He blessed me when I was a baby because 
I think somehow he knew you were going to come back and help me. Our whole lives, mi amiga. They've been leading up to this. Oh, Leo. She really did burst into tears then. She grabbed him and hugged him, which was sweet, until Frank started crying too and wrapped them both in his arms. That got a little weird. Okay, well... Leo gently extricated himself. So we're in agreement? I hate this plan, Frank said. I despise it, Hazel said. Think how I feel, Leo said. But you know it's our best shot. Neither of them argued. Leo kind of wished they had. Let's get back to the ship, he said. We have a healer god to find. Chapter 35 Leo Leo spotted the secret entrance immediately. Oh, that's beautiful! He maneuvered the ship over the ruins of Epidaurus. The Argo II really wasn't in good shape to fly, but Leo had gotten her airborne after only one night of work. With the world ending tomorrow morning, he was highly motivated. He primed the oar flaps. He'd injected Styx water into the Samoflange. He'd treated Festus, the figurehead, to his favorite brew, 30-weight motor oil and Tabasco sauce. Even Buford the Wonder Table had pitched in, rattling around below decks while his holographic mini-hedge yelled, Give me 30 push-ups! to inspire the engine. Now at last, they hovered over the ancient temple complex of the healing god Asclepius where they could hopefully find the physician's cure and maybe also some ambrosia, nectar, and Fonzies, because Leo's supplies were running low. Next to him on the quarterdeck, Percy peered over the railing. Looks like more rubble, he noted. His face was still green from his underwater poisoning, but at least he wasn't running to the bathroom to upchuck quite so often. Between him and Hazel's seasickness, it had been impossible to find an unoccupied toilet on board for the past few days. Annabeth pointed to the disc-shaped structure about fifty yards off their port side. There! Leo smiled. Exactly! See, the architect knows her stuff! The rest of the crew gathered around. What are we looking at? Frank asked. Ah, Signor Zhang, Leo said. You know how you're always saying, Leo, you are the only true genius among demigods? I'm pretty sure I never said that. Well, it turns out there are other true geniuses, because one of them must have made that work of art down there. It's a stone circle, Frank said. Probably the foundation of an old shrine. Piper shook her head. No, it's more than that. Look at the ridges and grooves carved around the rim. Like the teeth of a gear, Jason offered. And those concentric rings. Hazel pointed to the center of the structure, where curved stones formed a sort of bullseye. The pattern reminds me of Pacify's pendant, the symbol of the labyrinth. Huh, Leo scowled. Well, I hadn't thought of that, but think mechanical. Frank, Hazel, where did we see concentric circles like that before? 
the laboratory under Rome, Frank said. The Archimedes lock on the door, Hazel recalled. It had rings within rings. Percy snorted. You're telling me that's a massive stone lock? It's like 50 feet in diameter. Leo might be right, Annabeth said. In ancient times, the temple of Asclepius was like the general hospital of Greece. Everybody came here for the best healing. Above ground, it was the size of a major city, but supposedly the real action happened below ground. That's where the high priests had their intensive care, super-magical-type compound, accessed by a secret passage. Percy scratched his ear. So if that big round thing is the lock... How do we get the key? Way ahead of you, Aquaman, Leo said. Okay, do not call me Aquaman. That's even worse than Waterboy. Leo turned to Jason and Piper. You guys remember the giant Archimedes grabber arm I told you I was building? Jason raised an eyebrow. I thought you were kidding. Oh, my friend, I never kid about giant grabber arms. Leo rubbed his hands in anticipation. It's time to go fishing for prizes. Compared to the other modifications Leo had made to the ship, the grabber arm was a piece of cake. Originally, Archimedes had designed it to pluck enemy ships out of the water. Now Leo found another use for it. He opened the hull's forward access vent and extended the arm, guided by the console monitor and Jason who flew outside, yelling directions. Left, Jason called. A couple of inches. Yeah. Okay, down. Keep it coming. You're good. Using his trackpad and turntable controls, Leo opened the claw. Its prongs settled around the grooves in the circular stone structure below. He checked the aerial stabilizers and the monitor's video feed. Okay, little buddy. Leo patted the Archimedes' sphere embedded in the helm. This is all you. He activated the sphere. The grabber arm began to turn like a corkscrew. It rotated the outer ring of stone, which grinded and rumbled, but thankfully didn't shatter. Then the claw detached, fixed itself around the second stone ring, and turned it in the opposite direction. Standing next to him at the monitor... Piper kissed him on the cheek. It's working! Leo, you're amazing! Leo grinned. He was about to make a comment about his own awesomeness, then he remembered the plan he had worked out with Hazel and Frank, and the fact that he might never see Piper again after tomorrow. The joke sort of died in his throat. Yeah, well... Thanks, beauty queen. Below them... The last stone ring turned and settled with a deep pneumatic hiss. The entire 50-foot pedestal telescoped downward into a spiral staircase. Hazel exhaled. Leo, even from up here, I'm sensing bad stuff at the bottom of those stairs. Something large and dangerous. You sure you don't want me to come along? Thanks, Hazel, but we'll be good. He patted Piper on the back. Me and Piper and Jason, we're old pros at large and dangerous. Frank held out the vial of Pelosian mint. Don't break it. Leo nodded gravely. 
Don't break the vial of deadly poison. Man, I'm glad you said that. Never would have occurred to me. Shut up, Valdez. Frank gave him a bear hug. And be careful. Ribs, Leo squeaked. Sorry. Annabeth and Percy wished them good luck. Then Percy excused himself to go throw up. Jason summoned the winds and whisked Piper and Leo down to the surface. The stairs spiraled downward about sixty feet before opening into a chamber as large as Bunker 9, which is to say, ginormous. The polished white tiles on the walls and floor reflected the light of Jason's sword so well that Leo didn't need to make a fire. Rows of long stone benches filled the entire chamber, reminding Leo of one of those mega-churches they always advertised back in Houston. At the far end of the room, where the altar would have been, stood a ten-foot-tall statue of pure white alabaster. A young woman in a white robe, a serene smile on her face. In one hand, she raised a cup, while a golden serpent coiled around her arm, its head poised over the brim, as if ready to drink. Large and dangerous, Jason guessed. Piper scanned the room. This must have been the sleeping area. Her voice echoed a little too loudly for Leo's comfort. The patients stayed here overnight. The god Asclepius was supposed to send them a dream, telling them what cure to ask for. How do you know that? Leo asked. Annabeth told you? Piper looked offended. I know stuff. That statue over there is Hygieia, the daughter of Asclepius. She's the goddess of good health. That's where we get the word hygiene. Jason studied the statue warily. What's with the snake in the cup? Uh, not sure, Piper admitted. But back in the day, this place, the Asclepion, was a medical school, as well as a hospital. All the best doctor priests trained here. They would have worshipped both Asclepius and Hygieia. Leo wanted to say, Okay, good tour, let's leave. The silence, the gleaming white tiles, the creepy smile on Hygieia's face, it all made him want to crawl out of his skin. But Jason and Piper headed down the center aisle toward the statue, so Leo figured he'd better follow. Strewn across the benches were old magazines. Highlights for children, autumn 20 BCE. Hephaestus TV Weekly, Aphrodite's latest baby bump. A. The Magazine of Asclepius. Ten simple tips to get the most out of your leeching. It's a reception area, Leo muttered. I hate reception areas. Here and there, piles of dust and scattered bones lay on the floor, which did not say encouraging things about the average wait time. Check it out, Jason pointed. Were those signs here when we walked in? And that door? Leo didn't think so. On the wall to the right of the statue, above a closed metal door, were two electronic signboards. The top one read, The doctor is incarcerated. The sign below that read, Now serving, number 000000. 000, 000, 000.
Jason squinted. I can't read it that far away. The doctor is... Incarcerated, Leo said. Apollo warned me that Asclepius was being held under guard. Zeus didn't want him sharing his medical secrets or something. Twenty bucks and a box of Fruit Loops, that statue is the guardian, Piper said. I'm not taking that bet. Leo glanced at the nearest pile of waiting room dust. Well, I guess we take a number. The giant statue had other ideas. When they got within five feet, she turned her head and looked at them. Her expression remained frozen. Her mouth didn't move. But a voice issued from somewhere above, echoing through the room. Do you have an appointment? Piper didn't miss a beat. Hello, Hygieia. Apollo sent us. We need to see Asclepius. The alabaster statue stepped off her dais. She might have been mechanical, but Leo couldn't hear any moving parts. To be certain, he'd actually have to touch her, and he didn't want to get that close. I see. The statue kept smiling, though she didn't sound pleased. May I make a copy of your insurance cards? Ah, well... Piper faltered. We don't have them on us, but... No insurance cards? The statue shook her head. An exasperated sigh echoed through the chamber. I suppose you haven't prepared for your visit either. Have you washed your hands thoroughly? Uh, yes, Piper said. Leo looked at his hands, which, as usual, were streaked with grease and grime. He hid them behind his back. Are you wearing clean underwear? The statue asked. Hey, lady, Leo said. That's getting personal. You should always wear clean underwear to the doctor's office, chided Hygieia. I'm afraid you are a health hazard. You will have to be sanitized before we can proceed. The golden snake uncurled and dropped from her arm. It reared its head and hissed, flashing saber-like fangs. Uh, you know, Jason said, getting sanitized by large snakes isn't covered by our medical plan. Darn it. Oh, that doesn't matter, Hygieia assured him. Sanitizing is a community service. It's complimentary. The snake lunged. Leo had a lot of practice dodging mechanical monsters, which was good, because the golden serpent was fast. Leo leaped to one side, and the snake missed his head by an inch. Leo rolled and came up, hands blazing. As the snake attacked, Leo blasted it in the eyes, causing it to veer left and smash into the bench. Piper and Jason went to work on Hygieia. They slashed through the statue's knees, felling her like an alabaster Christmas tree. Her head hit a bench. Her chalice splashed steaming acid all over the floor. Jason and Piper moved in for the kill, but before they could strike, Hygieia's legs popped back on like they were magnetic. The goddess rose, still smiling. Unacceptable, she said. The doctor will not see you until you are properly sanitized. She sloshed her cup toward Piper, who jumped out of the way as more acid splashed across the nearest benches, 
dissolving the stone in a hissing cloud of steam. The snake, meanwhile, recovered its senses. Its melted metal eyes somehow repaired themselves. Its face popped back into shape, like a dent-resistant car hood. It struck at Leo, who ducked and tried to grapple its neck, but it was like trying to grab sandpaper going sixty miles an hour. The serpent shot past, its rough metal skin leaving Leo's hands scraped and bleeding. The momentary contact did give Leo some insight, however. The snake was a machine. He sensed its inner workings, and if the statue of Hygieia operated on a similar schematic, Leo might have a chance. Across the room, Jason soared into the air and lopped the goddess's head off. Sadly, the head flew right back into place. Unacceptable, Hygieia said calmly. Decapitation is not a healthy lifestyle choice. Jason, get over here, Leo yelled. Piper, buy us some time. Piper glanced over like, easier said than done. Hygieia, she yelled. I have insurance. That got the statue's attention. Even the golden snake turned toward her, as if insurance was some sort of tasty rodent. Insurance? the statue said eagerly. Who is your provider? Um, Blue Lightning, Piper said. I have the card right here. Just a second. She made a big show of patting down her pockets. The snake slithered over to watch. Jason ran to Leo's side, gasping. What's the plan? We can't destroy these things, Leo said. They're designed for self-healing. They're immune to pretty much every kind of damage. Great, Jason said. So, you remember Chiron's old gaming system? Leo asked. Jason's eyes widened. Leo, this isn't Mario Party 6. Same principle, though. Idiot mode? Leo grinned. I'll need you and Piper to run interference. I'll reprogram the snake. Then Big Bertha. Hygieia. Whatever. Ready? No. Leo and Jason ran for the snake. Hygieia was assailing Piper with healthcare questions. Is Blue Lightning an HMO? What is your deductible? Who is your primary care deity? As Piper ad-libbed answers, Leo jumped on the serpent's back. This time, he knew what he was looking for. And for a moment... The serpent didn't even seem to notice him. Leo pried open a service panel near the snake's head. He held on with his legs, trying to ignore the pain and sticky blood on his hands as he redid the serpent's wiring. Jason stood by, ready to attack, but the snake seemed transfixed by Piper's problems with Blue Lightning's coverage. Then the advice nurse said I had to call a service center, Piper reported and the medications weren't covered by my plan, and... The snake lurched as Leo connected the last two wires. Leo jumped off, and the golden serpent began shaking uncontrollably. Hygieia whirled to face them. What have you done? My snake requires medical assistance. Does it have insurance? Piper asked. What? The statue turned back to her, and Leo jumped. Jason summoned a gust of wind, 
which boosted Leo onto the statue's shoulders like a little kid at a parade. Leo popped open the back of the statue's head as she staggered around, sloshing acid. Get off! she yelled. This is not hygienic! Hey! Jason yelled, flying circles around her. I have a question about my deductibles. What? the statue cried. Hygieia! Piper shouted. I need an invoice submitted to Medicare. No, please! Leo found the statue's regulator chip. He clicked a few dials and pulled some wires, trying to pretend that Hygieia was just one large, dangerous Nintendo game system. He reconnected her circuits and Hygieia began to spin, hollering and flailing her arms. Leo jumped away, barely avoiding an acid bath. He and his friends backed up while Hygieia and her snake underwent a violent religious experience. What did you do? Piper demanded. Idiot mode, Leo said. Excuse me? Back at camp, Jason explained. Chiron had this ancient gaming system in the rec room. Leo and I used to play it sometimes. You'd compete against, like, computer-controlled opponents. Comms. And they had three difficulty options, Leo said. Easy, medium, and hard. I've played video games before, Piper said. So what did you do? Well, I got bored with those settings. Leo shrugged. So I invented a fourth difficulty level. Idiot mode. It makes the comms so stupid it's funny. They always choose exactly the wrong thing to do. Piper stared at the statue and snake, both of which were writhing and starting to smoke. Are you sure you set them to idiot mode? We'll know in a minute. What if you set them to extreme difficulty? Then we'll know that too. The snake stopped shuddering. It coiled up and looked around, as if bewildered. Hygieia froze. A puff of smoke drifted from her right ear. She looked down at Leo. You must die! Hello! You must die! She raised her cup and poured acid over her face. Then she turned and marched face first into the nearest wall. The snake reared up and slammed his head repeatedly into the floor. Okay, Jason said. I think we have achieved idiot mode. Hello, die! Hygieia backed up from the wall and face slammed it again. Let's go! Leo ran for the metal door next to the dais. He grabbed the handle. It was still locked, but Leo sensed the mechanisms inside, wires running up the frame, connected to... He stared at the two blinking signs above the door. Jason, he said, give me a boost. Another gust of wind levitated him upward. Leo went to work with his pliers, reprogramming the signs until the top one flashed, The doctor is in the house. The bottom sign changed to read, Now serving, All the ladies love Leo. The metal door swung open, and Leo settled to the floor. See, the way wasn't so bad. Leo grinned at his friends. The doctor will see us now. Chapter 36 Leo
At the end of the hall stood a walnut door with a bronze plaque. Asclepius, M.D., D.M.D., D.M.E., D.C., D.V.S., F.A.A.N., O.M.G., E.M.T., T.T.Y.L., F.R.C.P., M.E., I.O.U., O.D., O.T., P.H.A.R.M.D., B.A.M.F., R.N., Ph.D., I.N.C., S.M.H., there may have been more acronyms in the list, but by that point, Leo's brain had exploded. Piper knocked. Dr. Asclepius? The door flew open. A man inside had a kindly smile, crinkles around his eyes, short salt-and-pepper hair, and a well-trimmed beard. He wore a white lab coat over a business suit and a stethoscope around his neck. Your stereotypical doctor outfit except for one thing. Asclepius held a polished black staff with a live green python coiled around it. Leo wasn't happy to see another snake. The python regarded him with pale yellow eyes, and Leo had a feeling it was not set to idiot mode. Hello, said Asclepius. Doctor, Piper's smile was so warm it would have melted a boread. We'd be so grateful for your help. We need the physician's cure. Leo wasn't even her target, but Piper's charm speak washed over him irresistibly. He would have done anything to help her get that cure. He would have gone to medical school, gotten twelve doctorate degrees, and bought a large green python on a stick. Asclepius put his hand over his heart. Oh, my dear, I would be delighted to help. Piper's smile wavered. You would? I mean, of course you would. Come in, come in. Asclepius ushered them into his office. The guy was so nice, Leo figured his office would be full of torture devices. But it looked like, well, a doctor's office a big maple desk, bookshelves stuffed with medical books, and some of those plastic organ models Leo loved to play with as a kid. He remembered getting in trouble one time because he had turned a cross-section kidney and some skeleton legs into a kidney monster and scared the nurse. Life was simpler back then. Asclepius took the big comfy doctor's chair and laid his staff and serpent across his desk. Please sit. Jason and Piper took the two chairs on the patient's side. Leo had to remain standing, which was fine with him. He didn't want to be eye-level with the snake. So, Asclepius leaned back, I can't tell you how nice it is to actually talk with patients. The last few thousand years, the paperwork has gotten out of control. Rush, rush, rush. Fill in forms, deal with red tape not to mention the giant alabaster guardian who kills everyone in the waiting room. It takes all the fun out of medicine. Yeah, Leo said. Hygieia is kind of a downer. Asclepius grinned. My real daughter Hygieia isn't like that, I assure you. She's quite nice. At any rate, you did well reprogramming the statue. You have a surgeon's hands. Jason shuddered. Leo with a scalpel? Don't encourage him. 
The doctor god chuckled. Now, what seems to be the trouble? He sat forward and peered at Jason. Hmm, imperial gold sword wound, but that's healed nicely. No cancer, no hard problems. Watch that mole on your left foot, but I'm sure it's benign. Jason blanched. How did you... Oh, of course, Asclepius said. You're a bit nearsighted. Simple fix. He opened his drawer, whipped out a prescription pad and an eyeglasses case. He scribbled something on the pad, then handed the glasses and the script to Jason. Keep the prescription for future reference, but these lenses should work. Try them on. Wait, Leo said. Jason is nearsighted? Jason opened the case. I... I have had a little trouble seeing stuff from a distance lately, he admitted. I thought I was just tired. He tried on the glasses, which had thin frames of imperial gold. Wow! Yeah! That's better! Piper smiled. You look very distinguished. I don't know, man, Leo said. I'd go for contacts, glowing orange ones with cat's eye pupils. Those would be cool. Glasses are fine, Jason decided. Thanks, uh, Dr. Asclepius, but that's not why we came. No? Asclepius steepled his fingers. Well, let's see then. He turned to Piper. You seem fine, my dear. Broken arm when you were six. Fell off a horse? Piper's jaw dropped. How could you possibly know that? Vegetarian diet, he continued. No problem. Just make sure you're getting enough iron and protein. Hmm, a little weak in the left shoulder. I assume you got hit with something heavy about a month ago? A sandbag in Rome, Piper said. That's amazing. Alternate ice and a hot pack if it bothers you, Asclepius advised. And you, he faced Leo. Oh, my. The doctor's expression turned grim. The friendly twinkle disappeared from his eyes. Oh, I see. The doctor's expression said, I am so, so sorry. Leo's heart filled with cement. If he'd harbored any last hopes of avoiding what was to come... They now sank. What? Jason's new glasses flashed. What's wrong with Leo? Hey, Doc. Leo shot him a drop-it look. Hopefully they knew about patient confidentiality in ancient Greece. We came for the physician's cure. Can you help us? I've got some pylosian mint here and a very nice yellow daisy. He set the ingredients on the desk carefully avoiding the snake's mouth. Hold it, Piper said. Is there something wrong with Leo or not? Asclepius cleared his throat. I... Never mind. Forget I said anything. Now, you want the physician's cure. Piper frowned. But, seriously, guys, Leo said, I'm fine except for the fact that Gia's destroying the world tomorrow. 
Let's focus. They didn't look happy about it, but Asclepius forged ahead. So this daisy was picked by my father, Apollo. Yep, Leo said. He sends hugs and kisses. Asclepius picked up the flower and sniffed it. I do hope Dad comes through this war all right. Zeus can be quite unreasonable. Now the only missing ingredient is the heartbeat of the chained god. I have it, Piper said. At least, I can summon the Makai. Excellent. Just a moment, dear. He looked at his python. Spike, are you ready? Leo stifled a laugh. Your snake's name is Spike. Spike looked at him balefully. He hissed, revealing a crown of spikes around his neck like a basilisk's. Leo's laugh crawled back down his throat to die. My bad, he said. Of course, your name is Spike. He's a little grumpy, Asclepius said. People are always confusing my staff with the staff of Hermes, which has two snakes. Obviously, over the centuries, people have called Hermes's staff the symbol of medicine, when of course it should be my staff. Spike feels slighted. George and Martha get all the attention. Anyway, Asclepius set the daisy and poison in front of Spike. Pylosian mint, certainty of death. The curse of Delos, anchoring that which cannot be anchored. Now the final ingredient, the heartbeat of the chained god, chaos, violence, and fear of mortality. He turned to Piper, my dear, you may release the Makai. Piper closed her eyes. Wind swirled through the room. Angry voices wailed. Leo felt a strange desire to smack Spike with a hammer. He wanted to strangle the good doctor with his bare hands. Then Spike unhinged his jaw and swallowed the angry wind. His neck ballooned as the spirits of battle went down his throat. He snapped up the daisy and the vial of Pylosian mint for dessert. Won't the poison hurt him? Jason asked. No, no, Asclepius said. Wait and see. A moment later, Spike belched out a new vial, a stopper glass tube no bigger than Leo's finger. Dark red liquid glowed inside. The physician's cure. Asclepius picked up the vial and turned it in the light. His expression became serious, then bewildered. Wait, why did I agree to make this? Piper placed her hand palm up on the desk. Because we need it to save the world, it's very important. You're the only one who can help us. Her charm speak was so potent, even Spike the Snake relaxed. He curled around his staff and went to sleep. Asclepius's expression softened, like he was easing himself into a hot bath. Of course, the god said. I forgot, but you must be careful. Hades hates it when I raise people from the dead. The last time I gave someone this potion, the Lord of the Underworld complained to Zeus, and I was killed by a lightning bolt. Boom. 
Leo flinched. You look pretty good for a dead guy. Oh, I got better. That was part of the compromise. You see, when Zeus killed me, my father Apollo got very upset. He couldn't take out his anger on Zeus directly. The king of the gods was much too powerful. So Apollo took revenge on the makers of lightning bolts instead. He killed some of the elder Cyclopes. For that, Zeus punished Apollo quite severely. Finally, to make peace, Zeus agreed to make me a god of medicine, with the understanding that I wouldn't bring anyone else back to life. Asclepius's eyes filled with uncertainty. And yet here I am, giving you the cure. Because you realize how important this is, Piper said. You're willing to make an exception. Yes. Reluctantly, Asclepius handed Piper the vial. At any rate, the potion must be administered as soon as possible after death. It can be injected or poured into the mouth, and there is only enough for one person. Do you understand me? He looked directly at Leo. We understand, Piper promised. Are you sure you don't want to come with us, Asclepius? Your guardian is out of commission. You'd be really helpful aboard the Argo, too. Asclepius smiled wistfully. The Argo. Back when I was a demigod, I sailed on the original ship, you know. Ah, to be a carefree adventurer again. Yeah, Jason muttered. Carefree. But alas, I cannot. Zeus will already be quite angry with me for helping you. Besides, the Guardian will reprogram itself soon. You should leave. Asclepius rose. Best wishes, demigods. And if you see my father again, please, give him my regrets. Leo wasn't sure what that meant, but they took their leave. As they passed through the waiting room, the statue of Hygieia was sitting on a bench, pouring acid on her face and singing, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, while her golden snake gnawed at her foot. The peaceful scene was almost enough to lift Leo's spirits. Back on the Argo 2, they gathered in the mess hall and filled in the rest of the crew. I don't like it, Jason said, the way Asclepius looked at Leo. Ah, uh, he just sensed my heart sickness, Leo tried for a smile. You know, I'm dying to see Calypso. That is so sweet, Piper said, but I'm not sure that's it. Percy frowned at the glowing red vial that sat in the middle of the table. Any of us might die, right? So we just need to keep the potion handy. Assuming only one of us dies, Jason pointed out. There's only one dose. Hazel and Frank stared at Leo. He gave them a look like, knock it off. The others didn't see the full picture. To storm or fire... The world must fall. Jason or Leo. In Olympia, Nike had warned that one of the four demigods present would die. Percy, Hazel, Frank, or Leo. Only one name overlapped those two lists. Leo. And if Leo's plan was going to work, 
He couldn't have anybody else close by when he pulled the trigger. His friends would never accept his decision. They would argue. They would try to save him. They would insist on finding another way. But this time, Leo was convinced. There was no other way. Like Annabeth always told them, fighting against the prophecy never worked. It just created more trouble. He had to make sure this war ended once and for all. We have to keep our options open, Piper suggested. We need, like, a designated medic to carry the potion, somebody who can react quickly and heal whoever gets killed. Good idea, Beauty Queen, Leo lied. I nominate you. Piper blinked. But Annabeth is wiser. Hazel can move faster on Orion. Frank can turn into animals. But you've got heart. Annabeth squeezed her friend's hand. Leo's right. When the time comes, you'll know what to do. Yeah, Jason agreed. I have a feeling you're the best choice, Pipes. You're going to be there with us at the end. Whatever happens. Storm or fire. Leo picked up the vial. Is everyone in agreement? No one objected. Leo locked eyes with Hazel. You know what needs to happen. He pulled a chamois cloth from his tool belt and made a big show of wrapping up the physician's cure. Then he presented the package to Piper. Okay, then, he said. Athens tomorrow morning, gang. Be ready to fight some giants. Yeah, Frank murmured. I know I'll sleep well. After dinner broke up, Jason and Piper tried to waylay Leo. They wanted to talk about what happened with Asclepius, but Leo evaded them. I've got to work on the engine, he said, which was true. Once in the engine room, with only Buford the Wonder Table for company, Leo took a deep breath. He reached into his tool belt and pulled out the actual vial of Physician's Cure, not the trick-of-the-mist version he'd handed to Piper. Buford blew steam at him. Hey, man, I had to, Leo said. Buford activated his holographic hedge. Put some clothes on! Look, it's got to be this way. Otherwise, we'll all die. Buford made a plaintive squeal then clattered into the corner in a sulk. Leo stared at the engine. He'd spent so much time putting it together. He'd sacrificed months of sweat and pain and loneliness. Now the Argo II was approaching the end of its voyage. Leo's whole life, his childhood with Tia Kaida, his mother's death in that warehouse fire, his years as a foster kid, his months at Camp Half-Blood with Jason and Piper. All of it would culminate tomorrow morning in one final battle. He opened the access panel. Festus's voice creaked over the intercom. Yeah, buddy, Leo agreed. It's time. More creaking. I know, Leo said. Together till the end? Festus squeaked affirmatively. Leo checked the ancient bronze astrolabe, which was now fitted with the crystal from Ogigia. Leo could only hope it would work. I will get back to you, Calypso, he muttered. 
I promised on the river Styx. He flipped a switch and brought the navigation device online. He set the timer for 24 hours. Finally, he opened the engine's ventilator line and pushed inside the vial of Physician's Cure. It disappeared into the veins of the ship with a decisive thunk. Too late to turn back now, Leo said. He curled on the floor and closed his eyes, determined to enjoy the familiar hum of the engine for one last night. Chapter 37 Reyna Turn back! Reyna wasn't keen to give orders to Pegasus, the lord of flying horses, but she was even less keen to get shot out of the sky. As they approached Camp Half-Blood in the pre-dawn hours of August 1st, she spotted six Roman onagers. Even in the dark, their imperial gold plating glinted. Their massive throwing arms bent back like ship masts listing in a storm. Crews of artillerists scurried around the machines, loading the slings, checking the torsion of the ropes. What are those? Nico called. He flew about twenty feet to her left on the dark Pegasus blackjack. Siege weapons, Reyna said. If we get any closer, they can shoot us out of the sky. From this high up? On her right, Coach Hedge shouted from the back of his steed Guido. Those are onagers, kid. Those things can kick higher than Bruce Lee. Lord Pegasus, Reyna said, resting her hand on the stallion's neck. We need a safe place to land. Pegasus seemed to understand. He wheeled to the left. The other flying horses followed. Blackjack, Guido, and six others who were towing the Athena Parthenos beneath them on cables. As they skirted the western edge of the camp, Reyna took in the scene. The legion lined the base of the eastern hills, ready for a dawn attack. The onagers were arrayed behind them in a loose semicircle at 300-yard intervals. Judging from the size of the weapons, Reyna calculated that Octavian had enough firepower to destroy every living thing in the valley. But that was only part of the threat. Encamped along the legion's flanks were hundreds of auxilia forces. Reyna couldn't see well in the dark, but she spotted at least one tribe of wild centaurs and an army of Sinocephaly, the dog-headed men who'd made an uneasy truce with the legion centuries ago. The Romans were badly outnumbered, surrounded by a sea of unreliable allies. There! Nico pointed toward Long Island Sound, where the lights of a large yacht gleamed a quarter mile offshore. We could land on the deck of that ship. The Greeks control the sea. Reyna wasn't sure the Greeks would be any friendlier than the Romans, but Pegasus seemed to like the idea. He banked toward the dark waters of the sound. The ship was a white pleasure craft, a hundred feet long, with sleek lines and dark-tinted portals. Painted on the bow in red letters was the name Miamor. On the forward deck was a helipad big enough for the Athena Parthenos. Reyna saw no crew. She guessed the ship was a regular mortal vessel anchored for the night. But if she was wrong and the ship was a trap... It's our best shot, Nico said. The horses are tired. We need to set down. She nodded reluctantly. Let's do it. 
Pegasus landed on the forward deck with Guido and Blackjack. The six other horses gently set the Athena Parthenos on the helipad and then settled around it. With their cables and harnesses, they looked like carousel animals. Reyna dismounted. As she had two days ago, when she first met Pegasus, she knelt before the horse. Thank you, Great One. Pegasus spread his wings and inclined his head. Even now, after flying halfway up the east coast together, Reyna could scarcely believe the immortal horse had allowed her to ride. Reyna had always pictured him as a solid white with dove-like wings, but Pegasus's coat was rich brown, mottled with red and gold around the muzzle, which Hedge claimed were the marks where the stallion had emerged from the blood and ichor of his beheaded mother, Medusa. Pegasus's wings were the colors of an eagle's, gold, white, brown, and rust, which made him look much more handsome and regal than plain white. He was the color of all horses, representing all his offspring. Lord Pegasus nickered. Hedge trotted over to translate. Pegasus says he should leave before the shooting starts. His life force connects all Pegasus, I see, so if he gets injured, all winged horses feel his pain. That's why he doesn't get out much. He's immortal, but his offspring aren't. He doesn't want them to suffer on his account. He's asked the other horses to stay with us, to help us complete our mission. I understand, Reyna said. Thank you. Pegasus whinnied. Hedge's eyes widened. He choked back a sob, then fished a handkerchief out of his backpack and dabbed his eyes. Coach? Nico frowned with concern. What did Pegasus say? He... He says he didn't come to us in person because of my message. Hedge turned to Reyna. He did it because of you. He experiences the feelings of all winged horses. He followed your friendship with Scipio. Pegasus says he's never been more touched by a demigod's compassion for a winged horse. He gives you the title Horse Friend. This is a great honor. Reyna's eyes stung. She bowed her head. Thank you, Lord. Pegasus pawed the deck. The other winged horses whinnied in salute. Then their sire launched himself upward and spiraled into the night. Hedge stared at the clouds in amazement. Pegasus hasn't shown himself in hundreds of years. He patted Reyna on the back. You did good, Roman. Reyna didn't feel like she deserved credit for putting Scipio through so much suffering, but she forced down her feelings of guilt. Nico, we should check the ship, she said. If there's anyone aboard... Way ahead of you. He stroked Blackjack's muzzle. I sense two mortals asleep in the main cabin. Nobody else. I'm no child of Hypnos, but I've sent some deep dreams their way. Should be enough to keep them snoozing until well after sunrise. Reyna tried not to stare at him. In the last few days, he'd gotten so much stronger. Hedge's nature magic had brought him back from the brink. She'd seen Nico do some impressive things, but manipulating dreams? Had he always been able to do that? Coach Hedge rubbed his hands eagerly. So when can we go ashore? My wife is waiting. 
Reyna scanned the horizon. A Greek trireme patrolled just offshore, but it didn't seem to have noticed their arrival. No alarms sounded, no signs of movement along the beach. She caught a glimpse of Silver Wake in the moonlight, a half mile to the west. A black motorboat was speeding toward them with no running lights. Reyna hoped it was a mortal vessel. Then it got closer, and Reyna's hand tightened on the hilt of her sword. Glinting on the boat's prow was a laurel wreath designed with the letters SPQR. The Legion has sent a welcoming committee. Nico followed her gaze. I thought the Romans didn't have a navy. We didn't, she said. Apparently, Octavian has been busier than I realized. So we attack, Hedge said, because nobody's standing in my way when I'm this close. Reyna counted three people in the speedboat. The two in back wore helmets, but Reyna recognized the driver's wedge-shaped face and stocky shoulders. Michael Kahale. We'll try to parlay, Reyna decided. That's one of Octavian's right-hand men, but he's a good legionnaire. I may be able to reason with him. The wind swept Nico's dark hair across his face. But if you're wrong... The black boat slowed and pulled alongside. Michael called up. Reyna, I've got orders to arrest you and confiscate that statue. I'm coming aboard with two other centurions. I'd prefer to do this without bloodshed. Reyna tried to control her trembling legs. Come aboard, Michael. She turned to Nico and Coach Hedge. If I'm wrong, be ready. Michael Kahale won't be easy to fight. Michael wasn't dressed for combat. He wore only his purple camp shirt, jeans, and running shoes. He carried no visible weapon, but that didn't make Reyna feel any better. His arms were as thick as bridge cables, his expression as welcoming as a brick wall. The dove tattoo on his forearm looked more like a bird of prey. His eyes glittered darkly as he took in the scene. The Athena Parthenos harnessed to its team of pegasi, Nico with his Stygian sword drawn, Coach Hedge with his baseball bat. Michael's backup centurions were Layla from the fourth cohort and Dakota from the fifth. Strange choices. Layla, daughter of Ceres, wasn't known for her aggressiveness. She was usually quite level-headed. And Dakota? Reyna couldn't believe the son of Bacchus, the most good-natured of officers, would side with Octavian. Reyna Ramirez Ariano, Michael said, like he was reading from a scroll. Former Praetor. I am Praetor, Reyna corrected. Unless I have been removed by a vote of the full Senate. Is that the case? Michael sighed heavily. His heart didn't seem to be in his task. I have orders to arrest you and hold you for trial. On whose authority? You know whose. On what charges? Listen, Reyna. Michael rubbed his palm across his forehead, like it might wipe away his headache. I don't like this any more than you do, but I have my orders. Illegal orders. It's too late for argument. Octavian has assumed emergency powers. The Legion is behind him. Is that true? She looked pointedly at Dakota and Layla. 
Layla wouldn't meet her eyes. Dakota winked like he was trying to convey a message, but it was hard to tell with him. He might have been twitching simply from too much sugary Kool-Aid. We're at war, Michael said. We have to pull together. Dakota and Layla have not been the most enthusiastic supporters. Octavian gave them this one last chance to prove themselves. If they help me bring you in, preferably alive, but dead if necessary, then they keep their rank and prove their loyalty. To Octavian, Reyna noted, not the Legion. Michael spread his hands, which were only slightly smaller than baseball mitts. You can't blame the officers for falling into line. Octavian has a plan to win, and it's a good plan. At dawn, those onagers will destroy the Greek camp without a single loss of Roman life. The gods should be healed. Nico stepped in. You wipe out half the demigods in the world? Half the gods' legacy to heal them? You'll tear apart Olympus before Gia even wakes up. And she is waking, Centurion. Michael scowled. Ambassador of Pluto, son of Hades, whatever you call yourself, you've been named an enemy spy. I've got orders to take you in for execution. You can try, Nico said coldly. The face-off was so absurd it should have been humorous. Nico was several years younger, half a foot shorter, and fifty pounds lighter. But Michael didn't make a move. The veins in his neck pulsed. Dakota coughed. Um, Reyna, just come with us peacefully, please. We can work this out. He was definitely winking at her. All right, enough talk. Coach Hedge sized up Michael Cajale. Let me take this joker down. I've handled bigger. Michael smirked at that. I'm sure you're a brave fawn, but... Sater! Coach Hedge leaped at the centurion. He brought his baseball bat down with full force, but Michael simply caught it and yanked it away from the coach. Michael broke the bat over his knee. Then he pushed the coach back, though Reyna could tell Michael wasn't trying to hurt him. That's it! Hedge growled. Now I'm really mad! Coach, Reyna warned, Michael is very strong. You'd need to be an ogre or a... From somewhere off the port side, down at the waterline, a voice yelled, Kahale, what's taking so long? Michael flinched. Octavian? Of course it's me, yelled the voice from the dark. I got tired of waiting for you to carry out my orders. I'm coming aboard. Everyone on both sides, drop your weapons. Michael frowned. Uh, sir? Everyone? Even us? You don't solve every problem with a sword or a fist, you big dolt. I can handle these Greekish scum. Michael looked unsure about that, but he motioned to Layla and Dakota, who set their swords on the deck. Reyna glanced at Nico. Obviously something was wrong. She couldn't think of any reason Octavian would be here, putting himself in harm's way. He definitely wouldn't order his own officers to get rid of their weapons. But Reyna's instincts told her to play along. She dropped her blade. Nico did the same. Everyone is disarmed, sir, Michael called. 
Good, yelled Octavian. A dark silhouette appeared at the top of the ladder, but he was much too big to be Octavian. A smaller shape with wings fluttered up behind him. A harpy? By the time Reyna realized what was happening, the Cyclops had crossed the deck in two large strides. He bopped Michael Cajale on the head. The centurion fell like a sack of rocks. Dakota and Layla backed up in alarm. The harpy fluttered to the deckhouse roof. In the moonlight, her feathers were the color of dried blood. Strong, said Ella, preening her wings. Ella's boyfriend is stronger than Roman's. Friends, boomed Tyson the Cyclops. He scooped up Reyna in one arm and Hedge and Nico in the other. We have come to save you. Hooray for us. Chapter 38 Reyna Reyna had never been so glad to see a Cyclops, at least until Tyson set them down and wheeled on Layla and Dakota. Bad Romans. Tyson, wait. Reyna said. Don't hurt them. Tyson frowned. He was small for a cyclops, still a child, really. A little over six feet tall, his messy brown hair crusted with salt water. His big single eye the color of maple syrup. He wore only a swimsuit and a flannel pajama shirt, like he couldn't decide whether to go swimming or go to sleep. He exuded a strong smell of peanut butter. They are not bad? he asked. No, Reyna said. They were following bad orders. I think they're sorry for that. Aren't you, Dakota? Dakota put his arms up so fast he looked like Superman about to take off. Reyna, I was trying to clue you in. Layla and I plan to switch sides and help you take down Michael. That's right. Layla almost fell backward over the railing. But before we could, the Cyclops did it for us. Coach Hedge snorted. A likely story. Tyson sneezed. Sorry, goat fur. Itchy nose. Do we trust Romans? I do, Reyna said. Dakota, Layla, you understand what our mission is? Layla nodded. You want to return that statue to the Greeks as a peace offering. Let us help. Yeah, Dakota nodded vigorously. The Legion's not nearly as united as Michael claimed. We don't trust all the auxilia forces Octavian has gathered. Nico laughed bitterly. A little late for doubts. You're surrounded. As soon as Camp Half-Blood is destroyed, those allies will turn on you. So what do we do? asked Dakota. We have an hour at most until sunrise. 5.52 a.m., said Ella, still perched on the boathouse. Sunrise, eastern seaboard, August 1st. Timetables for naval meteorology. One hour and twelve minutes is more than one hour. Dakota's eye ticked. I stand corrected. Coach Hedge looked at Tyson. Can we get into Camp Half-Blood safely? Is Melly all right? Tyson scratched his chin thoughtfully. She is very round. 
But she's okay? Hedge persisted. She hasn't given birth yet? Delivery occurs at the end of the third trimester, Ella advised. Page 43, The New Mother's Guide to... I gotta get over there! Hedge looked like he was ready to jump overboard and swim. Raina put her hand on his shoulder. Coach, we'll get you to your wife, but let's do it right. Tyson, how did you and Ella get out to this ship? Rainbow! You took a rainbow? He is my fish pony friend. The hippocampus, Nico advised. I see. Raina thought for a moment. Could you and Ella escort the coach back to Camp Half-Blood safely? Yes, Tyson said. We can do that. Good. Coach, go see your wife. Tell the campers I plan to fly the Athena Parthenos to Half-Blood Hill at sunrise. It's a gift from Rome to Greece, to heal our divisions. If they could refrain from shooting me out of the sky, I'd be grateful. You got it, Hedge said. But what about the Roman Legion? That's a problem, Layla said gravely. Those onagers will blast you out of the sky. We'll need a distraction, Raina said. Something to delay the attack on Camp Half-Blood and preferably put those weapons out of commission. Dakota, Layla, will your cohorts follow you? I... I think so, yes, Dakota said. But if we ask them to commit treason... It isn't treason, Layla said. Not if we're acting on direct orders from our Preter. And Reyna is still Preter. Reyna turned to Nico. I need you to go with Dakota and Layla. While they're stirring trouble in the ranks, trying to delay the attack, you have to find a way to sabotage those onagers. Nico's smile made Reyna glad he was on her side. My pleasure. We'll buy you time to deliver the Athena Parthenos. Um, Dakota shuffled his feet. Even if you get the statue to the hill, what's to stop Octavian from destroying it once it's in place? He's got lots of firepower, even without the onagers. Reyna peered up at the ivory face of Athena, veiled beneath camouflage netting. Once the statue is returned to the Greeks, I think it will be difficult to destroy. It has great magic. It has simply chosen not to use it yet. Layla bent down slowly and retrieved her sword, keeping her eyes on the Athena Parthenos. I'll take your word for it. What do we do with Michael? Reyna regarded the snoring mountain of Hawaiian demigod. Put him in your boat. Don't hurt him or bind him. I have a feeling Michael's heart is in the right place. He just had the bad luck of being sponsored by the wrong person. Nico sheathed his black sword. You sure about this, Reyna? I don't like leaving you alone. Blackjack whinnied and licked the side of Nico's face. Gah! Okay, I'm sorry. Nico wiped off the horse spit. Reyna's not alone. She's got a herd of excellent pegasi. Reyna couldn't help but smile. I'll be fine. With luck, we'll all meet again soon enough. We'll fight side by side against Gia's forces. Be careful, and Ave Rome.
Dakota and Layla repeated the cheer. Tyson furrowed his single eyebrow. Who is Ave? It means go Romans. Reyna clapped the Cyclops's forearm. But by all means, go Greeks too. The words sounded strange in her mouth. She faced Nico. She wanted to hug him, but wasn't sure the gesture would be welcome. She extended her hand. It's been an honor questing with you, son of Hades. Nico's grip was strong. You're the most courageous demigod I've ever met, Reyna. I. He faltered, perhaps realizing he had a large audience. I won't let you down. See you on Half Blood Hill. The sky began to lighten in the east as the group dispersed. Soon, Reyna stood on the deck of the Miamor, alone, except for eight Pegasi and a forty foot tall Athena. She tried to steady her nerves, until Nico, Dakota, and Layla had time to disrupt the Legion's attack. She couldn't do anything, but she hated standing around and waiting. Just over that dark line of hills, her comrades in the Twelfth Legion were preparing for a needless attack. If Reyna had stayed with them, she could have guided them better. She could have kept Octavian in check. Perhaps the giant Orion was correct. She'd failed in her duties. She remembered the ghosts on the balcony in San Juan, pointing at her, whispering accusations. Murderer! Traitor! She remembered the feel of the golden saber in her hand as she slashed down her father's specter, his face full of outrage and betrayal. You are a Ramirez Ariano, her father used to rant. Never abandon your post. Never let anyone in. Above all, never betray your own. By helping the Greeks, Reyna had done all of those things. A Roman was supposed to destroy her enemies. Instead, Reyna had joined forces with them. She'd left her legion in the hands of a madman. What would her mother say? Bologna, the war goddess. Blackjack must have sensed her agitation. He clopped over and nuzzled her. She stroked his muzzle. I don't have any treats for you, boy. He bumped her affectionately. Nico had told her that Blackjack was Percy's usual ride, but he seemed friendly to everyone. He carried the son of Hades without protest. Now he was comforting a Roman. She wrapped her arms around his powerful neck. His coat smelled just like Scipio's, a mixture of fresh-cut grass and warm bread. She let loose a sob that had been building in her chest. As Praetor, she couldn't show weakness or fear to her comrades. She had to stay strong, but the horse didn't seem to mind. He nickered gently. Reyna couldn't understand horse, but he seemed to say, It's all right. You've done well. She looked up at the fading stars. Mother, she said, I haven't prayed to you enough. I've never met you. I've never asked for your help. But please... This morning, give me the strength to do what is right. As if on cue, something flashed on the eastern horizon, a light across the sound. 
approaching fast like another speedboat. For one elated moment, Reyna thought it was a sign from Bologna. The dark shape got closer. Reyna's hope turned to dread. She waited too long, paralyzed with disbelief, as the figure resolved into a large humanoid running toward her across the surface of the water. The first arrow struck Blackjack's flank. The horse collapsed with a shriek of pain. Reyna screamed, but before she could move, a second arrow hit the deck between her feet. Attached to its shaft was a glowing LED readout the size of a wristwatch, counting down from 500, 459, 458. Chapter 39. Reyna. I wouldn't move, Preter. Orion stood on the surface of the water, fifty feet to starboard, an arrow knocked in his bow. Through Reyna's haze of rage and grief, she noticed the giant's new scars. His fight with the hunters had left him with mottled gray and pink scar tissue on his arms and face, so he looked like a bruised peach in the process of rotting. The mechanical eye on his left side was dark. His hair had burned away, leaving only ragged patches. His nose was swollen and red from the bowstring that Nico had snapped in his face. All of this gave Reyna a twinge of dark satisfaction. Regrettably, the giant still had his smug smile. At Reyna's feet, the timer on the arrow read, 442. Explosive arrows are very touchy, said Orion. Once they're embedded, even the slightest motion can set them off. I wouldn't want you to miss the last four minutes of your life. Reyna's senses sharpened. The pegasi clopped nervously around the Athena Parthenos. Dawn began to break. The wind from the shore brought a faint scent of strawberries. Lying next to her on the deck, Blackjack wheezed and shuddered, still alive, but badly wounded. Her heart pounded so hard she thought her eardrums might burst. She extended her strength to Blackjack, trying to keep him alive. She would not see him die. She wanted to shout insults at the giant, but her first words were surprisingly calm. What of my sister? Orion's white teeth flashed in his ruined face. I would love to tell you she is dead. I would love to see the pain on your face. Alas, as far as I know, your sister still lives. So do Thalia Grace and her annoying hunters. They surprised me, I'll admit. I was forced into the sea to escape them. For the past few days, I have been wounded and in pain, healing slowly, building a new bow. But don't worry, Preter. You will die first. Your precious statue will be burned in a great conflagration. After Gia has risen, when the mortal world is ending, I will find your sister. I will tell her you died painfully. Then I will kill her. He grinned. So all is well. 404. Hilla was alive. Thalia and the hunters were still out there somewhere. But none of that would matter if Reyna's mission failed. The sun was rising on the last day of the world. 
Blackjack's breathing became more labored. Reyna mustered her courage. The winged horse needed her. Lord Pegasus had named her horse friend, and she would not let him down. She couldn't think about the entire world right now. She had to concentrate on what was right next to her. 354. So, she glared at Orion. You're damaged and ugly, but not dead. I suppose that means I'll need the help of a god to kill you. Orion chuckled. Sadly, you Romans have never been very good at summoning gods to your aid. I guess they don't think much of you, eh? Reyna was tempted to agree. She had prayed to her mother and been blessed with the arrival of a homicidal giant. Not exactly a ringing endorsement. And yet... Reyna laughed. Ah, oh, Ryan. The giant's smile wavered. You have a strange sense of humor, girl. What are you laughing about? Bologna has answered my prayer. She doesn't fight my battles for me. She doesn't guarantee me easy victory. She grants me opportunities to prove myself. She gives me strong enemies and potential allies. Orion's left eye sparkled. You speak nonsense. A column of fire is about to destroy you and your precious Greek statue. No ally can help you. Your mother has abandoned you, as you abandon your legion. But she hasn't, Reyna said. Bologna wasn't just a war goddess. She wasn't like the Greek Enyo, who was simply an embodiment of carnage. Bologna's temple was where Romans greeted foreign ambassadors. Wars were declared there, but peace treaties were also negotiated. Lasting peace, based on strength. 301 Reyna drew her knife. Bologna gave me the chance to make peace with the Greeks and increase the strength of Rome. I took it. If I die, I will die defending that cause. So I say my mother is with me today. She will add her strength to mine. Shoot your arrow, Orion. It won't matter. When I throw this blade and pierce your heart, you will die. Orion stood motionless on the waves. His face was a mask of concentration. His one good eye blinked amber. A bluff, he growled. I've killed hundreds like you. Girls playing at war, pretending they are equal to giants. I will not grant you a quick death, Preter. I will watch you burn the way the hunters burned me. 231 Blackjack wheezed, kicking his legs against the deck. The sky was turning pink. A wind from the shore caught the camouflage netting on the Athena Parthenos and stripped it away sending the silvery cloth rippling across the sound. The Athena Parthenos gleamed in the early light, and Reyna thought how beautiful the goddess would look on the hill above the Greek camp. It must happen, she thought, hoping the Pegasi could sense her intentions. You must complete the journey without me. She inclined her head to the Athena Parthenos. My lady... It has been my honor to escort you. Orion scoffed. 
Talking to enemy statues now? Futile. You have roughly two minutes of life. Oh, but I don't abide by your time frame, giant, Reyna said. A Roman does not wait for death. She seeks it out and meets it on her own terms. She threw her knife. It hit true, right in the middle of the giant's chest. Orion bellowed in agony, and Reyna thought what a pleasing last sound that was to hear. She flung her cloak in front of her and fell on the explosive arrow, determined to shield Blackjack and the other Pegasi, and hopefully protect the mortals sleeping below decks. She had no idea whether her body would contain the explosion, whether her cloak could smother the flames, but it was her best chance to save her friends and her mission. She tensed, waiting to die. She felt the pressure as the arrow detonated, but it wasn't what she expected. Against her ribs, the explosion made only the smallest pop, like an overinflated balloon. Her cloak became uncomfortably warm. No flames burst forth. Why was she still alive? Rise, said a voice in her head. In a trance, Reyna got to her feet. Smoke curled from the edges of her cloak. She realized something was different about the purple fabric. It glittered as if woven through with filaments of imperial gold. At her feet, a section of the deck had been reduced to a circle of charcoal, but her cloak wasn't even singed. Accept my aegis, Reina Ramirez Ariano, said the voice. For today, you have proven yourself a hero of Olympus. Reina stared in amazement at the Athena Parthenos, glowing with a faint golden aura. The aegis. From Reyna's years of study, she recalled that the term Aegis didn't apply only to Athena's shield. It also meant the goddess's cloak. According to legend, Athena sometimes cut pieces off her mantle and draped them over statues in her temples, or over her chosen heroes, to shield them. Reyna's cloak, which she'd worn for years, had suddenly changed. It had absorbed the explosion— she tried to say something, to thank the goddess, but her voice wouldn't work. The statue's glowing aura faded. The ringing in Reyna's ears cleared. She became aware of Orion, still roaring in pain as he staggered across the surface of the water. You have failed! He clawed her knife from his chest and tossed it into the waves. I still live! He drew his bow and fired but it seemed to happen in slow motion. Reyna swept her cloak in front of her. The arrow shattered against the cloth. She charged to the railing and leaped at the giant. The jump should have been impossibly far, but Reyna felt a surge of power in her limbs, as if her mother, Bellona, was lending her strength. A return for all the strength Reyna had lent others over the years. Reyna grabbed the giant's bow and swung around on it like a gymnast, landing on the giant's back. She locked her legs around his waist, then twisted her cloak into a rope and pulled it across Orion's neck with all her might. He instinctively dropped his bow. 
He clutched at the glimmering fabric, but his fingers steamed and blistered when he touched it. Sour, acrid smoke rose from his neck. Reyna pulled tighter. This is for Phoebe, she snarled in his ear. For Kinsey, for all those you killed. You will die at the hands of a girl. Orion thrashed and fought, but Reyna's will was unshakable. The power of Athena infused her cloak. Bologna blessed her with strength and resolve. Not one, but two powerful goddesses aided her. Yet the kill was for Reyna to complete. Complete it, she did. The giant crumpled to his knees and sank in the water. Reyna didn't let go until he ceased to thrash and his body dissolved into sea foam. His mechanical eye disappeared beneath the waves. His bow began to sink. Reyna let it. She had no interest in spoils of war, no desire to let any part of the giant survive. Like her father's mania and all the other angry ghosts of her past, Orion could teach her nothing. He deserved to be forgotten. Besides, dawn was breaking. Reyna swam for the yacht. Chapter 40 Reyna No time for enjoying her victory over Orion. Blackjack's muzzle was foaming. His legs spasmed. Blood trickled from the arrow wound in his flank. Reyna ripped through the supply bag that Phoebe had given her. She swabbed the wound with healing potion. She poured unicorn draft over the blade of her silver pocket knife. Please, please, she murmured to herself. In truth, she had no idea what she was doing, but she cleaned the wound as best she could and gripped the shaft of the arrow. If it had a barbed tip, pulling it out might cause more damage but if it was poisoned, she couldn't leave it in. Nor could she push it through, since it was embedded in the middle of his body. She would have to choose the lesser evil. This will hurt, my friend, she told Black Jack. He huffed, as if to say, tell me something I don't know. With her knife, she cut a slit on either side of the wound. She pulled out the arrow. Black Jack shrieked, but the arrow came out cleanly. The point wasn't barbed. It could have been poisoned, but there was no way to be sure. One problem at a time. Reyna poured more healing potion over the wound and bandaged it. She applied pressure, counting under her breath. The oozing seemed to lessen. She trickled unicorn draft into Blackjack's mouth. She lost track of time. The horse's pulse became stronger and steadier. His eyes cleared of pain. His breathing eased. By the time Reyna stood up, she was shaking with fear and exhaustion. But Blackjack was still alive. You're going to be fine, she promised. I'll get you help from Camp Half-Blood. Blackjack made a grumbling sound. Reyna could have sworn he tried to say, Donuts. She must have been going delirious. Belatedly, she realized how much the sky had lightened. The Athena Parthenos gleamed in the sun. Guido and the other winged horses pawed the deck impatiently. The battle! 
Reina turned toward the shore but saw no signs of combat. A Greek trireme bobbed lazily in the morning tide. The hills looked green and peaceful. For a moment, she wondered if the Romans had decided not to attack. Perhaps Octavian had come to his senses. Perhaps Nico and the others had managed to win over the legion. Then, an orange glow illuminated the hilltops. Multiple streaks of fire climbed skyward like burning fingers. The onagers had shot their first volley. Chapter 41 Piper Piper wasn't surprised when the snake people arrived. All week, she'd been thinking about her encounter with Skyron the bandit, when she'd stood on the deck of the Argo II after escaping a gigantic destructo turtle and made the mistake of saying, We're safe. Instantly, an arrow had hit the mainmast, an inch in front of her nose. Piper learned a valuable lesson from that. Never assume you're safe, and never ever tempt the fates by announcing that you think you're safe. So when the ship docked at the harbor in Piraeus on the outskirts of Athens, Piper resisted the urge to breathe a sigh of relief. Sure, they had finally reached their destination. Somewhere nearby, past those rows of cruise ships, past those hills crowded with buildings, they would find the Acropolis. Today, one way or another, their journey would end. But that didn't mean she could relax. Any moment, a nasty surprise might come flying out of nowhere. As it turned out, the surprise was three dudes with snake tails instead of legs. Piper was on watch while her friends geared up for combat, checking their weapons and armor, loading the ballistae and catapults. She spotted the snake guys slithering along the docks, winding through crowds of mortal tourists who paid them no attention. Um, Annabeth? Piper called. Annabeth and Percy came to her side. Oh, great, Percy said. Dracani. Annabeth narrowed her eyes. I don't think so. At least, not like any I've seen. Dracani have two serpent trunks for legs. These guys just have one. You're right, Percy said. These look more human on top, too. Not all scaly and green and stuff. So do we talk or fight? Piper was tempted to say fight. She couldn't help thinking of the story she'd told Jason, about the Cherokee hunter who broke his taboo and turned into a snake. These three looked like they'd been eating a lot of squirrel meat. Weirdly, the one in the lead reminded Piper of her dad when he'd grown a beard for his role in King of Sparta. The snake man held his head high. His face was chiseled and bronze, his eyes black as basalt, his curly dark hair glistening with oil. His upper body rippled with muscles, covered only by a Greek clamus, a white wool cloak loosely wrapped and pinned at the shoulder. From the waist down, his body was one giant serpent trunk, about eight feet of green tail undulating behind him as he moved. In one hand, he carried a staff topped with a glowing green jewel. In his other, he carried a platter covered with a silver dome. 
like an entree for a fancy dinner. The two guys behind him appeared to be guards. They wore bronze breastplates and elaborate helmets topped with horsehair bristles. Their spears were tipped with green stone points. Their oval shields were emblazoned with a large Greek letter K, Kappa. They stopped a few yards from the Argo too. The leader looked up and studied the demigods. His expression was intense but inscrutable. He might have been angry or worried or terribly in need of a restroom. Permission to come aboard. His rasping voice made Piper think of a straight razor being wiped across a strop, like in her grandfather's barber shop back in Oklahoma. Who are you? She asked. He fixed his dark eyes on her. I am Kecrops, the first and eternal king of Athens. I would welcome you to my city. He held up the covered platter. Also, I brought a bunt cake. Piper glanced at her friends. A trick? Probably, Annabeth said. At least he brought dessert. Percy smiled down at the snake guys. Welcome aboard. Kecrops agreed to leave his guards above deck with Buford the table, who ordered them to drop and give him twenty push-ups. The guards seemed to take this as a challenge. Meanwhile, the king of Athens was invited to the mess hall for a get-to-know-you meeting. Please take a seat, Jason offered. Kecrops wrinkled his nose. Snake people do not sit. Please remain standing, Leo said. He cut the cake and stuffed a piece in his mouth before Piper could warn him it might be poisoned, or inedible for mortals, or just plain bad. Dang, he grinned. Snake people know how to make bunt cake, kind of orangey with a hint of honey. Needs a glass of milk. Snake people do not drink milk, Keycrop said. We are lactose intolerant reptiles. Me too, Frank said. I mean, lactose intolerant, not a reptile. Though I can be a reptile sometimes. Anyway, Hazel interrupted. King Keycrops, what brings you here? How did you know we'd arrived? I know everything that happens in Athens, Keycrops said. I was the city's founder, its first king, born of the earth. I am the one who judged the dispute between Athena and Poseidon, and chose Athena to be the patron of the city. No hard feelings, though, Percy muttered. Annabeth elbowed him. I've heard of you, Keycrops. You were the first to offer sacrifices to Athena. You built her first shrine on the Acropolis. Correct. Keycrops sounded bitter, like he regretted his decision. My people were the original Athenians, the Gemini. Like your zodiac sign? Percy asked. I'm a Leo. No, stupid. Leo said. I'm a Leo. You're a Percy. Will you two stop it? Hazel chided. 
I think he means Gemini like doubled, half man, half snake. That's what his people are called. He's a Geminis, singular. Yes. Keycrops leaned away from Hazel as if she somehow offended him. Millennia ago, we were driven underground by the two-legged humans, but I know the ways of the city better than any. I came to warn you: if you try to approach the Acropolis above ground, you will be destroyed. Jason stopped nibbling his cake. You mean, by you? By Porphyrion's armies. Said the Snake King, "The Acropolis is ringed with great siege weapons, onagers." More onagers, Frank protested. Did they have a sail on them or something? The Cyclopes, Hazel guessed. They're supplying both Octavian and the Giants. Percy grunted, like we needed more proof that Octavian is on the wrong side. That is not the only threat," Keycrops warned. "The air is filled with storm spirits and griffins. All roads to the Acropolis are patrolled by the Earthborn." Frank drummed his fingers on the bunt cake cover. "So what? We should just give up? We've come too far for that." "I offer you an alternative," said Keycrops. Underground passage to the Acropolis, for the sake of Athena, for the sake of the gods, I will help you. The back of Piper's neck tingled. She remembered what the giantess Periboia had said in her dream, that the demigods would find friends in Athens as well as enemies. Perhaps the giantess had meant Keycrops and his snake people. But there was something in Keycrops's voice that Piper didn't like—that razor against strop tone, as if he was preparing to make a sharp cut. "What's the catch?" she asked. Keycrops turned those inscrutable dark eyes on her. Only a small party of demigods, no more than three, could pass undetected by the giants. Otherwise, your scent would give you away. But our underground passages could lead you straight into the ruins of the Acropolis. Once there, you could disable the siege weapons by stealth and allow the rest of your crew to approach. With luck, you could take the giants by surprise. You might be able to disrupt their ceremony. Ceremony? Leo asked. Oh, like to wake Gia. Even now, it has begun," Keycrops warned. "Can you not feel the earth trembling? We, the Gemini, are your best chance." Piper heard eagerness in his voice, almost hunger. Percy looked around the table. "Any objections?" "Just a few," Jason said. "We're on the enemy's doorstep. We're being asked to split up." Isn't that how people get killed in horror movies? Also, Percy said, Gia wants us to reach the Parthenon. She wants our blood to water the stones and all that other psycho garbage. 
Won't we be playing right into her hands? Annabeth caught Piper's eye. She asked a silent question. What's your feeling? Piper still wasn't used to that, the way Annabeth looked to her for advice now. Ever since Sparta, they'd learned that they could tackle problems together from two different sides. Annabeth saw the logical thing, the tactical move. Piper had gut reactions that were anything but logical. Together, they either solved the problem twice as fast, or they hopelessly confused each other. Keycrops' offer made sense. At least, it sounded like the least suicidal option. But Piper was certain the Snake King was hiding his true intentions. She just didn't know how to prove it. Then she remembered something her father had told her years ago. You were named Piper because Grandpa Tom thought you would have a powerful voice. You would learn all the Cherokee songs, even the Song of the Snakes. A myth from a totally different culture, yet here she was, facing the king of the snake people. She began to sing Summertime, one of her dad's favorites. Keycrops stared at her in wonder. He began to sway. At first, Piper was self-conscious, singing in front of all her friends and a snake guy. Her dad had always told her she had a good voice, but she didn't like to draw attention to herself. She didn't even like to participate at campfire sing-alongs. Now, her words filled the mess hall. Everyone listened, transfixed. She finished the first verse. No one spoke for a count of five. Pipes, Jason said. I had no idea. That was beautiful, Leo agreed. Maybe not, you know, Calypso beautiful, but still. Piper kept the Snake King's gaze. What are your real intentions? To deceive you, he said in a trance, still swaying. We hope to lead you into the tunnels and destroy you. Why? Piper asked. The Earth Mother has promised us great rewards. If we spill your blood under the Parthenon, that will be sufficient to complete our awakening. But you serve Athena, Piper said. You founded her city. Keycrops made a low hiss. And in return, the goddess abandoned me. Athena replaced me with a two-legged human king. She drove my daughters mad. They leaped to their deaths from the cliffs of the Acropolis. The original Athenians, the Gemini, were driven underground and forgotten. Athena, the goddess of wisdom, turned her back on us. But wisdom comes from the earth as well. We are, first and last, the children of Gia. The Earth Mother has promised us a place in the sun of the upper world. Gia is lying, Piper said. She intends to destroy the upper world, not give it to anyone. Keycrops bared his fangs. Then we will be no worse off than we were under the treacherous gods. He raised his staff, 
But Piper launched into another verse of summertime. The snake king's arms went limp. His eyes glassed over. Piper sang a few more lines. Then she risked another question. The giant's defenses, the underground passage to the Acropolis. How much of what you told us is true? All of it, Keycrop said. The Acropolis is heavily defended, just as I described. Any approach above ground would be impossible. So you could guide us through your tunnels, Piper said. That's also true. Keycrop's frowned. Yes. And if you ordered your people not to attack us, she said, they would obey. Yes, but Keycrop's shuddered. Yes, they would obey. Three of you at most could go without attracting the attention of the giants. Annabeth's eyes darkened. Piper, we'd be crazy to try it. He'll kill us at the first opportunity. Yes, the Snake King agreed. Only this girl's music controls me. I hate it. Please, sing some more. Piper gave him another verse. Leo got into the act. He picked up a couple of spoons and made them do high kicks on the tabletop until Hazel slapped his arm. I should go, Hazel said. If it's underground. Never, Keycrop said. A child of the underworld. My people would find your presence revolting. No charming music would keep them from slaying you. Hazel swallowed. Or I could stay here. Me and Percy, Annabeth suggested. Um, Percy raised his hand. Just gonna throw this out here again. That's exactly what Gia wants. You and me, our blood watering the stones, etc. I know. Annabeth's expression was grim. But it's the most logical choice. The oldest shrines on the Acropolis are dedicated to Poseidon and Athena. Keycrops, wouldn't that mask our approach? Yes, the Snake King admitted. Your, your scent would be difficult to discern. The ruins always radiate the power of those two gods. And me, Piper said at the end of her song. You'll need me to keep our friend here in line. Jason squeezed her hand. I still hate the idea of splitting up. But it's our best shot, Frank said. The three of them sneak in and disable the onagers, cause a distraction, then the rest of us fly in with ballisti blazing. Yes, Keycrop said. That plan could work, if I do not kill you first. I've got an idea, Annabeth said. Frank, Hazel, Leo, let's talk. Piper, can you keep our friend musically incapacitated? Piper started a different song, "Happy Trails," 
a silly tune her dad used to sing to her whenever they left Oklahoma to return to L.A. Annabeth, Leo, Frank, and Hazel left to talk strategy. Well? Percy rose and offered his hand to Jason. Until we meet again at the Acropolis, bro, I'll be the one killing giants. Chapter 42 Piper Piper's dad used to say that being in the airport didn't count as visiting a city. Piper felt the same way about sewers. From the port to the Acropolis, she didn't see anything of Athens except dark, putrid tunnels. The snake men led them through an iron storm grate at the docks, straight into their underground lair, which smelled of rotting fish, mold, and snakeskin. The atmosphere made it hard to sing about summertime and cotton and easy living, but Piper kept it up. If she stopped for longer than a minute or two, Keycrops and his guards started hissing and looking angry. I don't like this place, Annabeth murmured. Reminds me of when I was underneath Rome. Keycrops hissed with laughter. Our domain is much older. Much, much older. Annabeth slipped her hand into Percy's, which made Piper feel downhearted. She wished Jason were with her. Heck, she'd even settle for Leo. Though maybe she wouldn't have held his hand. Leo's hands tended to burst into flames when he was nervous. Piper's voice echoed through the tunnels. As they traveled farther into the lair, more snake people gathered to hear her. Soon, they had a procession following behind them, dozens of Gemini all swaying and slithering. Piper had lived up to her granddad's prediction. She had learned the Song of the Snakes, which turned out to be a George Gershwin number from 1935. So far, she had even kept the Snake King from biting, just like in the old Cherokee story. The only problem with that legend? The warrior who learned the snake song had to sacrifice his wife for the power. Piper didn't want to sacrifice anyone. The vial of physician's cure was still wrapped in its chamois cloth, tucked in her belt pouch. She hadn't had time to consult with Jason and Leo before she left. She just had to hope they would all be reunited on the hilltop before anyone needed the cure. If one of them died and she couldn't reach them, just keep singing, she told herself. They passed through crude stone chambers littered with bones. They climbed slopes so steep and slippery it was nearly impossible to keep their footing. At one point, they passed a warm cave the size of a gymnasium filled with snake eggs, their tops covered with a layer of silver filaments like slimy Christmas tinsel. More and more snake people joined their procession. Slithering behind her, they sounded like an army of football players shuffling with sandpaper on their cleats. Piper wondered how many Gemini lived down here. Hundreds, maybe thousands. She thought she heard her own heartbeat echoing through the corridors, getting louder and louder the deeper they went. Then she realized the persistent boom, ba boom was all around them, resonating through the stone in the air. I wake, a woman's voice 
as clear as Piper's singing. Annabeth froze. Oh, that's not good. It's like Tartarus, Percy said, his voice edgy. You remember? His heartbeat. When he appeared. Don't, Annabeth said. Just don't. Sorry. In the light of his sword, Percy's face was like a large firefly, a hovering, momentary smudge of brightness in the dark. The voice of Gia spoke again, louder. At last! Piper's singing wavered. Fear washed over her, as it had in the Spartan temple. But the gods Phobos and Deimos were old friends to her now. She let the fear burn inside her like fuel, making her voice even stronger. She sang for the snake people, for her friend's safety. Why not for Gia, too? Finally, they reached the top of a steep slope where the path ended in a curtain of green goo. Kecrops faced the demigods. Beyond this camouflage is the Acropolis. You must remain here. I will check that your way is clear. Wait! Piper turned to address the crowd of Gemini. There is only death above. You will be safer in the tunnels. Hurry back. Forget you saw us. Protect yourselves. The fear in her voice channeled perfectly with the charm speak. The snake people, even the guards, turned and slithered into the darkness, leaving only the king. Kecrops, Piper said. You're planning to betray us as soon as you step through that goo. Yes, he agreed. I will alert the giants. They will destroy you. Then he hissed. Why did I tell you that? Listen to the heartbeat of Gia, Piper urged. You can sense her rage, can't you? Kecrops wavered. The end of his staff glowed dimly. I can, yes. She is angry. She'll destroy everything, Piper said. She'll reduce the Acropolis to a smoking crater. Athens, your city, will be utterly destroyed, your people along with it. You believe me, don't you? I... I do. Whatever hatred you have for humans, for demigods, for Athena, we are the only chance to stop Gia. So you will not betray us. For your own sake and your people, you will scout the territory and make sure the way is clear. You will say nothing to the giants. Then you will return. That is what I'll do. Kecrops disappeared through the membrane of goo. Annabeth shook her head in amazement. Piper, that was incredible. We'll see if it works. Piper sat down on the cool stone floor. She figured she might as well rest while she could. The others squatted next to her. Percy handed her a canteen of water. Until she took a drink, Piper hadn't realized how dry her throat was. Thanks. Percy nodded. You think the charm will last? I'm not sure, she admitted. If Kecrops comes back in two minutes with an army of giants, 
then no. The heartbeat of Gia echoed through the floor. Strangely, it made Piper think of the sea, how the waves boomed along the cliffs of Santa Monica back home. She wondered what her father was doing right now. It would be the middle of the night in California. Maybe he was asleep or doing a late-night TV interview. Piper hoped he was in his favorite spot, the porch off the living room, watching the moon over the Pacific, enjoying some quiet time. Piper wanted to think he was happy and content right now, in case they failed. She thought about her friends in the Aphrodite cabin at Camp Half-Blood. She thought about her cousins in Oklahoma, which was odd, since she'd never spent much time with them. She didn't even know them very well. Now she was sorry about that. She wished she'd taken more advantage of her life, appreciated things more. She would always be grateful for her family aboard the Argo, too, but she had so many other friends and relatives she wished she could see one last time. Do you guys ever think about your families? She asked. It was a silly question, especially on the cusp of a battle. Piper should have been focused on their quest, not distracting her friends. But they didn't chide her. Percy's gaze became unfocused. His lower lip quivered. My mom, I haven't even seen her since Hera made me disappear. I called her from Alaska. I gave Coach Hedge some letters to deliver to her. I... His voice broke. She's all I've got. Her and my stepdad, Paul. And Tyson, Annabeth reminded him. And Grover. And... Yeah, of course, Percy said. Thanks. I feel much better. Piper probably shouldn't have laughed, but she was too full of nervousness and melancholy to hold it in. What about you, Annabeth? My dad. My stepmom and stepbrothers. She turned the dragon bone blade in her lap. After all I've been through in the past year... It seems stupid that I resented them for so long. And my dad's relatives. I haven't thought about them in years. I have an uncle and cousin in Boston. Percy looked shocked. You? With the Yankees cap? You've got family in Red Sox country? Annabeth smiled weakly. I never see them. My dad and my uncle don't get along. Some old rivalry, I don't know. It's stupid what keeps people apart. Piper nodded. She wished she had the healing powers of Asclepius. She wished she could look at people and see what was hurting them, then whip out her prescription pad and make everything better. But she guessed there was a reason Zeus kept Asclepius locked away in his underground temple. Some pain shouldn't be wished away so easily. It had to be dealt with, even embraced. Without the agony of the last few months, Piper never would have found her best friends, Hazel and Annabeth. She never would have discovered her own courage. She certainly wouldn't have had the guts to sing show tunes to the snake people under Athens. At the top of the tunnel, the green membrane rippled. Piper grabbed her sword and rose, prepared for a flood of monsters. But Keycrops emerged alone.
The way is clear, he said. But hurry, the ceremony is almost complete. Pushing through a curtain of mucus was almost as fun as Piper imagined. She emerged, feeling like she'd just rolled through a giant's nostril. Fortunately, none of the gunk stuck to her, but still, her skin tingled with revulsion. Percy, Annabeth, and she found themselves in a cool, damp pit that seemed to be the basement level of a temple. All around them, uneven ground stretched into darkness under a low ceiling of stone. Directly above their heads, a rectangular gap was open to the sky. Piper could see the edges of walls and the tops of columns, but no monsters. Yet. The camouflage membrane had closed behind them and blended into the ground. Piper pressed her hand against it. The area seemed to be solid rock. They wouldn't be leaving the way they'd come. Annabeth ran her hand along some marks on the ground, a jagged crow's foot shape as long as a human body. The area was lumpy and white, like stone scar tissue. This is the place, she said. Percy, these are the trident marks of Poseidon. Hesitantly, Percy touched the scars. He must have been using his extra, extra large trident. This is where he struck the earth, Annabeth said, where he made a saltwater spring appear when he had the contest with my mom to sponsor Athens. So this is where the rivalry started, Percy said. Yeah. Percy pulled Annabeth close and kissed her. Long enough for it to get really awkward for Piper, though she said nothing. She thought about the old rule of Aphrodite's cabin, that to be recognized as a daughter of the love goddess, you had to break someone's heart. Piper had long ago decided to change that rule. Percy and Annabeth were a perfect example of why. You should have to make someone's heart whole. That was a much better test. When Percy pulled away, Annabeth looked like a fish gasping for air. The rivalry ends here, Percy said. I love you, wise girl. Annabeth made a little sigh, like something in her ribcage had melted. Percy glanced at Piper. Sorry, I had to do that. Piper grinned. How could a daughter of Aphrodite not approve? You're a great boyfriend. Annabeth made another grunt whimper. Uh, anyway, we're beneath the Erechtheion. It's a temple to both Athena and Poseidon. The Parthenon should be catty-corner to the southeast. We'll need to sneak around the perimeter and disable as many siege weapons as we can, make an approach path for the Argo too. It's broad daylight, Piper said. How will we go unnoticed? Annabeth scanned the sky. That's why I made a plan with Frank and Hazel. Hopefully, uh, look. A bee zipped overhead. Dozens more followed. They swarmed around a column, then hovered over the opening of the pit. Say hi to Frank, everybody, Annabeth said. Piper waved. The cloud of bees zipped away. How does that even work? Percy said. Like, one bee is a finger?
two bees are his eyes? I don't know, Annabeth admitted, but he's our go-between. As soon as he gives Hazel the word, she will... Gah! Percy yelped. Annabeth clamped her hand over his mouth, which looked strange because suddenly each of them had turned into a hulking, six-armed earthborn. Hazel's missed. Piper's voice sounded deep and gravelly. She looked down and realized that she, too, now had a lovely Neanderthal body. Belly hair, loincloth, stubby legs, and oversized feet. If she concentrated, she could see her normal arms. But when she moved them, they rippled like mirages, separating into three different sets of muscular earthborn arms. Percy grimaced, which looked even worse on his newly uglified face. Wow, Annabeth, I'm really glad I kissed you before you changed. Thanks a lot, she said. We should get going. I'll move clockwise around the perimeter. Piper, you move counterclockwise. Percy, you scout the middle. Wait, Percy said. We're walking right into the whole blood-spilling sacrifice trap we've been warned about, and you want to split up even more? We'll cover more ground that way, Annabeth said. We have to hurry. That chanting. Piper hadn't noticed it until then, but now she heard it. An ominous drone in the distance, like a hundred forklifts idling. She looked at the ground and noticed bits of gravel trembling skittering southeast, as if pulled toward the Parthenon. Right, Piper said. We'll meet up at the giant's throne. At first, it was easy. Monsters were everywhere. Hundreds of ogres, earthborn, and cyclopes milling through the ruins. But most of them were gathered at the Parthenon, watching the ceremony in progress. Piper strolled along the cliffs of the Acropolis unchallenged. Near the first onager, three earthborn were sunning themselves on the rocks. Piper walked right up to them and smiled. Hello! Before they could make a sound, she cut them down with her sword. All three melted into slag heaps. She slashed the onager's spring cord to disable the weapon, then kept moving. She was committed now. She had to do as much damage as possible before the sabotage was discovered. She skirted a patrol of cyclopes. The second onager was surrounded by an encampment of tattooed Lestragonian ogres, but Piper managed to get to the machine without raising suspicion. She dropped a vial of Greek fire in the sling. With luck, as soon as they tried to load the catapult, it would explode in their faces. She kept moving. Griffins roosted on the colonnade of an old temple. A group of impusai had retreated into a shadowy archway and appeared to be slumbering, their fiery hair flickering dimly, their brass legs glinting. Hopefully, the sunlight would make them sluggish if they had to fight. Whenever she could, Piper slew isolated monsters. She walked past larger groups. Meanwhile, the crowd at the Parthenon grew larger. The chanting got louder. Piper couldn't see what was happening inside the ruins, just the heads of twenty or thirty giants standing in a circle, mumbling and swaying, maybe doing the evil monster version of Kumbaya.
She disabled a third siege weapon by sawing through the torsion ropes, which should give the Argo II a clear approach from the north. She hoped Frank was watching her progress. She wondered how long it would take for the ship to arrive. Suddenly, the chanting stopped. A boom echoed across the hillside. In the Parthenon, the giants roared in triumph. All around Piper, monsters surged toward the sound of celebration. That couldn't be good. Piper blended into a crowd of sour-smelling earthborn. She bounded up the main steps of the temple, then climbed a section of metal scaffolding so she could see above the heads of the ogres and cyclopes. The scene in the ruins almost made her cry aloud. Before Porphyrion's throne, dozens of giants stood in a loose ring, hollering and shaking their weapons as two of their number paraded around the circle, showing off their prizes. The princess Paraboya held Annabeth by the neck like a feral cat. The giant Enceladus had Percy wrapped in his massive fist. Annabeth and Percy both struggled helplessly. Their captors displayed them to the cheering horde of monsters, then turned to face King Porphyrion, who sat in his makeshift throne, his white eyes gleaming with malice. Right on time, the giant king bellowed. The blood of Olympus to raise the Earth Mother. Chapter 43 Piper Piper watched in horror as the giant king rose to his full height, almost as tall as the temple columns. His face looked just as Piper remembered green as bile, with a twisted sneer, his seaweed-colored hair braided with swords and axes taken from dead demigods. He loomed over the captives, watching them wriggle. They arrived just as you foresaw, Enceladus. Well done. Piper's old enemy bowed his head, braided bones clattering in his dreadlocks. It was simple, my king. The flame designs gleamed on his armor. His spear burned with purplish fire. He only needed one hand to hold his captive. Despite all of Percy Jackson's power, despite everything he had survived, in the end he was helpless against the sheer strength of the giant and the inevitability of the prophecy. I knew these two would lead the assault. Enceladus continued. I understand how they think. Athena and Poseidon. They were just like these children. They both came here thinking to claim this city. Their arrogance has undone them. Over the roar of the crowd, Piper could barely hear herself think. But she replayed Enceladus's words. These two would lead the assault. Her heart raced. The giants had expected Percy and Annabeth. They didn't expect her. For once, being Piper McLean, the daughter of Aphrodite, the one nobody took seriously, might play to her advantage. Annabeth tried to say something, but the giantess Paraboya shook her by the neck. Shut up! None of your silver-tongued trickery! The princess drew a hunting knife as long as Piper's sword. Let me do the honors, father, 
Wait, daughter. The king stepped back. The sacrifice must be done properly. Thun, destroyer of the fates, come forward. The wizened gray giant shuffled into sight, holding an oversized meat cleaver. He fixed his milky eyes on Annabeth. Percy shouted. At the other end of the Acropolis, a hundred yards away, a geyser of water shot into the sky. King Porphyrion laughed. You'll have to do better than that, son of Poseidon. The earth is too powerful here. Even your father wouldn't be able to summon more than a salty spring. But never fear. The only liquid we require from you is your blood. Piper scanned the sky desperately. Where was the Argo too? Thune knelt and touched the blade of his cleaver reverently against the earth. Mother Gia. His voice was impossibly deep, shaking the ruins, making the metal scaffold resonate under Piper's feet. In ancient times, blood mixed with your soil to create life. Now, let the blood of these demigods return the favor. We bring you to full wakefulness. We greet you as our eternal mistress. Without thinking, Piper leaped from the scaffolding. She sailed over the heads of the Cyclopes and Ogres, landed in the center of the courtyard, and pushed her way into the circle of the giants. As Thune rose to use his cleaver, Piper slashed upward with her sword. She took off Thune's hand at the wrist. The old giant wailed. The cleaver and severed hand lay in the dust at Piper's feet. She felt her mist disguise burn away until she was just Piper again. One girl in the midst of an army of giants. Her jagged bronze blade like a toothpick compared to their massive weapons. What is this? Porphyrion thundered. How dare this weak, useless creature interrupt? Piper followed her gut. She attacked. Piper's advantages. She was small, she was quick, and she was absolutely insane. She drew her knife Catoptris and threw it at Enceladus, hoping she wouldn't hit Percy by accident. She veered aside without witnessing the results, but judging from the giant's painful howl, she'd aimed well. Several giants ran at her at once. Piper dodged between their legs and let them bash their heads together. She wove through the crowd, jabbing her sword into dragon-scale feet at every opportunity and yelling, Run! Run away! to sow confusion. No! Stop her! Porphyrian shouted. Kill her! A spear almost impaled her. Piper swerved and kept running. It's just like capture the flag, she told herself. Only the enemy team is all thirty feet tall. A huge sword sliced across her path. Compared to her sparring practice with Hazel, the strike was ridiculously slow. Piper leaped over the blade and zigzagged toward Annabeth, who was still kicking and writhing in Paraboya's grip. Piper had to free her friend. Unfortunately, the giantess seemed to anticipate her plan. I think not, demigod, 
Paraboya yelled. This one bleeds! The giantess raised her knife. Piper screamed in charmspeak, Miss! At the same time, Annabeth kicked up with her legs to make herself a smaller target. Paraboya's knife passed beneath Annabeth's legs and stabbed the giantess's own palm. Ow! Paraboya dropped Annabeth, alive but not unscathed. The dagger had sliced a nasty gash across the back of her thigh. As Annabeth rolled away, her blood soaked into the earth. The blood of Olympus, Piper thought with dread. But she couldn't do anything about that. She had to help Annabeth. Piper lunged at the giantess. Her jagged blade suddenly felt ice cold in her hands. The surprised giantess glanced down as the sword of the Boread pierced her gut. Frost spread across her bronze breastplate. Piper yanked out her sword. The giantess toppled backward, steaming white and frozen solid. Paraboya hit the ground with a thud. My daughter! King Porphyrion leveled his spear and charged, but Percy had other ideas. Enceladus had dropped him, probably because the giant was busy staggering around with Piper's knife embedded in his forehead, ichor streaming into his eyes. Percy had no weapon. Perhaps his sword had been confiscated or lost in the fighting, but he didn't let that stop him. As the giant king ran toward Piper, Percy grabbed the tip of Porphyrion's spear and forced it down into the ground. The giant's own momentum lifted him off his feet in an unintentional pole vault maneuver, and he flipped over on his back. Meanwhile, Annabeth dragged herself across the dirt. Piper ran to her side. She stood over her friend, sweeping her blade back and forth to keep the giants at bay. Cold blue steam now wreathed her blade. Who wants to be the next popsicle? She yelled, channeling anger into her charm speak. Who wants to go back to Tartarus? That seemed to hit a nerve. The giants shuffled uneasily, glancing at the frozen body of Paraboya. And why shouldn't Piper intimidate them? Aphrodite was the most ancient Olympian, born of the sea in the blood of Oranos. She was older than Poseidon or Athena or even Zeus, and Piper was her daughter. More than that, she was a Maclean. Her father had come from nothing. Now he was known all over the world. The Macleans didn't retreat. Like all Cherokee, they knew how to endure suffering, keep their pride, and when necessary, fight back. This was the time to fight back. Forty feet away, Percy bent over the giant king, trying to yank a sword from the braids of his hair, but Porphyrion wasn't as stunned as he let on. Fools! Porphyrion backhanded Percy like a pesky fly. The son of Poseidon flew into a column with a sickening crunch. Porphyrion rose. These demigods cannot kill us. They do not have the help of the gods. Remember who you are. The giants closed in. A dozen spears were pointed at Piper's chest. Annabeth struggled to her feet. She retrieved Paraboya's hunting knife, but she could barely stand upright, much less fight. Each time a drop of her blood hit the ground, it bubbled, turning from red to gold. 
Percy tried to stand, but he was obviously dazed. He wouldn't be able to defend himself. Piper's only choice was to keep the giants focused on her. Come on, then, she yelled. I'll destroy you all myself if I have to. A metallic smell of storm filled the air. All the hairs on Piper's arms stood up. The thing is, said a voice from above, you don't have to. Piper's heart could have floated out of her body. At the top of the nearest colonnade stood Jason, his sword gleaming gold in the sun. Frank stood at his side, his bow ready. Hazel sat astride Orion, who reared and whinnied in challenge. With a deafening blast, a white-hot bolt arced from the sky, straight through Jason's body as he leaped, wreathed in lightning, at the giant king. Chapter 44 Piper For the next three minutes, life was great. So much happened at once that only an ADHD demigod could have kept track. Jason fell on King Porphyrion with such force that the giant crumpled to his knees, blasted with lightning and stabbed in the neck with a golden gladius. Frank unleashed a hail of arrows, driving back the giants nearest to Percy. The Argo II rose above the ruins, and all the ballistae and catapults fired simultaneously. Leo must have programmed the weapons with surgical precision. A wall of Greek fire roared upward all around the Parthenon. It didn't touch the interior, but in a flash, most of the smaller monsters around it were incinerated. Leo's voice boomed over the loudspeaker. Surrender! You are surrounded by one spanking hot war machine! The giant Enceladus howled in outrage. Valdez! What's up, enchiladas? Leo's voice roared back. Nice dagger in your forehead. Gah! The giant pulled Catoptris out of his head. Monsters! Destroy that ship! The remaining forces tried their best. A flock of griffins rose to attack. Festus the figurehead blew flames and charbroiled them out of the sky. A few earthborn launched a volley of rocks, but from the sides of the hall, a dozen Archimedes spheres sprayed out, intercepting the boulders and blasting them to dust. Put some clothes on, Buford ordered. Hazel spurred Orion off the colonnade, and they leaped into battle. The forty-foot fall would have broken any other horse's legs, but Orion hit the ground running. Hazel zipped from giant to giant, stinging them with the blade of her spatha. With extremely bad timing, Keycrops and his snake people chose that moment to join the fight. In four or five places around the ruins, the ground turned to green goo, and armed Gemini burst forth. Keycrops himself in the lead. Kill the demigods, he hissed. Kill the tricksters! Before many of his warriors could follow, Hazel pointed her blade at the nearest tunnel. The ground rumbled. All the gooey membranes popped, and the tunnels collapsed, billowing plumes of dust. Keycrops looked around at his army, now reduced to six guys. Slither away, he ordered. Frank's arrows cut them down as they tried to retreat. The giantess Paraboya had thawed with alarming speed.
She tried to grab Annabeth, but despite her bad leg, Annabeth was holding her own. She stabbed the giantess with her own hunting knife and led her in a deadly game of tag around the throne. Percy was back on his feet, riptide once again in his hands. He still looked dazed. His nose was bleeding, but he seemed to be holding his own against the old giant Thune, who had somehow reattached his hand and found his meat cleaver. Piper stood back to back with Jason, fighting every giant who dared to come close. For a moment, she felt elated. They were actually winning. But too soon, their element of surprise faded. The giants overcame their confusion. Frank ran out of arrows. He changed into a rhinoceros and leaped into battle. But as fast as he could knock down the giants, they got up again. Their wounds seemed to be healing faster. Annabeth lost ground against Paraboya. Hazel was knocked out of her saddle at 60 miles an hour. Jason summoned another lightning strike, but this time Porphyrion simply deflected it off the tip of his spear. The giants were bigger, stronger, and more numerous. They couldn't be killed without the help of the gods, and they didn't seem to be tiring. The six demigods were forced into a defensive ring. Another volley of earth-born rocks hit the Argo too. This time... Leo couldn't return fire fast enough. Rows of oars were sheared off. The ship shuddered and tilted in the sky. Then Enceladus threw his fiery spear. It pierced the ship's hull and exploded inside, sending spouts of fire through the oar openings. An ominous black cloud billowed from the deck. The Argo, too, began to sink. Leo! Jason cried. Porphyrian laughed. You demigods have learned nothing. There are no gods to aid you. We need only one more thing from you to make our victory complete. The giant king smiled expectantly. He seemed to be looking at Percy Jackson. Piper glanced over. Percy's nose was still bleeding. He seemed unaware that a trickle of blood had made its way down his face to the end of his chin. Percy, look out! Piper tried to say, but for once, her voice failed her. A single drop of blood fell from his chin. It hit the ground between his feet and sizzled like water on a frying pan. The blood of Olympus watered the ancient stones. The Acropolis groaned and shifted as the Earth Mother woke. Chapter 45 Nico. About five miles east of camp, a black SUV was parked on the beach. They tied up the boat at a private dock. Nico helped Dakota and Layla haul Michael Kahale ashore. The big guy was still only half conscious mumbling what Nico assumed were football calls. Red 12, right 31, hike. Then he giggled uncontrollably. We'll leave him here, Layla said. Just don't bind him, poor guy. What about the car? Dakota asked. The keys are in the glove compartment, but uh, can you drive? Layla frowned. I thought you could drive. Aren't you 17? I never learned, Dakota said. I was busy. I've got it covered, Nico promised. 
They both looked at him. You're like fourteen, Layla said. Nico enjoyed how nervous the Romans acted around him, even though they were older and bigger and more experienced fighters. I didn't say I would be behind the wheel. He knelt and placed his hand on the ground. He felt the nearest graves, the bones of forgotten humans buried and scattered. He searched deeper, extending his senses into the underworld. Jules Albert, let's go. The ground split. A zombie in a ragged 19th century motoring outfit clawed his way to the surface. Layla stepped back. Dakota screamed like a kindergartner. What is that, man? Dakota protested. This is my driver, Nico said. Jules Albert finished first in the Paris-Rouen motor car race back in 1895, but he wasn't awarded the prize because his steam car used a stoker. Layla stared at him. What are you even talking about? He's a restless soul, always looking for another chance to drive, Nico said. The last few years, he's been my driver whenever I needed one. You have a zombie chauffeur, Layla said. I call shotgun. Nico got in on the passenger's side. Reluctantly, the Romans climbed in back. One thing about Jules Albert, he never got emotional. He could sit in crosstown traffic all day without losing his patience. He was immune to road rage. He could even drive straight up to an encampment of wild centaurs and navigate through them without getting nervous. The centaurs were like nothing Nico had ever seen. They had back ends like palominos, tattoos all over their hairy arms and chests, and bullish horns protruding from their foreheads. Nico doubted they could blend in with humans as easily as Chiron did. At least two hundred were sparring restlessly with swords and spears, or roasting animal carcasses over open fires. Carnivorous centaurs. The idea made Nico shudder. Their camp spilled across the farm road that meandered around Camp Half-Blood's southeast perimeter. The SUV nudged its way through, honking when necessary. Occasionally, a centaur glared through the driver's side window, saw the zombie driver, and backed away in shock. Pluto's pauldrons, Dakota muttered. Even more centaurs arrived overnight. Don't make eye contact, Layla warned. They take that as a challenge for a duel to the death. Nico stared straight ahead as the SUV pushed through. His heart was pounding, but he wasn't scared. He was angry. Octavian had surrounded Camp Half-Blood with monsters. Sure, Nico had mixed emotions about the camp. He'd felt rejected there, out of place, unwanted and unloved. But now that it was on the verge of destruction, he realized how much it meant to him. This was the last place Bianca and he had shared as a home, the only place they'd ever felt safe, even if only temporarily. They rounded a bend in the road and Nico's fists clenched. More monsters. Hundreds more. Dog-headed men prowled in packs, their poleaxes gleaming in the light of campfires. Beyond that milled a tribe of two-headed men dressed in rags and blankets like homeless guys, armed with a haphazard collection of slings, clubs, and metal pipes. Octavian is an idiot, 
Nico hissed. He thinks he can control these creatures? They just kept showing up, Layla said. Before we knew it, well, look. The Legion was arrayed at the base of Half-Blood Hill, its five cohorts in perfect order, its standards bright and proud. Giant eagles circled overhead. The siege weapons, six golden onagers the size of houses, were arrayed behind in a loose semicircle, three on each flank. But for all its impressive discipline, the Twelfth Legion looked pitifully small, a splotch of demigod valor in a sea of ravenous monsters. Nico wished he still had the scepter of Diocletian, but he doubted a legion of dead warriors would make a dent in this army. Even the Argo too couldn't do much against this kind of strength. I have to disable the onagers, Nico said. We don't have much time. You'll never get close to them, Layla warned. Even if we get the entire fourth and fifth cohorts to follow us, the other cohorts will try to stop us. And those siege weapons are manned by Octavian's most loyal followers. We won't get close by force, Nico agreed. But alone, I can do it. Dakota, Layla, Jules Albert will drive you to the Legion lines. Get out, talk to your troops, convince them to follow your lead. I'll need a distraction. Dakota frowned. All right, but I'm not hurting any of my fellow Legionnaires. No one's asking you to, Nico growled. But if we don't stop this war, the entire Legion will be wiped out. You said the monster tribes take insult easily? Yes, Dakota said. I mean, for instance, you make any comment to those two-headed guys about the way they smell and... Oh, he grinned. If we started a brawl... By accident, of course. I'll be counting on you. Nico said. Layla frowned. But how will you... I'm going dark, Nico said, and he faded into the shadows. He thought he was prepared. He wasn't. Even after three days of rest and the wondrous healing properties of Coach Hedge's gooey brown gunk, Nico started to dissolve the moment he shadow-jumped. His limbs turned to vapor. Cold seeped into his chest. Voices of spirits whispered in his ears. Help us. Remember us. Join us. He hadn't realized how much he had relied on Reyna. Without her strength, he felt as weak as a newborn colt, wobbling dangerously, ready to fall at every step. No, he told himself. I am Nico D'Angelo, son of Hades. I control the shadows. They do not control me. He stumbled back into the mortal world at the crest of Half-Blood Hill. He fell to his knees, hugging Thalia's pine tree for support. The golden fleece was no longer in its branches. The guardian dragon was gone. Perhaps they'd been moved to a safer spot with the battle so close. Nico wasn't sure. But looking down at the Roman forces arrayed outside the valley, his spirits wavered. The nearest onager was a hundred yards downhill, encircled in spiked trenches and guarded by a dozen demigods. The machine was primed, ready to fire. Its huge sling cupped a projectile the size of a Honda Civic, glowing with flecks of gold. 
With icy certainty, Nico realized what Octavian was up to. The projectile was a mixture of incendiaries and imperial gold. Even a small amount of imperial gold could be incredibly volatile. Exposed to too much heat or pressure, the stuff would explode with devastating impact. And of course, it was deadly to demigods as well as monsters. If that onager scored a hit on Camp Half-Blood, anything in the blast zone would be annihilated, vaporized by the heat, or disintegrated by the shrapnel. And the Romans had six onagers, all stocked with piles of ammunition. Evil, Nico said. This is evil. He tried to think. Dawn was breaking. He couldn't possibly take down all six weapons before the attack began, even if he found the strength to shadow travel that many times. If he managed it once more, it would be a miracle. He spotted the Roman command tent. Behind and to the left of the legion. Octavian would probably be there, enjoying breakfast at a safe distance from the fighting. He wouldn't lead his troops into battle. The little scumbag would hope to destroy the Greek camp from a distance, wait for the flames to die down, then march in unopposed. Nico's throat constricted with hate. He concentrated on that tent, envisioning his next jump. If he could assassinate Octavian, that might solve the problem. The order to attack might never be given. Nico was about to attempt it when a voice behind him said, Nico? He spun, his sword instantly in his hand, and almost decapitated Will Solace. Put that down, Will hissed. What are you doing here? Nico was dumbstruck. Will and two other campers were crouched in the grass, binoculars around their necks and daggers at their side. They wore black jeans and t-shirts, with black grease paint on their faces like commandos. Me? Nico asked. What are you doing? Getting yourselves killed? Will scowled. Hey, we're scouting the enemy. We took precautions. You dressed in black, Nico noted. With the sun coming up, you painted your face but didn't cover that mop of blonde hair. You might as well be waving a yellow flag. Will's ears reddened. Llewellyn wrapped some mist around us, too. Hi. The girl next to him wriggled her fingers. She looked a little flustered. You're Nico, right? I've heard a lot about you. And this is Cecil from Hermes' cabin. Nico knelt next to them. Did Coach Hedge make it to camp? Llewellyn giggled nervously. Did he ever? Will elbowed her. Yeah, Hedge is fine. He made it just in time for his baby's birth. The baby! Nico grinned, which hurt his face muscles. He wasn't used to making that expression. Melly and the kid are all right? Fine. A very cute little satyr boy. Will shuddered. But I delivered it. Have you ever delivered a baby? Um, no. I had to get some fresh air. That's why I volunteered for this mission. Gods of Olympus, my hands are still shaking. See? He took Nico's hand, which sent an electric current down Nico's spine. He quickly withdrew. Whatever, he snapped. We don't have time for chit-chat. The Romans are attacking at dawn, and I've got to... We know, Will said. 
But if you're planning to shadow travel to that command tent, forget it. Nico glared at him. Excuse me? He expected Will to flinch or look away. Most people did. But Will's blue eyes stayed fixed on his, annoyingly determined. Coach Hedge told me all about your shadow travel. You can't try that again. I just did try it again, Solace. I'm fine. No, you're not. I'm a healer. I could feel the darkness in your hand as soon as I touched it. Even if you made it to that tent, you'd be in no shape to fight. But you wouldn't make it. One more slip and you won't come back. You are not shadow traveling. Doctor's orders. The camp is about to be destroyed. And we'll stop the Romans, Will said. But we'll do it our way. Llewellyn will control the mist. We'll sneak around, do as much damage as we can to those onagers. But no shadow travel. But no. Llewellyn's and Cecil's heads swiveled back and forth like they were watching a really intense tennis match. Nico sighed in exasperation. He hated working with other people. They were always cramping his style, making him uncomfortable. And Will Solace? Nico revised his impression of the son of Apollo. He'd always thought of Will as easygoing and laid back. Apparently, he could also be stubborn and aggravating. Nico gazed down at Camp Half-Blood, where the rest of the Greeks were preparing for war. Past the troops and Ballisti, the canoe lake glittered pink in the first light of dawn. Nico remembered the first time he'd arrived at Camp Half-Blood, crashed landing in Apollo's sun car, which had been converted into a fiery school bus. He remembered Apollo, smiling and tan and completely cool in his shades. Thalia had said, He's hot. He's the sun god, Percy replied. That's not what I meant. Why was Nico thinking about that now? The random memory irritated him made him feel jittery. He had arrived at Camp Half-Blood thanks to Apollo. Now, on what was likely to be his last day at camp, he was stuck with a son of Apollo. Whatever, Nico said. But we have to hurry, and you'll follow my lead. Fine, Will said. Just don't ask me to deliver any more Seder babies, and we'll get along great. Chapter 46. Nico. They made it to the first onager just as chaos broke loose in the Legion. On the far end of the line, cries went up from the fifth cohort. Legionnaires scattered and dropped their pilla. A dozen centaurs barreled through the ranks, yelling and waving their clubs, followed by a horde of two-headed men banging on trash can lids. What's going on down there? Llewellyn asked. That's my distraction, Nico said. Come on. All the guards had clustered on the right side of the onager, trying to see what was going on down the ranks, which gave Nico and his comrades a clear shot to the left. They passed within a few feet of the nearest Roman, but the legionnaire didn't notice them. Llewellyn's mist magic seemed to be working. They jumped the spiked trench and reached the machine. I brought some Greek fire. Cecil whispered. No, Nico said. If we make the damage too obvious, we'll never get to the other ones in time. Can you recalibrate the aim? Like, 
toward the other onagers' firing lines? Cecil grinned. Oh, I like the way you think. They sent me because I excel at messing things up. He went to work while Nico and the others stood guard. Meanwhile, the fifth cohort was brawling with the two-headed men. The fourth cohort moved in to help. The other three cohorts held their positions, but the officers were having trouble keeping order. All right, Cecil announced. Let's move. They shuffled across the hillside toward the next onager. This time, the mist didn't work so well. One of the onager guards yelled, Hey! Got this! Will sprinted off, which was possibly the stupidest diversion Nico could imagine, and six of the guards chased after him. The other Romans advanced on Nico, but Llewellyn appeared out of the mist and yelled, Hey, catch! She lobbed a white ball the size of an apple. The Roman in the middle caught it instinctively. A twenty-foot sphere of powder exploded outward. When the dust settled, all six Romans were squealing pink piglets. Nice work, Nico said. Llewellyn blushed. Well, it's the only pig ball I have, so don't ask for an encore. And, uh, Cecil pointed. Somebody better help Will. Even in their armor, the Romans were starting to gain on solace. Nico cursed and raced after them. He didn't want to kill other demigods if he could avoid it. Fortunately, he didn't need to. He tripped the Roman in the back and the others turned. Nico jumped into the crowd, kicking groins, smacking faces with the flat of his blade, bashing helmets with his pommel. In ten seconds, the Romans all lay groaning and dazed on the ground. Will punched his shoulder. Thanks for the assist. Six at once isn't bad. Not bad, Nico glared at him. Next time, I'll just let them run you down, Solace. Ah, they'd never catch me. Cecil waved at them from the onager, signaling that his job was done. They all moved toward the third siege machine. In the Legion ranks, everything was still in chaos, but the officers were starting to reassert control. The fifth and fourth cohorts regrouped while the second and third acted as riot police, shoving centaurs and cynocephaly and two-headed men back into their respective camps. The first cohort stood closest to the onager, a little too close for Nico's comfort, but they seemed occupied by a couple of officers parading in front of them, shouting orders. Nico hoped they could sneak up on the third siege machine, one more onager redirected and they might stand a chance. Unfortunately, the guards spotted them from twenty yards away. One yelled, There! Llewellyn cursed. They're expecting an attack now. The mist doesn't work well against alert enemies. Do we run? No, Nico said. Let's give them what they expect. He spread his hands. In front of the Romans, the ground erupted. Five skeletons clawed out of the earth. Cecil and Llewellyn charged in to help. Nico tried to follow, but he would have fallen on his face if Will hadn't caught him. You idiot! Will put an arm around him. I told you no more of that underworld magic. I'm fine. Shut up, you're not. From his pocket, Will dug out a pack of gum. Nico wanted to pull away. He hated physical contact but Will was a lot stronger than he looked. 
Nico found himself leaning against him, relying on his support. Take this, Will said. You want me to chew gum? It's medicinal. Should keep you alive and alert for a few more hours. Nico shoved a stick of gum into his mouth. Tastes like tar and dirt. Stop complaining. Hey! Cecil limped over, looking like he'd pulled a muscle. You guys kind of missed the fight. Llewellyn followed, grinning. Behind them, all the Roman guards were tangled in a weird assortment of ropes and bones. Thanks for the skeletons, she said. Great trick. Which he won't be doing again, Will said. Nico realized he was still leaning against Will. He pushed him away and stood on his own two feet. I'll do what I need to. Will rolled his eyes. Fine, death boy, if you want to get yourself killed. Do not call me death boy. Llewellyn cleared her throat. Um, guys? Drop your weapons! Nico turned. The fight at the third onager had not gone unnoticed. The entire first cohort was advancing on them, spears leveled, shields locked. In front of them marched Octavian, purple robes over his armor, imperial gold jewelry glittering on his neck and arms, and a crown of laurels on his head as if he'd already won the battle. Next to him was the legion's standard bearer, Jacob, holding the golden eagle, and six huge cynocephaly, their canine teeth bared, their swords glowing red. Well, Octavian snarled, Greekus saboteurs. He turned to his dog-headed warriors. Tear them apart. Chapter 47 Nico Nico wasn't sure whether to kick himself or Will Solace. If he hadn't been so distracted bickering with the son of Apollo, he would never have allowed the enemy to get so close. As the dog-headed men barreled forward, Nico raised his sword. He doubted he had the strength left to win, but before he could attack them, Will let out a piercing taxicab whistle. All six dogmen dropped their weapons, grabbed their ears, and fell down in agony. Dude! Cecil opened his mouth to pop his ears. What the actual Hades? A little warning next time. It's even worse for the dogs. Will shrugged. One of my few musical talents. I do a really awful ultrasonic whistle. Nico didn't complain. He waded through the dogmen, jabbing them with his sword. They dissolved into shadows. Octavian and the other Romans seemed too stunned to react. My, my elite guard! Octavian looked around for sympathy. Did you see what he did to my elite guard? Some dogs need to be put down. Nico took a step forward. Like you. For one beautiful moment, the entire first cohort wavered. Then they remembered themselves and leveled their pilla. You will be destroyed, Octavian shrieked. You Greek eyes sneak around, sabotaging our weapons, attacking our men. You mean the weapons you were about to fire at us, Cecil asked. And the men who were about to burn our camp to ashes, added Llewellyn. Just like a Greek, 
Octavian yelled, trying to twist things around. Well, it won't work. He pointed to the nearest legionnaires. You, 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 and you. Check all the onagers. Make sure they're operational. I want them fired simultaneously as soon as possible. Go. The four Romans ran. Nico tried to keep his expression neutral. Please don't check the firing trajectory, he thought. He hoped Cecil had done his work well. It was one thing to screw up a huge weapon. It was another thing to screw it up so subtly that no one noticed until it was too late. But if anyone had that skill, it would be a child of Hermes, god of trickery. Octavian marched up to Nico. To his credit, the augur didn't seem afraid, though his only weapon was a dagger. He stopped so close, Nico could see the bloodshot veins in his pale, watery eyes. His face was gaunt. His hair was the color of overcooked spaghetti. Nico knew Octavian was a legacy, a descendant of Apollo many generations removed. Now, he couldn't help thinking that Octavian looked like a watered-down, unhealthy version of Will Solace, like a photo that had been copied too many times. Whatever made a child of Apollo special, Octavian didn't have it. Tell me, son of Pluto, the auger hissed, why are you helping the Greeks? What have they ever done for you? Nico was itching to stab Octavian in the chest. He'd been dreaming of that ever since Bryce Lawrence had attacked them in South Carolina. But now that they were face to face, Nico hesitated. He had no doubt he could kill Octavian before the first cohort intervened. Nor did Nico particularly care if he died for his actions. The trade-off would be worth it. But after what happened with Bryce, the idea of cutting down another demigod in cold blood, even Octavian didn't sit well. Nor did it seem right to sentence Cecil, Llewellyn, and Will to die with him. It doesn't seem right, another part of him wondered. Since when do I worry about what's right? I'm helping the Greeks and the Romans, Nico said. Octavian laughed. Don't try to con me. What have they offered you? A place in their camp? They won't honor their agreement. I don't want a place in their camp, Nico snarled. Or in yours. When this war is over, I'm leaving both camps for good. Will Solace made a sound like he'd been punched. Why would you do that? Nico scowled. It's none of your business, but I don't belong. That's obvious. No one wants me. I'm a child of... Oh, please. Will sounded unusually angry. Nobody at Camp Half-Blood ever pushed you away. You have friends, or at least people who would like to be your friend. You pushed yourself away. If you'd get your head out of that brooding cloud of yours for once... Enough! Octavian snapped. D'Angelo, I can beat any offer the Greeks could make. I always thought you would make a powerful ally. I see the ruthlessness in you, and I appreciate that. I can assure you a place in New Rome. All you have to do is step aside and allow the Romans to win. The god Apollo has shown me the future. No! Will Solace shoved Nico out of the way and got in Octavian's face. 
I am a son of Apollo, you anemic loser. My father hasn't shown anyone the future because the power of prophecy isn't working. But this... He waved loosely at the assembled legion, the hordes of monstrous armies spread across the hillside. This is not what Apollo would want. Octavian's lip curled. You lie! The god told me personally that I would be remembered as the savior of Rome. I will lead the legion to victory, and I will start by... Nico felt the sound before he heard it. Thunk, 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 reverberating through the earth like the massive gears of a drawbridge. All the onagers fired at once, and six golden comets billowed into the sky. By destroying the Greeks, Octavian cried with glee, the days of Camp Half-Blood are over. Nico couldn't think of anything more beautiful than an off-course projectile, at least not today. From the three sabotaged machines, the payloads veered sideways, arcing toward the barrage from the other three onagers. The fireballs didn't collide directly. They didn't need to. As soon as the missiles got close to one another, all six warheads detonated in mid-air, spraying a dome of gold and fire that sucked the oxygen right out of the sky. The heat stung Nico's face. The grass hissed. The tops of the trees steamed. But when the fireworks faded, no serious damage had been done. Octavian reacted first. He stomped his feet and yelled, No! No, no! Reload! No one in the first cohort moved. Nico heard the tromping of boots to his right. The fifth cohort was marching toward them double time, Dakota in the lead. Further downhill, the rest of the legion was trying to form up, but the second, third, and fourth cohorts were now surrounded by a sea of ill-tempered monstrous allies. The auxilia forces didn't look happy about the explosion overhead. No doubt they'd been waiting for Camp Half-Blood to go up in flames, so they'd get charbroiled demigod for breakfast. Octavian, Dakota called. We have new orders. Octavian's left eye twitched so violently it looked like it might explode. Orders? From whom? Not from me! From Reyna, Dakota said, loud enough to make sure everyone in the first cohort could hear. She's ordered us to stand down. Reyna? Octavian laughed, though no one seemed to get the joke. You mean the outlaw I sent you to arrest? The ex-preter who conspired to betray her own people with this Greekus? He jabbed his finger in Nico's chest. You're taking orders from her! The fifth cohort formed up behind their centurion, uneasily facing their comrades in the first. Dakota crossed his arms stubbornly. Reyna is the preter until voted otherwise by the Senate. This is war! Octavian yelled. I've brought you to the brink of ultimate victory and you want to give up? First cohort, arrest Centurion Dakota and any who stand with him. Fifth cohort, remember your vows to Rome and the Legion. You will obey me. Will Solace shook his head. Don't do this, Octavian. Don't force your people to choose. This is your last chance. 
My last chance? Octavian grinned, madness glinting in his eyes. I will save Rome. Now, Romans, follow my orders. Arrest Dakota. Destroy these Greekish scum. And reload those onagers. What the Romans would have done, left to their own devices, Nico didn't know. But he hadn't counted on the Greeks. At that moment, the entire army of Camp Half-Blood appeared at the crest of Half-Blood Hill. Clarice LaRue rode in the lead, on a red war chariot pulled by metal horses. A hundred demigods fanned out around her, with twice that many satyrs and nature spirits led by Grover Underwood. Tyson lumbered forward with six other cyclopes. Chiron stood in full white stallion mode, his bow drawn. It was an impressive sight, but all Nico could think was, No, not now. Clarice yelled, Romans, you have fired on our camp. Withdraw or be destroyed. Octavian wheeled on his troops. You see, it was a trick. They divided us so they could launch a surprise attack. Legion, cuneum formate. Charge! Chapter 48. Nico. Nico wanted to yell, Time out! Hold it! Freeze! But he knew it wouldn't do any good. After weeks of waiting, agonizing, and steaming, the Greeks and Romans wanted blood. Trying to stop the battle now would be like trying to push back a flood after the dam broke. Will Solace saved the day. He put his fingers in his mouth and did a taxicab whistle even more horrible than the last. Several Greeks dropped their swords. A ripple went through the Roman line like the entire first cohort was shuddering. Don't be stupid, Will yelled. Look! He pointed to the north, and Nico grinned from ear to ear. He decided there was something more beautiful than an off-course projectile the Athena Parthenos gleaming in the sunrise, flying in from the coast, suspended from the tethers of six-winged horses. Roman eagles circled but did not attack. A few of them even swooped in, grabbed the cables, and helped carry the statue. Nico didn't see Blackjack, which worried him, but Reina Ramirez Ariano rode on Guido's back. Her sword was held high, her purple cloak glittered strangely, catching the sunlight. Both armies stared, dumbfounded, as the forty-foot-tall gold and ivory statue came in for a landing. Greek demigods! Reina's voice boomed as if projected from the statue itself, like the Athena Parthenos had become a stack of concert speakers. Behold your most sacred statue, the Athena Parthenos! wrongly taken by the Romans. I return it to you now as a gesture of peace. The statue settled on the crest of the hill, about twenty feet away from Thalia's pine tree. Instantly, gold light rippled across the ground, into the valley of Camp Half-Blood, and down the opposite side through the Roman ranks. Warmth seeped into Nico's bones, a comforting, peaceful sensation he hadn't had since... He couldn't even remember. A voice inside him seemed to whisper, You are not alone. You are part of the Olympian family. 
the gods have not abandoned you. Romans! Reyna yelled. I do this for the good of the legion, for the good of Rome. We must stand together with our Greek brethren. Listen to her! Nico marched forward. He wasn't even sure why he did it. Why would either side listen to him? He was the worst speaker, the worst ambassador ever. Yet he strode between the battle lines, his black sword in his hand. Reyna risked her life for all of you. We brought this statue halfway across the world, Roman and Greek working together, because we must join forces. Gia is rising. If we don't work together, you will die. The voice shook the earth. Nico's feeling of peace and safety instantly vanished. Wind swept across the hillside. The ground itself became fluid and sticky, the grass pulling at Nico's boots. A futile gesture! Nico felt as if he was standing on the goddess's throat, as if the entire length of Long Island resonated with her vocal cords. But if it makes you happy, you may die together! No! Octavian scrambled backward. No! No! He broke and ran, pushing through his own troops. Close ranks! Reyna yelled. The Greeks and Romans moved together, standing shoulder to shoulder as all around them the earth shook. Octavian's auxilia troops surged forward, surrounding the demigods. Both camps put together were a minuscule dot in a sea of enemies. They would make their final stand on Half-Blood Hill, with the Athena Parthenos as their rallying point. But even here, they stood on enemy ground, because Gia was the Earth, and the Earth was awake. Chapter 49 Jason Jason had heard of someone's life flashing before his eyes, but he didn't think it would be like this. Standing with his friends in a defensive ring, surrounded by giants, then looking up at an impossible vision in the sky, Jason could very clearly picture himself fifty years in the future. He was sitting in a rocking chair on the front porch of a house on the California coast. Piper was serving lemonade. Her hair was gray. Deep lines etched the corners of her eyes, but she was still as beautiful as ever. Jason's grandchildren sat around his feet, and he was trying to explain to them what had happened on this day in Athens. No, I'm serious, he said. Just six demigods on the ground, and one more in a burning ship above the Acropolis. We were surrounded by thirty-foot-tall giants who were about to kill us. Then the sky opened up, and the gods descended. Granddad, the kid said, you are full of schist. I'm not kidding, he protested. The Olympian gods came charging out of the heavens on their war chariots, trumpets blaring, swords flaming, and your great-grandfather, the king of the gods, led the charge, a javelin of pure electricity crackling in his hand. His grandkids laughed at him, and Piper glanced over, smiling like, Would you believe it if you hadn't been there? 
but Jason was there. He looked up as the clouds parted over the Acropolis, and he almost doubted the new prescription lenses Asclepius had given him. Instead of blue skies, he saw black space spangled with stars, the palaces of Mount Olympus gleaming silver and gold in the background, and an army of gods charged down from on high. It was too much to process, and it was probably better for his health that he didn't see it all. Only later would Jason be able to remember bits and pieces. There was supersized Jupiter. No, this was Zeus, his original form, riding into battle in a golden chariot, a lightning bolt the size of a telephone pole crackling in one hand. Pulling his chariot were four horses made of wind, each constantly shifting from equine to human form, trying to break free. For a split second, one took on the icy visage of Boreas. Another wore Notice's swirling crown of fire and steam. A third flashed the smug, lazy smile of Zephyrus. Zeus had bound and harnessed the four wind gods themselves. On the underbelly of the Argo II, the glass bay doors split open. The goddess Nike tumbled out, free from her golden net. She spread her glittering wings and soared to Zeus's side, taking her rightful place as his charioteer. My mind is restored, she roared. Victory to the gods! At Zeus's left flank rode Hera, her chariot pulled by enormous peacocks, their rainbow-colored plumage so bright it gave Jason the spins. Ares bellowed with glee as he thundered down on the back of a fire-breathing horse. His spear glistened red. In the last second before the gods reached the Parthenon, they seemed to displace themselves, like they jumped through hyperspace. The chariots disappeared. Suddenly, Jason and his friends were surrounded by the Olympians, now human-sized, tiny next to the giants, but glowing with power. Jason shouted and charged Porphyrion. His friends joined in the carnage. The fighting ranged all over the Parthenon and spilled across the Acropolis. Out of the corner of his eye, Jason saw Annabeth fighting Enceladus. At her side stood a woman with long dark hair and golden armor over her white robes. The goddess thrust her spear at the giant, then brandished her shield with the fearsome bronze visage of Medusa. Together, Athena and Annabeth drove Enceladus back into the nearest wall of metal scaffolding, which collapsed on top of him. On the opposite side of the temple, Frank Jong and the god Ares smashed through an entire phalanx of giants, Ares with his spear and shield, Frank, as an African elephant, with his trunk and feet. The war god laughed and stabbed and disemboweled like a kid destroying piñatas. Hazel raced through the battle on Orion's back, disappearing in the mist whenever a giant came close, then appearing behind him and stabbing him in the back. The goddess Hecate danced in her wake, setting fire to their enemies with two blazing torches. Jason didn't see Hades, but whenever a giant stumbled and fell, the ground broke open and the giant was snapped up and swallowed. Percy battled the giant twins, Otis and Ephialtes, 
while at his side fought a bearded man with a trident and a loud Hawaiian shirt. The twin giants stumbled. Poseidon's trident morphed into a fire hose, and the gods sprayed the giants out of the Parthenon with a high-powered blast in the shape of wild horses. Piper was maybe the most impressive. She fenced with the giantess Paraboya, sword against sword. Despite the fact that her opponent was five times larger, Piper seemed to be holding her own. The goddess Aphrodite floated around them on a small white cloud, strewing rose petals in the giantess's eyes and calling encouragement to Piper. Lovely, my dear. Yes, good. Hit her again. Whenever Paraboya tried to strike, doves rose up from nowhere and fluttered in the giantess's face. As for Leo, he was racing across the deck of the Argo II, shooting ballistae, dropping hammers on the giants' heads, and blowtorching their loincloths. Behind him at the helm, a burly bearded guy in a mechanic's uniform was tinkering with the controls, furiously trying to keep the ship aloft. The strangest sight was the old giant Thun, who was getting bludgeoned to death by three old ladies with brass clubs. The fates, armed for war. Jason decided there was nothing in the world scarier than a gang of bat-wielding grannies. He noticed all of these things and a dozen other melees in progress, but most of his attention was fixed on the enemy before him, Porphyrion, the giant king, and on the god who fought by Jason's side, Zeus. My father, Jason thought in disbelief. Porphyrion didn't give him much chance to savor the moment. The giant used his spear in a whirlwind of swipes, jabs, and slashes. It was all Jason could do to stay alive. Still, Zeus's presence felt reassuringly familiar. Even though Jason had never met his father, he was reminded of all his happiest moments. His birthday picnic with Piper in Rome. The day Lupa showed him Camp Jupiter for the first time his games of hide-and-seek with Thalia in their apartment when he was tiny, an afternoon on the beach when his mother had picked him up, kissed him, and showed him an oncoming storm. Never be afraid of a thunderstorm, Jason. That is your father, letting you know he loves you. Zeus smelled of rain and clean wind. He made the air burn with energy. Up close, his lightning bolt appeared as a bronze rod a meter long, pointed on both ends, with blades of energy extending from both sides to form a javelin of white electricity. He slashed across the giant's path, and Porphyrion collapsed into his makeshift throne, which crumbled under the giant's weight. No throne for you, Zeus growled. Not here, not ever. You cannot stop us, the giant yelled. It is done. The Earth Mother is awake. In answer, Zeus blasted the throne to rubble. The giant king flew backward out of the temple, and Jason ran after him, his father at his heels. They backed Porphyrion to the edge of the cliffs. The whole of modern Athens spread out below. Lightning had melted all the weapons in the giant's hair. Molten celestial bronze dripped through his dreadlocks like caramel. His skin steamed and blistered. 
Porphyrion snarled and raised his spear. Your cause is lost, Zeus. Even if you defeat me, the Earth Mother shall simply raise me again. Then perhaps, Zeus said, you should not die in the embrace of Gia. Jason, my son. Jason had never felt so good, so recognized, as when his father said his name. It was like last winter at Camp Half-Blood, when his erased memories finally returned. Jason suddenly understood another layer of his existence, a part of his identity that had been cloudy before. Now he had no doubt. He was the son of Jupiter, god of the sky. He was his father's child. Jason advanced. Porphyrion lashed out wildly with his spear, but Jason cut it in half with his gladius. He charged in, jabbing his sword through the giant's breastplate, then summoned the winds and blasted Porphyrion off the edge of the cliff. As the giant fell, screaming, Zeus pointed his lightning bolt. An arc of pure white heat vaporized Porphyrion in midair. His ashes drifted down in a gentle cloud, dusting the tops of the olive trees on the slopes of the Acropolis. Zeus turned to Jason. His lightning bolt flickered off, and Zeus clipped the celestial bronze rod to his belt. The god's eyes were stormy gray. His salt-and-pepper hair and his beard looked like stratus clouds. Jason found it strange that the lord of the universe, king of Olympus, was only a few inches taller than he was. My son. Zeus clasped Jason's shoulder. There is so much I would like to tell you. The god took a heavy breath, making the air crackle and Jason's new glasses fog up. Alas, as king of the gods, I must not show favoritism to my children. When we return to the other Olympians, I will not be able to praise you as much as I would like, or give you as much credit as you deserve. I don't want praise, Jason's voice quavered. Just a little time together would be nice. I mean, I don't even know you. Zeus's gaze was as far away as the ozone layer. I am always with you, Jason. I have watched your progress with pride, but it will never be possible for us to be... He curled his fingers, as if trying to pluck the right words out of the air. Close, normal, a true father and son. From birth, you were destined to be Hera's, to appease her wrath. Even your name, Jason, was her choice. You did not ask for this. I did not want it. But when I gave you over to her, I had no idea what a good man you would become. Your journey has shaped you, made you both kind and great. Whatever happens when we return to the Parthenon, know that I do not hold you accountable. You have proven yourself a true hero. Jason's emotions were a jumble in his chest. What do you mean, whatever happens? The worst is not over, Zeus warned. 
and someone must take the blame for what has happened. Come. Chapter 50 Jason Nothing was left of the giants except heaps of ash, a few spears, and some burning dreadlocks. The Argo, too, was still aloft, barely, moored to the top of the Parthenon. Half the ship's oars were broken off or tangled. Smoke streamed from several large splits in the hull. The sails were peppered with burning holes. Leo looked almost as bad. He stood in the midst of the temple with the other crew members, his face covered in soot, his clothes smoldering. The gods fanned out in a semicircle as Zeus approached. None of them seemed particularly joyful about their victory. Apollo and Artemis stood together in the shadow of a column, as if trying to hide. Hera and Poseidon were having an intense discussion with another goddess in green and gold robes, perhaps Demeter. Nike tried to put a golden laurel wreath on Hecate's head, but the goddess of magic swatted it away. Hermes sneaked close to Athena, attempting to put his arm around her. Athena turned her aegis shield his way, and Hermes scuffled off. The only Olympian who seemed in a good mood was Ares. He laughed and pantomimed gutting an enemy while Frank listened, his expression polite but queasy. Brethren, Zeus said, we are healed, thanks to the work of these demigods. The Athena Parthenos, which once stood in this temple, now stands at Camp Half-Blood. It has united our offspring, and thus our own essences. Lord Zeus, Piper spoke up. Is Reyna okay? Nico and Coach Hedge? Jason couldn't quite believe Piper was asking after Reyna's health, but it made him glad. Zeus knit his cloud-colored eyebrows. They succeeded in their mission. As of this moment, they are alive. Whether or not they are okay... There is still work to be done, Queen Hera interrupted. She spread her arms like she wanted a group hug. But my heroes, you have triumphed over the giants as I knew you would. My plan succeeded beautifully. Zeus turned on his wife. Thunder shook the Acropolis. Hera, do not dare take credit. You have caused at least as many problems as you fixed. The Queen of Heaven blanched. Husband, surely you see now. This was the only way. There is never only one way, Zeus bellowed. That is why there are three fates, not one. Is this not so? By the ruins of the giant king's throne, the three old ladies silently bowed their heads in recognition. Jason noticed that the other gods stayed well away from the fates and their gleaming brass clubs. Please, husband... Hera tried for a smile, but she was so clearly frightened that Jason almost felt sorry for her. I only did what I... Silence! 
Zeus snapped. You disobeyed my orders. Nevertheless, I recognize that you acted with honest intentions. The valor of these seven heroes has proven that you were not entirely without wisdom. Hera looked like she wanted to argue, but she kept her mouth shut. Apollo, however... Zeus glared into the shadows where the twins were standing. My son, come here. Apollo inched forward like he was walking the plank. He looked so much like a teenage demigod it was unnerving. No more than seventeen, wearing jeans and a Camp Half-Blood t-shirt, with a bow over his shoulder and a sword at his belt. With his tousled blonde hair and blue eyes, he might have been Jason's brother on the mortal side as well as the godly side. Jason wondered if Apollo had assumed this form to be inconspicuous or to look pitiable to his father. The fear in Apollo's face certainly looked real and also very human. The three fates gathered around the god, circling him, their withered hands raised. Twice you have defied me, Zeus said. Apollo moistened his lips. My... my lord! You neglected your duties. You succumbed to flattery and vanity. You encouraged your descendant Octavian to follow his dangerous path. And you prematurely revealed a prophecy that may yet destroy us all. But... Enough! Zeus boomed. We will speak of your punishment later. For now, you will wait on Olympus. Zeus flicked his hand, and Apollo turned into a cloud of glitter. The fates swirled around him, dissolving into air, and the glittery whirlwind shot into the sky. What will happen to him? Jason asked. The gods stared at him, but Jason didn't care. Having actually met Zeus, he had a newfound sympathy for Apollo. It is not your concern, Zeus said. We have other problems to address. An uncomfortable silence settled over the Parthenon. It didn't feel right to let the matter go. Jason didn't see how Apollo deserved to be singled out for punishment. Someone must take the blame, Zeus had said. But why? Father, Jason said. I made a vow to honor all the gods. I promised Kimapalia that once this war is over, none of the gods would be without shrines at the camps. Zeus scowled. That's fine. But... Kim who? Poseidon coughed into his fist. She's one of mine. My point, Jason said, is that blaming each other isn't going to solve anything. That's how the Romans and Greeks got divided in the first place. The air became dangerously ionized. Jason's scalp tingled. He realized he was risking his father's wrath. He might get turned into glitter or blasted off the Acropolis. He'd known his dad for five minutes and made a good impression. Now he was throwing it away. A good Roman wouldn't keep talking. Jason kept talking. Apollo wasn't the problem. To punish him for Gia waking is... He wanted to say stupid, but he caught himself. 
unwise. Unwise. Zeus's voice was almost a whisper. Before the assembled gods, you would call me unwise. Jason's friends watched on full alert. Percy looked like he was ready to jump in and fight at his side. Then Artemis stepped out of the shadows. Father, this hero has fought long and hard for our cause. His nerves are frayed. We should take that into account. Jason started to protest, but Artemis stopped him with a glance. Her expression sent a message so clear she might have been speaking in his mind. Thank you, demigod, but do not press this. I will reason with Zeus when he is calmer. Surely, father, the goddess continued, we should attend to our more pressing problems, as you pointed out. Gia, Annabeth chimed in, clearly anxious to change the topic. She's awake, isn't she? Zeus turned toward her. Around Jason, the air molecules stopped humming. His skull felt like it had just come out of the microwave. That is correct, Zeus said. The blood of Olympus was spilled. She is fully conscious. Oh, come on, Percy complained. I get a little nosebleed and I wake up the entire Earth? That's not fair. Athena shouldered her aegis. Complaining of unfairness is like assigning blame, Percy Jackson. It does no one any good. She gave Jason an approving glance. Now you must move quickly. Gia rises to destroy your camp. Poseidon leaned on his trident. For once, Athena is right. For once? Athena protested. Why would Gia be back at camp? Leo asked. Percy's nosebleed was here. Dude, Percy said. First off, you heard Athena. Don't blame my nose. Second, Gia's the Earth. She can pop up anywhere she wants. Besides, she told us she was going to do this. She said the first thing on her to-do list was destroying our camp. Question is, how do we stop her? Frank looked at Zeus. Um, sir, your majesty, can't you gods just pop over there with us? You've got the chariots and the magic powers and whatnot. Yes, Hazel said. We defeated the giants together in two seconds. Let's all go. No, Zeus said flatly. No, Jason asked. But father. Zeus's eyes sparked with power and Jason realized he'd pushed his dad as far as he could for today, and maybe for the next few centuries. That's the problem with prophecies, Zeus growled. When Apollo allowed the prophecy of seven to be spoken, and when Hera took it upon herself to interpret the words, the fates wove the future in such a way that it had only so many possible outcomes, so many solutions. You seven, the demigods, are destined to defeat Gia. We the gods cannot. I don't get it, Piper said. What's the point of being gods if you have to rely on puny mortals to do your bidding? 
All the gods exchanged dark looks. Aphrodite, however, laughed gently and kissed her daughter. My dear Piper, don't you think we've been asking ourselves that question for thousands of years? But it is what binds us together, keeps us eternal. We need you mortals as much as you need us. Annoying as that may be, it's the truth. Frank shuffled uncomfortably, like he missed being an elephant. So how can we possibly get to Camp Half-Blood in time to save it? It took us months to reach Greece. The winds, Jason said. Father, can't you unleash the winds to send our ship back? Zeus glowered. I could slap you back to Long Island. Um, was that a joke? Or a threat? Or... No, Zeus said. I mean it quite literally. I could slap your ship back to Camp Half-Blood, but the force involved... Over by the ruined giant throne, the grungy god in the mechanic's uniform shook his head. My boy Leo built a good ship, but it won't sustain that kind of stress. It would break apart as soon as it arrived. Maybe sooner. Leo straightened his tool belt. The Argo too can make it. It only has to stay in one piece long enough to get us back home. Once there, we can abandon ship. Dangerous, warned Hephaestus. Perhaps fatal. The goddess Nike twirled a laurel wreath on her finger. Victory is always dangerous, and it often requires sacrifice. Leo Valdez and I have discussed this. She stared pointedly at Leo. Jason didn't like that at all. He remembered Asclepius's grim expression when the doctor had examined Leo. Oh my, oh, I see. Jason knew what they had to do to defeat Gia. He knew the risks, but he wanted to take those risks himself, not put them on Leo. Piper will have the physician's cure, he told himself. She'll keep us both covered. Leo, Annabeth said. What is Nike talking about? Leo waved off the question. The usual, victory, sacrifice, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter. We can do this, guys. We have to do this. A feeling of dread settled over Jason. Zeus was correct about one thing. The worst was yet to come. When the choice comes, notice the south wind had told him, storm or fire, do not despair. Jason made the choice. Leo's right. All aboard for one last trip. Chapter 51 Jason so much for a tender farewell. The last Jason saw of his dad, Zeus was a hundred feet tall, holding the Argo too by its prow. He boomed, Hold on! Then he tossed the ship up and spiked it overhand like a volleyball. If Jason hadn't been strapped to the mast with one of Leo's twenty-point safety harnesses, he would have disintegrated. As it was, his stomach tried to stay behind in Greece, and all the air was sucked out of his lungs. The sky turned black. The ship rattled and creaked. 
The deck cracked like thin ice under Jason's legs, and with a sonic boom, the Argo II hurtled out of the clouds. Jason! Leo shouted. Hurry! His fingers felt like melted plastic, but Jason managed to undo the straps. Leo was lashed to the control console, desperately trying to right the ship as they spiraled downward in freefall. The sails were on fire. Festus creaked in alarm. A catapult peeled away and lifted into the air. Centrifugal force sent the shields flying off the railings like metal frisbees. Wider cracks opened in the deck as Jason staggered toward the hold, using the winds to keep himself anchored. If he couldn't make it to the others... Then the hatch burst open. Frank and Hazel stumbled through, pulling on the guide rope they'd attached to the mast. Piper, Annabeth, and Percy followed, all of them looking disoriented. Go! Leo yelled. Go, go, go! For once, Leo's tone was deadly serious. They'd talked through their evacuation plan, but that slap across the world had made Jason's mind sluggish. Judging from the others' expressions, they weren't in much better shape. Buford, the table, saved them. He clattered across the deck with his holographic hedge blaring, Let's go! Move it! Cut that out! Then, his tabletop split into helicopter blades, and Buford buzzed away. Frank changed form. Instead of a dazed demigod, he was now a dazed gray dragon. Hazel climbed onto his neck. Frank grabbed Percy and Annabeth in his front claws, then spread his wings and soared away. Jason held Piper by the waist, ready to fly, but he made the mistake of glancing down. The view was a spinning kaleidoscope of sky-earth, sky-earth. The ground was getting awfully close. Leo, you won't make it, Jason shouted. Come with us. No, get out of here. Leo, Piper tried. Please. Save your charm speak, Pipes. I told you, I've got a plan. Now shoo. Jason took a last look at the splintering ship. The Argo, too, had been their home for so long. Now they were abandoning it for good and leaving Leo behind. Jason hated it, but he saw the determination in Leo's eyes. Just like the visit with his father, Zeus, there was no time for a proper goodbye. Jason harnessed the winds, and he and Piper shot into the sky. The ground wasn't much less chaotic. As they plummeted down, Jason saw a vast array of monsters spread across the hill. Cynocephaly, two-headed men, wild centaurs, ogres, and others he couldn't even name, surrounding two tiny islands of demigods. At the crest of Half-Blood Hill, gathered at the feet of the Athena Parthenos, was the main force of Camp Half-Blood, along with the first and fifth cohorts, rallied around the Golden Eagle of the Legion. The other three Roman cohorts were in a defensive formation several hundred yards away and seemed to be taking the brunt of the attack. Giant eagles circled Jason, screeching urgently as if looking for orders. Frank the Grey Dragon flew alongside with his passengers. Hazel! Jason yelled. Those three cohorts are in trouble. If they don't merge with the rest of the demigods... On it! 
Hazel said. Go, Frank! Dragon Frank veered to the left with Annabeth in one claw yelling, Let's get him! And Percy in the other claw screaming, I hate flying! Piper and Jason veered right toward the summit of Half-Blood Hill. Jason's heart lifted when he saw Nico D'Angelo on the front lines with the Greeks, slashing his way through a crowd of two-headed men. A few feet away, Reyna sat astride a new Pegasus, her sword drawn. She shouted orders at the Legion, and the Romans obeyed without question, as if she'd never been away. Jason didn't see Octavian anywhere. Good. Neither did he see a colossal earth goddess laying waste to the world. Very good. Perhaps Gia had risen, taken one look at the modern world, and decided to go back to sleep. Jason wished they could be that lucky, but he doubted it. He and Piper landed on the hill, their swords drawn, and a cheer went up from the Greeks and the Romans. About time, Reyna called. Glad you could join us. With a start, Jason realized she was addressing Piper, not him. Piper grinned. We had some giants to kill. Excellent, Reyna returned the smile. Help yourself to some barbarians. Why, thank you. The two girls launched into battle side by side. Nico nodded to Jason as if they'd just seen each other five minutes ago, then went back to turning two-headed men into no-headed corpses. Good timing. Where's the ship? Jason pointed. The Argo II streaked across the sky in a ball of fire, shedding burning chunks of mast, hull, and armament. Jason didn't see how even fireproof Leo could survive in that inferno, but he had to hope. Gods, Nico said. Is everyone okay? Leo. Jason's voice broke. He said he had a plan. The comet disappeared behind the western hills. Jason waited with dread for the sound of an explosion, but he heard nothing over the roar of battle. Nico met his eyes. He'll be fine. Sure. But just in case. For Leo. For Leo, Jason agreed. They charged into the fight. Jason's anger gave him renewed strength. The Greeks and Romans slowly pushed back the enemies. Wild centaurs toppled. Wolf-headed men howled as they were cut to ashes. More monsters kept appearing. Carpoy grain spirits swirling out of the grass, griffins diving from the sky, lumpy clay humanoids that made Jason think of evil Plato men. They're ghosts with earthen shells, Nico warned. Don't let them hit you. Obviously, Gia had kept some surprises in reserve. At one point, Will Solace, the lead camper for Apollo, ran up to Nico and said something in his ear. Over the yelling and clashing blades, Jason couldn't hear the words. Jason, I have to go, Nico said. Jason didn't really understand, but he nodded, and Will and Nico dashed off into the fray. A moment later, a squad of Hermes campers gathered around Jason for no apparent reason. Connor Stoll grinned. What's up, Grace? I'm good, Jason said. 
You? Connor dodged an ogre club and stabbed a grain spirit, which exploded in a cloud of wheat. Yeah, can't complain. Nice day for it. Reyna yelled, Eaculare flamas! And a wave of flaming arrows arced over the legion's shield wall, destroying a platoon of ogres. The Roman ranks moved forward, impaling centaurs and trampling wounded ogres under their bronze-tipped boots. Somewhere downhill, Jason heard Frank Jong yell in Latin, Repulere equites! A massive herd of centaurs parted in a panic as the legion's other three cohorts plowed through in perfect formation, their spears bright with monster blood. Frank marched before them. On the left flank, riding Orion, Hazel beamed with pride. Ave, Praetor Jong, Reyna called. Ave, Praetor Ramirez Ariano, Frank said. Let's do this. Legion, close ranks. A cheer went up among the Romans as the five cohorts melded into one massive killing machine. Frank pointed his sword forward, and from the Golden Eagle standard, Tendrils of lightning swept across the enemy, turning several hundred monsters to toast. Legion! Cuneum formate! Reyna yelled. Advance! Another cheer on Jason's right, as Percy and Annabeth reunited with the forces of Camp Half-Blood. Greeks! Percy yelled. Let's, um, fight stuff! They yelled like banshees and charged. Jason grinned. He loved the Greeks. They had no organization whatsoever, but they made up for it with enthusiasm. Jason was feeling good about the battle, except for two big questions. Where was Leo? And where was Gia? Unfortunately, he got the second answer first. Under his feet, the earth rippled as if Half-Blood Hill had become a giant water mattress. Demigods fell, ogres slipped, centaurs charged face-first into the grass. Awake! A voice boomed all around them. A hundred yards away at the crest of the next hill, the grass and dirt swirled upward like the point of a massive drill. The column of earth thickened into the twenty-foot-tall figure of a woman, her dress woven from blades of grass, her skin as white as quartz, her hair brown and tangled like tree roots. Little fools! Gia, the Earth Mother, opened her pure green eyes. The paltry magic of your statue cannot contain me! As she said it, Jason realized why Gia hadn't appeared until now. The Athena Parthenos had been protecting the demigods, holding back the wrath of the earth. But even Athena's might could only last so long against a primordial goddess. Fear as palpable as a cold front washed over the demigod army. Stand fast! Piper shouted, her charm speak clear and loud. Greeks and Romans, we can fight her together! Gia laughed. She spread her arms and the earth bent toward her, trees tilting, bedrock groaning, soil rippling in waves. Jason rose on the wind, but all around him, 
monsters and demigods alike started to sink into the ground. One of Octavian's onagers capsized and disappeared into the side of the hill. The whole earth is my body, Gia boomed. How would you fight the goddess of... Foomp! In a flash of bronze, Gia was swept off the hillside, snarled in the claws of a fifty-ton metal dragon. Festus, reborn, rose into the sky on gleaming wings, spewing fire from his maw triumphantly. As he ascended, the rider on his back got smaller and more difficult to discern. But Leo's grin was unmistakable. Pipes, Jason, he shouted down. You coming? The fight is up here. Chapter 52 Jason As soon as Gia achieved liftoff, the ground solidified. Demigods stopped sinking, though many were still buried up to their waists. Sadly, the monsters seemed to be digging themselves out more quickly. They charged the Greek and Roman ranks, taking advantage of the demigods' disorganization. Jason put his arms around Piper's waist. He was about to take off when Percy yelled, Wait! Frank can fly the rest of us up there! We can all... No, man, Jason said. They need you here. There's still an army to defeat. Besides, the prophecy... He's right. Frank gripped Percy's arm. You have to let them do this, Percy. It's like Annabeth's quest in Rome, or Hazel at the doors of death. This part can only be them. Percy obviously didn't like it, but at that moment a flood of monsters swept over the Greek forces. Annabeth called to him. Hey, problem over here! Percy ran to join her. Frank and Hazel turned to Jason. They raised their arms in the Roman salute then ran off to regroup the legion. Jason and Piper spiraled upward on the wind. I've got the cure, Piper murmured like a chant. It'll be fine. I've got the cure. Jason realized she'd lost her sword somehow during the battle, but he doubted it would matter. Against Gia, a sword would do no good. This was about storm and fire, and a third power, Piper's charm speak which would hold them together. Last winter, Piper had slowed the power of Gia at the wolf house, helping to free Hera from a cage of earth. Now she would have an even bigger job. As they ascended, Jason gathered the wind and clouds around him. The sky responded with frightening speed. Soon they were in the eye of a maelstrom. Lightning burned his eyes. Thunder made his teeth vibrate. Directly above them, Festus grappled with the earth goddess. Gia kept disintegrating, trying to trickle back to the ground, but the winds kept her aloft. Festus sprayed her with flames, which seemed to force her into solid form. Meanwhile, from Festus's back, Leo blasted the goddess with flames of his own and hurled insults. Potty sludge! Dirt face! This is for my mother, Esperanza Valdez. His whole body was wreathed in fire. Rain hung in the stormy air, but it only sizzled and steamed around him. Jason zoomed toward them, 
Gia turned into loose white sand, but Jason summoned a squadron of Venti, who churned around her, constraining her in a cocoon of wind. Gia fought back. When she wasn't disintegrating, she lashed out with shrapnel blasts of stone and soil that Jason barely deflected. Stoking the storm, containing Gia, keeping himself and Piper aloft, Jason had never done anything so difficult. He felt like he was covered in lead weights, trying to swim with only his legs while holding a car over his head. But he had to keep Gia off the ground. That was the secret Kim had hinted at when they spoke at the bottom of the sea. Long ago, Oranos, the sky god, had been tricked down to the earth by Gia and the Titans. They'd held him on the ground so he couldn't escape, and, with his powers weakened from being so far from his home territory, they'd been able to cut him apart. Now, Jason, Leo, and Piper had to reverse that scenario. They had to keep Gia away from her source of power, the Earth, and weaken her until she could be defeated. Together they rose. Festus creaked and groaned with the effort, but he continued to gain altitude. Jason still didn't understand how Leo had managed to remake the dragon. Then he recalled all the hours Leo had spent working inside the hall over the last few weeks. Leo must have been planning this all along and building a new body for Festus within the framework of the ship. He must have known in his gut that the Argo too would eventually fall apart. A ship turning into a dragon? Jason supposed it was no more amazing than the dragon turning into a suitcase back in Quebec. However it had happened, Jason was elated to see their old friend in action once more. You cannot defeat me! Gia crumbled to sand, only to get blasted by more flames. Her body melted into a lump of glass, shattered, then reformed again as human. I am eternal! Eternally annoying! Leo yelled, and he urged Festus higher. Jason and Piper rose with them. Get me closer, Piper urged. I need to be next to her. Piper, the flames and the shrapnel. I know. Jason moved in until they were right next to Gia. The winds encased the goddess, keeping her solid, but it was all Jason could do to contain her blasts of sand and soil. Her eyes were solid green, like all nature had been condensed into a few spoonfuls of organic matter. Foolish children! Her face contorted with miniature earthquakes and mudslides. You are so weary, Piper told the goddess, her voice radiating kindness and sympathy. Eons of pain and disappointment weigh on you. Silence! The force of Gia's anger was so great, Jason momentarily lost control of the wind. He would have dropped into freefall, but Festus caught him and Piper in his other huge claw. Amazingly, Piper kept her focus. Millennia of sorrow, she told Gia. Your husband Oranos was abusive. Your grandchildren, the gods, overthrew your beloved children, the Titans. Your other children, the Cyclopes and the Hundred-Handed Ones, were thrown into Tartarus. 
You are so tired of heartache. Lies! Gia crumbled into a tornado of soil and grass, but her essence seemed to churn more sluggishly. If they gained any more altitude, the air would be too thin to breathe. Jason would be too weak to control it. Piper's talk of exhaustion affected him, too, sapping his strength, making his body feel heavy. What you want, Piper continued, more than victory, more than revenge. You want rest. You are so weary, so incomprehensibly tired of the ungrateful mortals and immortals. I, you do not speak for me. You cannot. You want one thing, Piper said soothingly, her voice resonating through Jason's bones. One word. You want permission to close your eyes and forget your troubles. You want sleep. Gia solidified into human form. Her head lolled, her eyes closed, and she went limp in Festus's claw. Unfortunately, Jason started to black out too. The wind was dying. The storm dissipated. Dark spots danced in his eyes. Leo! Piper gasped for breath. We only have a few seconds. My charm speak won't... I know! Leo looked like he was made of fire. Flames rippled beneath his skin, illuminating his skull. Festus steamed and glowed, his claws burning through Jason's shirt. I can't contain the fire much longer. I'll vaporize her. Don't worry. But you guys need to leave. No! Jason said. We have to stay with you. Piper's got the cure. Leo, you can't... Hey! Leo grinned, which was unnerving in the flames, his teeth like molten silver ingots. I told you I had a plan. When are you going to trust me? And by the way, I love you guys. Festus's claw opened, and Jason and Piper fell. Jason had no strength to stop it. He held on to Piper as she cried Leo's name, and they plummeted earthward. Festus became an indistinct ball of fire in the sky, a second sun, growing smaller and hotter. Then, in the corner of Jason's eye, a blazing comet streaked upward from the ground with a high-pitched, almost human scream. Just before Jason blacked out, the comet intercepted the ball of fire above them. The explosion turned the entire sky gold. Chapter 53 Nico Nico had witnessed many forms of death. He didn't think anything could surprise him anymore. He was wrong. In the middle of the battle, Will Solace ran up to him and said one word in his ear. Octavian. That got Nico's full attention. He had hesitated when he had the chance to kill Octavian, but there was no way Nico would let that scumbag auger escape justice. Where? Come on, Will said. Hurry. Nico turned to Jason, who was fighting next to him. Jason, I have to go. Then he plunged into the chaos, following Will. 
They passed Tyson and his Cyclopes, who were bellowing, Bad dog! Bad dog! as they bashed the heads of the Cynocephaly. Grover Underwood and a team of satyrs danced around with their panpipes, playing harmonies so dissonant that the earthen-shelled ghosts cracked apart. Travis Stoll ran past, arguing with his brother. What do you mean we set the landmines on the wrong hill? Nico and Will were halfway down the hill when the ground trembled under their feet. Like everyone else, monster and demigod alike, they froze in horror and watched as the whirling column of earth erupted from the top of the next hill, and Gia appeared in all her glory. Then, something large and bronze swooped out of the sky. Foomp! Festus, the bronze dragon, snatched up the Earth Mother and soared away with her. What? How? Nico stammered. I don't know, Will said. But I doubt there's much we can do about that. We have other problems. Will sprinted toward the nearest onager. As they got closer, Nico spotted Octavian furiously readjusting the machine's targeting levers. The throwing arm was already primed with a full payload of imperial gold and explosives. The auger rushed about, tripping over gears and anchor spikes, fumbling with the ropes. Every so often, he glanced up at Festus the dragon. Octavian! Nico yelled. The auger spun, then backed up against the huge sphere of ammunition. His fine purple robes snagged on the trigger rope, but Octavian didn't notice. Fumes from the payload curled about him as if drawn to the imperial gold jewelry around his arms and neck, the golden wreath in his hair. Oh, I see! Octavian's laughter was brittle and quite insane. Trying to steal my glory, eh? No, no, son of Pluto! I am the savior of Rome! I was promised! Will raised his hand in a placating gesture. Octavian, get away from the onager. That isn't safe. Of course it's not! I will shoot Gia down with this machine! Out of the corner of his eye, Nico saw Jason Grace rocket into the sky with Piper in his arms, flying straight toward Festus. Around the sun of Jupiter, storm clouds gathered, swirling into a hurricane. Thunder boomed. You see? Octavian cried. The gold on his body was definitely smoking now, attracted to the catapult's payload like iron to a giant magnet. The gods approve of my actions! Jason is making that storm, Nico said. If you fire the onager, you'll kill him, and Piper, and... Good! Octavian yelled. They're traitors! All traitors! Listen to me, Will tried again. This is not what Apollo would want. Besides, your robes are... You know nothing, Greekus. Octavian wrapped his hand around the release lever. I must act before they get any higher. Only an onager such as this can make the shot. I will single-handedly... Centurion, said a voice behind him. From the back of the siege engine, Michael Kahale appeared. He had a large red knot on his forehead where Tyson had bonked him unconscious. He stumbled as he walked 
but somehow he had found his way here from the shore, and along the way he'd picked up a sword and shield. Michael! Octavian shrieked with glee. Excellent! Guard me while I fire this onager! Then we will kill these Greek eye together! Michael Kahale took in the scene. His boss's robes tangled in the trigger rope. Octavian's jewelry fuming from proximity to the imperial gold ammunition. He glanced up at the dragon, now high in the air, surrounded by rings of storm clouds like the circles of an archery target. Then he scowled at Nico. Nico readied his own sword. Surely Michael Kahale would warn his leader to step away from the onager. Surely he would attack. Are you certain, Octavian? asked the son of Venus. Yes! Are you absolutely certain? Yes, you fool! I will be remembered as the savior of Rome. Now keep them away while I destroy Gia. Octavian, don't! Will pleaded. We can't allow you... Will! Nico said. We can't stop him! Solace stared at him in disbelief, but Nico remembered his father's words in the Chapel of Bones. Some deaths cannot be prevented. Octavian's eyes gleamed. That's right, son of Pluto! You are helpless to stop me! It is my destiny! Kahale, stand guard! As you wish. Michael moved in front of the machine, interposing himself between Octavian and the two Greek demigods. Centurion, do what you must. Octavian turned to release the catch. A good friend to the last. Nico almost lost his nerve. If the onager really did fire true, if it scored a hit on Festus the dragon, and Nico allowed his friends to be hurt or killed, but he stayed where he was. For once, he decided to trust the wisdom of his father. Some deaths should not be prevented. Goodbye, Gia! Octavian yelled. Goodbye, Jason Grace the traitor! Octavian cut the release wire with his auger's knife, and he disappeared. The catapult arm sprang upward faster than Nico's eye could follow, launching Octavian along with the ammunition. The auger's scream faded until he was simply part of the fiery comet soaring skyward. Goodbye, Octavian, Michael Kahale said. He glared at Will and Nico one last time, as if daring them to speak. Then he turned his back and trudged away. Nico could have lived with Octavian's end. He might even have said, good riddance but his heart sank as the comet kept gaining altitude. It disappeared into the storm clouds, and the sky exploded in a dome of fire. Chapter 54 Nico. The next day there weren't many answers. After the explosion, Piper and Jason— free-falling and unconscious, were plucked out of the sky by giant eagles and brought to safety. But Leo did not reappear. The entire Hephaestus cabin scoured the valley, finding bits and pieces of the Argo II's broken hull, but no sign of Festus the dragon or his master. All the monsters had been destroyed or scattered, 
Greek and Roman casualties were heavy, but not nearly as bad as they might have been. Overnight, the satyrs and nymphs disappeared into the woods for a convocation of the cloven elders. In the morning, Grover Underwood reappeared to announce that they could not sense the Earth Mother's presence. Nature was more or less back to normal. Apparently, Jason, Piper, and Leo's plan worked. Gia had been separated from her source of power, charmed to sleep, and then atomized in the combined explosion of Leo's fire and Octavian's man-made comet. An immortal could never die, but now Gia would be like her husband, Oranos. The Earth would continue to function as normal, just as the sky did, but Gia was now so dispersed and powerless that she could never again form a consciousness. At least, that was the hope. Octavian would be remembered for saving Rome by hurling himself into the sky in a fiery ball of death, but it was Leo Valdez who had made the real sacrifice. The victory celebration at camp was muted due to grief, not just for Leo, but also for the many others who had died in battle. Shrouded demigods, both Greek and Roman, were burnt at the campfire, and Chiron asked Nico to oversee the burial rites. Nico agreed immediately. He was grateful for the opportunity to honor the dead. Even the hundreds of spectators didn't bother him. The hardest part was afterward, when Nico and the six demigods from the Argo II met on the porch of the big house. Jason hung his head, even his glasses lost in shadow. We should have been there at the end. We could have helped Leo. It's not right, Piper agreed, wiping away her tears. All that work getting the physician's cure for nothing. Hazel broke down crying. Piper, where's the cure? Bring it out. Bewildered, Piper reached into her belt pouch. She produced the chamois cloth package, but when she unfolded the cloth, it was empty. All eyes turned to Hazel. How? Annabeth asked. Frank put his arm around Hazel. In Delos, Leo pulled the two of us aside. He pleaded with us to help him. Through her tears, Hazel explained how she had switched the physician's cure for an illusion, a trick of the mist so that Leo could keep the real vial. Frank told them about Leo's plan to destroy a weakened Gia with one massive fiery explosion. After talking with Nike and Apollo, Leo had been certain that such an explosion would kill any mortal within a quarter mile, so he knew he would have to get far away from everyone. He wanted to do it alone, Frank said. He thought there would be a slim chance that he... A son of Hephaestus could survive the fire, but if anyone was with him, he said that Hazel and I, being Roman, would understand about sacrifice, but he knew the rest of you would never allow it. At first, the others looked angry, like they wanted to scream and throw things. But as Frank and Hazel talked, the group's rage seemed to dissipate. It was hard to be mad at Frank and Hazel when they were both crying. Also, the plan sounded exactly like the sneaky, twisted, ridiculously annoying and noble sort of thing Leo Valdez would do.
Finally, Piper let out a sound somewhere between a sob and a laugh. If he were here right now, I would kill him. How was he planning to take the cure? He was alone. Maybe he found a way, Percy said. This is Leo we're talking about. He might come back any minute. Then we can take turns strangling him. Nico and Hazel exchanged looks. They both knew better, but they said nothing. The next day, the second since the battle, Romans and Greeks worked side by side to clean up the war zone and tend the wounded. Blackjack, the Pegasus, was recovering nicely from his arrow wound. Guido had decided to adopt Reyna as his human. Reluctantly, Llewellyn had agreed to turn her new pet piglets back into Romans. Will Solace hadn't spoken with Nico since the encounter at the Onager. The son of Apollo spent most of his time in the infirmary, but whenever Nico saw him running across camp to fetch more medical supplies or make a house call on some wounded demigod, he felt a strange twinge of melancholy. No doubt Will Solace thought Nico was a monster now for letting Octavian kill himself. The Romans bivouacked next to the strawberry fields, where they insisted on building their standard field camp. The Greeks pitched in to help them raise the dirt walls and dig the trenches. Nico had never seen anything stranger or cooler. Dakota shared Kool-Aid with the kids from the Dionysus cabin. The children of Hermes and Mercury laughed and told stories and brazenly stole things from just about everyone. Reyna, Annabeth, and Piper were inseparable, roaming the camp as a trio to check on the progress of the repairs. Chiron, escorted by Frank and Hazel, inspected the Roman troops and praised them for their bravery. By evening, the general mood had improved somewhat. The dining hall pavilion had never been so crowded. The Romans were welcomed like old friends. Coach Hedge roamed among the demigods, beaming and holding his baby boy and saying, Hey, you want to meet Chuck? This is my boy, Chuck. The Aphrodite and Athena girls alike cooed over the feisty little satyr baby, who waved his pudgy fists, kicked his tiny hooves, and bleated, Bah! Bah! Clarice, who had been named the baby's godmother, trailed behind the coach like a bodyguard and occasionally muttered, All right, all right. Give the kids some space. At announcement time, Chiron stepped forward and raised his goblet. Out of every tragedy, he said, comes new strength. Today, we thank the gods for this victory. To the gods! The demigods all joined the toast, but their enthusiasm seemed muted. Nico understood the feeling. We saved the gods again. And now we're supposed to thank them? Then Chiron said, To new friends! Hundreds of demigod voices echoed across the hills. At the campfire, everyone kept looking at the stars, as if they expected Leo to come back in some dramatic, last-minute surprise. Maybe he'd swoop in, jump off Festus's back, and launch into corny jokes. It didn't happen. After a few songs, Reyna and Frank were called to the front. They got a thunderous round of applause from both the Greeks and Romans. Up on Half-Blood Hill, 
the Athena Parthenos glowed more brightly in moonlight, as if to signal, these kids are all right. Tomorrow, Raina said, we Romans must return home. We appreciate your hospitality, especially since we almost killed you. You almost got killed, Annabeth corrected. Whatever, Chase. Ooh, the crowd said as one. Then everybody started laughing and pushing each other around. Even Nico had to smile. Anyway, Frank took over. Raina and I agree this marks a new era of friendship between the camps. Raina clapped him on the back. That's right. For hundreds of years, the gods tried to separate us to keep us from fighting. But there's a better kind of peace. Cooperation. Piper stood up from the audience. Are you sure your mom is a war goddess? Yes, McLean, Raina said. I still intend to fight a lot of battles, but from now on, we fight together. That got a big cheer. Jong raised his hand for quiet. You'll all be welcome at Camp Jupiter. We've come to an agreement with Chiron, a free exchange between the camps, weekend visits, training programs, and, of course, emergency aid in times of need. And parties? asked Dakota. Here, here, said Connor Stoll. Raina spread her arms. That goes without saying. We Romans invented parties. Another big, oh. So thank you, Raina concluded. All of you. We could have chosen hatred and war. Instead, we found acceptance and friendship. Then she did something so unexpected, Nico would later think he dreamed it. She walked up to Nico, who was standing to one side in the shadows, as usual. She grabbed his hand and pulled him gently into the firelight. We had one home, she said. Now we have two. She gave Nico a big hug, and the crowd roared with approval. For once... Nico didn't feel like pulling away. He buried his face in Reyna's shoulder and blinked the tears out of his eyes. Chapter 55 Nico That night, Nico slept in the Hades cabin. He'd never had any desire to use the place before, but now he shared it with Hazel, which made all the difference. It made him happy to live with the sister again even if it was only for a few days, and even if Hazel insisted on partitioning her side of the room with sheets for privacy so it looked like a quarantine zone. Just before curfew, Frank came to visit and spend a few minutes talking with Hazel in hushed tones. Nico tried to ignore them. He stretched out in his bunk, which resembled a coffin, a polished mahogany frame, brass railings, Blood-red velvet pillows and blankets. Nico hadn't been present when they built this cabin. He definitely had not suggested these bunks. Apparently, somebody thought the children of Hades were vampires, not demigods. Finally, Frank knocked on the wall next to Nico's bed. Nico looked over. Jong stood so tall now. 
He seemed so... Roman. Hey, Frank said. We'll be leaving in the morning. Just wanted to tell you thanks. Nico sat up in his bunk. You did great, Frank. It's been an honor. Frank smiled. Honestly, I'm kind of surprised I lived through it. The whole magic firewood thing. Nico nodded. Hazel had told him all about the piece of firewood that controlled Frank's lifeline. Nico took it as a good sign that Frank could talk about it openly now. I can't see the future, Nico told him. But I can often tell when people are close to death. You're not. I don't know when that piece of firewood will burn up. Eventually, we all run out of firewood. But it won't be soon, Preter Jong. You and Hazel, you've got a lot more adventures ahead of you. You're just getting started. Be good to my sister, okay? Hazel walked up next to Frank and laced her hand with his. Nico, you're not threatening my boyfriend, are you? The two of them looked so comfortable together it made Nico glad. But it also caused an ache in his heart. A ghostly pain, like an old war wound throbbing in bad weather. No need for threats, Nico said. Frank's a good guy. Or bear, or bulldog, or... Oh, stop. Hazel laughed. Then she kissed Frank. See you in the morning. Yeah, Frank said. Nico, you sure you won't come with us? You'll always have a place in New Rome. Thanks, Preter. Reina said the same thing, but... No. I hope I'll see you again. Oh, you will, Nico promised. I'm going to be the flower boy at your wedding, right? Um... Frank got flustered, cleared his throat, and shuffled off, running into the door jam on the way out. Hazel crossed her arms. You just had to tease him about that. She sat on Nico's bunk. For a while, they just stayed there in comfortable silence. Siblings. Children from the past. Children of the underworld. I'm going to miss you, Nico said. Hazel leaned over and rested her head on his shoulder. You too, big brother. You will visit. He tapped the new officer's badge that gleamed on her shirt. Centurion of the Fifth Cohort now. Congratulations. Are there rules against centurions dating preters? Shh, Hazel said. It'll be a lot of work getting the Legion back in shape, repairing the damage Octavian did. Dating regulations will be the least of my worries. You've come so far. You're not the same girl I brought to Camp Jupiter. Your power with the mist. Your confidence. It's all thanks to you. No, Nico said. Getting a second life is one thing. Making it a better life? That's the trick. As soon as he said it, Nico realized he could have been talking about himself. He decided not to bring that up. Hazel sighed. A second life. I just wish... She didn't need to finish her thought. For the past two days, Leo's disappearance had hovered like a cloud over the whole camp. Hazel and Nico had been reluctant to join the speculation about what had happened to him. You felt his death, didn't you? 
Hazel's eyes were watery. Her voice was small. Yeah, Nico admitted. But I don't know, Hazel. Something about it was... different. He couldn't have taken the physician's cure. Nothing could have survived that explosion. I thought... I thought I was helping Leo. I messed up. No, it is not your fault. But Nico wasn't quite so ready to forgive himself. He'd spent the last 48 hours replaying the scene with Octavian at the catapult, wondering if he'd done the wrong thing. Perhaps the explosive power of that projectile had helped destroy Gia. Or perhaps it had unnecessarily cost Leo Valdez his life. I just wish he hadn't died alone, Hazel murmured. There was no one with him, no one to give him that cure. There's not even a body to bury. Her voice broke. Nico put his arm around her. He held her as she wept. Eventually, she fell asleep from exhaustion. Nico tucked her into his own bed and kissed her forehead. Then he went to the shrine of Hades in the corner, a little table decorated with bones and jewels. I suppose, he said, there's a first time for everything. He knelt and prayed silently for his father's guidance. Chapter 56 Nico At dawn, he was still awake when someone rapped at the door. He turned, registering a face with blonde hair, and for a split second, he thought it was Will Solace. When Nico realized it was Jason, he was disappointed. Then he felt angry with himself for feeling that way. He hadn't talked to Will since the battle. The Apollo kids had been too busy with the injured. Besides, Will probably blamed Nico for what happened to Octavian. Why wouldn't he? Nico had basically permitted, whatever that was, murder by consensus, a gruesome suicide. By now, Will Solace realized just how creepy and revolting Nico D'Angelo was. Of course, Nico didn't care what he thought, but still. You okay? Jason asked. You look fine, Nico snapped. Then he softened his tone. If you're looking for Hazel, she's still asleep. Jason mouthed, oh, and gestured for Nico to come outside. Nico stepped into the sunlight, blinking and disoriented. Ugh. Perhaps the cabin's designers had been right about the children of Hades being like vampires. He was not a morning person. Jason didn't look as though he'd slept any better. His hair had a cowlick on one side, and his new glasses sat crookedly on his nose. Nico resisted the urge to reach out and straighten them. Jason pointed to the strawberry fields, where the Romans were breaking camp. It was strange to see them here. Now it'll be strange not seeing them. Do you regret not going with them? Nico asked. Jason's smile was lopsided. A little, but I'll be going back and forth between the camps a lot. I have some shrines to build. I heard, 
The Senate plans to elect you Pontifex Maximus. Jason shrugged. I don't care about the title so much. I do care about making sure the gods are remembered. I don't want them fighting out of jealousy anymore, or taking out their frustrations on demigods. They're gods, Nico said. That's their nature. Maybe, but I can try to make it better. I guess Leo would say I'm acting like a mechanic, doing preventative maintenance. Nico sensed Jason's sorrow like an oncoming storm. You know you couldn't have stopped Leo. There's nothing you could have done differently. He knew what had to happen. I... I guess. I don't suppose you can tell if he's still... He's gone, Nico said. I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you otherwise, but I sensed his death. Jason stared into the distance. Nico felt guilty for squashing his hopes. He was almost tempted to mention his own doubts. What a different sensation Leo's death had given him, as if Leo's soul had invented its own way into the underworld, something that involved lots of gears, levers, and steam-powered pistons. Nevertheless, Nico was sure Leo Valdez had died, and death was death. It wouldn't be fair to give Jason false expectations. In the distance, the Romans were picking up their gear and toting it across the hill. On the other side, so Nico had heard, a fleet of black SUVs waited to transport the Legion cross-country back to California. Nico guessed that would be an interesting road trip. He imagined the entire 12th Legion in the drive through lane at Burger King. He imagined some hapless monster terrorizing a random demigod in Kansas, only to find itself surrounded by several dozen carloads of heavily armored Romans. Ella the Harpy is going with them, you know, Jason said. She and Tyson, even Rachel Elizabeth Dare. They're going to work together to try to reconstruct the Sibylline books. That should be interesting. Could take years, Jason said. But with the voice of Delphi extinguished, Rachel still can't see the future? Jason shook his head. I wish I knew what happened to Apollo in Athens. Maybe Artemis will get him out of trouble with Zeus and the power of prophecy will work again. But for now, those Sibylline books might be our only way to get guidance for quests. Personally, Nico said, I could do without prophecies or quests for a while. You've got a point. He straightened his glasses. Look, Nico, the reason I wanted to talk to you, I know what you said back at Oster's Palace. I know you already turned down a place at Camp Jupiter. I... I probably can't change your mind about leaving Camp Half-Blood. But I have to... I'm staying. Jason blinked. What? At Camp Half-Blood. The Hades cabin needs a head counselor. Have you seen the decor? It's disgusting. I'll have to remodel. And someone needs to do the burial rites properly, since demigods insist on dying heroically. That's... That's fantastic! Dude! Jason opened his arms for a hug, then froze. Right. No touching, 
Sorry. Nico grunted. I suppose we can make an exception. Jason squeezed him so hard, Nico thought his ribs would crack. Oh, man, Jason said. Wait till I tell Piper. Hey, since I'm all alone in my cabin, too, you and I can share a table at the dining hall. We can team up for Capture the Flag and sing-along contests and... Are you trying to scare me away? Sorry, sorry. Whatever you say, Nico. I'm just glad. The funny thing was, Nico believed him. Nico happened to glance toward the cabins and saw someone waving at him. Will Solace stood in the doorway of the Apollo cabin, a stern look on his face. He pointed to the ground at his feet like, You, here, now. Jason, Nico said, would you excuse me? So where were you? Will demanded. He was wearing a green surgeon shirt with jeans and flip-flops, which was probably not standard hospital protocol. What do you mean? Nico asked. I've been stuck in the infirmary for like two days. You don't come by? You don't offer to help? I... What? Why would you want a son of Hades in the same room with people you're trying to heal? Why would anyone want that? You can't help out a friend? Maybe cut bandages? Bring me a soda or a snack? Or just a simple, how's it going, Will? You don't think I could stand to see a friendly face? What? My face? The words simply didn't make sense together. Friendly face. Nico D'Angelo. You're so dense, Will noted. I hope you got over that nonsense about leaving Camp Half-Blood. I, yeah, I did. I mean, I'm staying. Good. So you may be dense, but you're not an idiot. How can you even talk to me like that? Don't you know I can summon zombies and skeletons and... Right now, you couldn't summon a wishbone without melting into a puddle of darkness, D'Angelo, Will said. I told you, no more underworldy stuff. Doctor's orders. You owe me at least three days of rest in the infirmary, starting now. Nico felt like a hundred skeletal butterflies were resurrecting in his stomach. Three days? I... I suppose that would be okay. Good. Now. A loud whoop cut through the air. Over by the hearth in the center of the common, Percy was grinning at something Annabeth had just told him. Annabeth laughed and playfully slapped his arm. I'll be right back, Nico told Will. Promise on the sticks and everything. He walked over to Percy and Annabeth who were both still grinning like crazy. Hey, man, Percy said. Annabeth just told me some good news. Sorry if I got a little loud. We're going to spend our senior year together, Annabeth explained, here in New York, and after graduation, college in New Rome. Percy pumped his fist like he was blowing a truck horn. Four years with no monsters to fight, no battles, no stupid prophecies, just me and Annabeth, getting our degrees, hanging out at cafes, enjoying California. And after that, 
Annabeth kissed Percy on the cheek. Well, Raina and Frank said we could live in New Rome as long as we like. That's great, Nico said. He was a little surprised to find that he meant it. I'm staying too, here at Camp Half-Blood. Awesome, Percy said. Nico studied his face, his sea-green eyes, his grin, his ruffled black hair. Somehow, Percy Jackson seemed like a regular guy now, not a mythical figure, not someone to idolize or crush on. So, Nico said, since we're going to be spending at least a year seeing each other at camp, I think I should clear the air. Percy's smile wavered. What do you mean? For a long time, Nico said, I had a crush on you. I just wanted you to know. Percy looked at Nico, then at Annabeth, as if to check that he'd heard correctly. Then back at Nico. You... Yeah, Nico said. You're a great person, but I'm over that. I'm happy for you guys. You... So you mean... Right. Annabeth's gray eyes started to sparkle. She gave Nico a sideways smile. Wait, Percy said. So you mean... Right, Nico said again. But it's cool. We're cool. I mean, I see now... You're cute, but you're not my type. I'm not your type. Wait. So... See you around, Percy, Nico said. Annabeth. She raised her hand for a high five. Nico obliged. Then he walked back across the green, where Will Solace was waiting. Chapter 57 Piper Piper wished she could charm herself to sleep. It may have worked on Gia, but the last two nights she'd hardly gotten a wink. The days were fine. She loved being back with her friends, Lacey and Mitchell, and all the other Aphrodite kids. Even her bratty second-in-command, Drew Tanaka, seemed relieved, probably because Piper could run things and give Drew more time for gossip and in-cabin beauty treatments. Piper kept busy helping Reyna and Annabeth coordinate between the Greeks and Romans. To Piper's surprise, the other two girls valued her skills as a go-between to smooth over any conflicts. There weren't many, but Piper did manage to return some Roman helmets that mysteriously made their way into the camp store. She also kept a fight from breaking out between the children of Mars and the children of Ares over the best way to kill a hydra. On the morning the Romans were scheduled to leave, Piper was sitting on the pier at the canoe lake, trying to placate the naiads. Some of the lake spirits thought the Roman guys were so hot that they too wanted to leave for Camp Jupiter. They were demanding a giant portable fish tank for the journey west. Piper had just concluded negotiations when Reyna found her. The preter sat next to her on the dock. Hard work? Piper blew a strand of hair out of her eyes. Naiads can be challenging. I think we have a deal. 
If they still want to go at the end of the summer, we'll work out the details then. But naiads uh, tend to forget things in about five seconds. Reina traced her fingertips across the water. Sometimes I wish I could forget things that quickly. Piper studied the preter's face. Reina was one demigod who hadn't seemed to change during the war with the giants, at least not on the outside. She still had the same strong, unstoppable gaze, the same regal, beautiful face. She wore her armor and purple cloak as easily as most people would wear shorts and a t-shirt. Piper couldn't understand how anyone could take so much pain, shoulder so much responsibility without breaking. She wondered if Reyna ever had anyone to confide in. You did so much, Piper said, for both camps. Without you, none of it would have been possible. All of us played a part. Sure, but you... I just wish you got more credit. Reyna laughed gently. Thank you, Piper, but I don't want attention. You understand what that's like, don't you? Piper did. They were so different, but she understood not wanting to attract attention. Piper had wished for that her whole life, with her dad's fame, the paparazzi, the photos and scandal stories in the press. She met so many people who said, Oh, I want to be famous. That would be so great. But they had no idea what it was really like. She'd seen the toll it took on her father. Piper wanted nothing to do with it. She could understand the appeal of the Roman way, too, to blend in, be one of the team, work as part of a well-oiled machine. Even so, Reyna had risen to the top. She couldn't stay hidden. Your power from your mom, Piper said. You can lend strength to others? Reyna pursed her lips. Nico told you? No. I just sensed it, watching you lead the Legion. That must drain you. How do you, you know, get that strength back? When I get the strength back, I'll let you know. She said it like a joke, but Piper sensed the sadness behind her words. You're always welcome here, Piper said. If you need to take a break, get away. You've got Frank now. He could assume more responsibility for a while. It might do you good to make some time for yourself when nobody is going to be looking at you as Preter. Reyna met her eyes, as if trying to gauge how serious the offer was. Would I be expected to sing that odd song about how Grandma puts on her armor? Not unless you really want to. But we might have to ban you from Capture the Flag, I have a feeling you could go against the entire camp solo and still beat us. Reyna smirked. I'll consider the offer. Thank you. She adjusted her dagger, and for a moment, Piper thought about her own blade, Catoptris, which was now locked in her hope chest in her cabin. Ever since Athens, when she'd used the blade to stab the giant Enceladus, its visions had stopped completely. I wonder... Reyna said. You're a child of Venus. I mean, Aphrodite. Perhaps... Perhaps you could explain something your mother said. 
I'm honored. I'll try, but I have to warn you. My mom doesn't make sense to me a lot of the time. Once in Charleston, Venus told me something. She said, You will not find love where you wish or where you hope. No demigod shall heal your heart. I... I have struggled with that for... Her words broke. Piper had a strong urge to find her mother and punch her. She hated how Aphrodite could mess up someone's life with just a short conversation. Reina, she said. I don't know what she meant, but I do know this. You are an incredible person. There is someone out there for you. Maybe it's not a demigod. Maybe it's a mortal or... Or I don't know. But when it's meant to happen, it will. And until it does, hey, you have friends. Lots of friends, both Greek and Roman. The thing about you being everyone's source of strength, sometimes you might forget that you need to draw strength from others. I'm here for you. Raina stared across the lake. Piper McLean, you have a way with words. I'm not charm-speaking, I promise. No charm-speak required. Raina offered her hand. I have a feeling we'll see each other again. They shook, and after Raina left, Piper knew that Raina was right. They would meet again, because Raina was no longer a rival, no longer a stranger or a potential enemy. She was a friend. She was family. That night, the camp felt empty without the Romans. Piper already missed Hazel. She missed the creaking timbers of the Argo too, and the constellations her lamp used to make against the ceiling of her cabin aboard the ship. Lying in her bunk in cabin 10, she felt so restless she knew she wouldn't be able to doze off. She kept thinking about Leo. Again and again, she replayed what had happened in the fight against Gia, trying to figure out how she could have failed Leo so badly. Around two in the morning, she gave up trying to sleep. She sat up in bed and gazed out the window. Moonlight turned the woods silver. The smells of the sea and the strawberry fields wafted on the breeze. She couldn't believe that just a few days ago, the Earth Mother had awoken and almost destroyed everything Piper held dear. Tonight seemed so peaceful, so normal. Tap, tap, tap. Piper nearly hit the top of her bunk. Jason was standing outside the window, rapping on the frame. He grinned. Come on. What are you doing here? She whispered. It's after curfew. The patrol harpies will shred you. Just come on. Her heart racing... She took his hand and climbed out the window. He led her to cabin one and took her inside, where the huge statue of hippie Zeus glowered in the dim light. Um, Jason, what exactly? Check it out. He showed her one of the marble columns that ringed the circular chamber. On the back side, almost hidden against the wall, iron rungs led upward. A ladder. Can't believe I didn't notice this sooner. Wait till you see. He began to climb. Piper wasn't sure why she felt so nervous, 
but her hands were shaking. She followed him up. At the top, Jason pushed open a small trap door. They emerged on the side of the domed roof, on a flat ledge facing north. The whole of Long Island Sound spread out to the horizon. They were so far up and at such an angle that nobody below could possibly see them. The patrol harpies never flew this high. Look! Jason pointed at the stars, which made a splash of diamonds across the sky, better jewels than even Hazel Levesque could have summoned. Beautiful. Piper snuggled up against Jason, and he put his arm around her. But aren't you going to get in trouble? Who cares? Jason asked. Piper laughed quietly. Who are you? He turned, his glasses pale bronze in starlight. Jason Grace, pleased to meet you. He kissed her, and, okay, they had kissed before, but this was different. Piper felt like a toaster, all her coils heated to red hot. Any more warmth and she'd start smelling like burned toast. Jason pulled away enough to look in her eyes. That night at the wilderness school, our first kiss under the stars. The memory, Piper said. The one that never happened. Well, now it's real. He made the ward against evil symbol, the same one he'd used to dispel his mother's ghost and pushed at the sky. From this point on, we're writing our own story with a fresh start, and we just had our first kiss. I'm afraid to tell you this after just one kiss, Piper said. But gods of Olympus, I love you. Love you too, Pipes. She didn't want to ruin the moment, but she couldn't stop thinking of Leo and how he would never have a fresh start. Jason must have sensed her feelings. Hey, he said, Leo is okay. How can you believe that? He didn't get the cure. Nico said he died. You once woke up a dragon with just your voice, Jason reminded her. You believed the dragon should be alive, right? Yes, but we have to believe in Leo. There is no way he would die so easily. He's a tough guy. Right. Piper tried to steady her heart. So we believe. Leo has to be alive. You remember the time in Detroit when he flattened Ma Gasket with a car engine? Or those dwarfs in Bologna? Leo took them down with a homemade smoke grenade made from toothpaste. Commander Toolbelt, Jason said. Bad Boy Supreme, Piper said. Chef Leo, the tofu taco expert. They laughed and told stories about Leo Valdez, their best friend. They stayed on the roof until dawn rose, and Piper started to believe they could have a fresh start. It might even be possible to tell a new story in which Leo was still out there, somewhere. Chapter 58 Leo Leo was dead. 
He knew that with absolute certainty. He just didn't understand why it hurt so much. He felt like every cell in his body had exploded. Now, his consciousness was trapped inside a charred, crispy husk of demigod roadkill. The nausea was worse than any car sickness he'd ever had. He couldn't move. He couldn't see or hear. He could only feel pain. He started to panic, thinking maybe this was his eternal punishment. Then, somebody put jumper cables on his brain and restarted his life. He gasped and sat up. The first thing he felt was the wind in his face. Then, the searing pain in his right arm. He was still on Festus's back, still in the air. His eyes started to work again, and he noticed the large hypodermic needle retracting from his forearm. The empty injector buzzed, whirred, and retreated into a panel on Festus's neck. Thanks, buddy. Leo groaned. Man, being dead sucked. But that physician's cure? That stuff is worse. Festus clicked and clattered in Morse code. No, man, I'm not serious, Leo said. I'm glad to be alive. And yeah, I love you too. You did awesome. A metallic purr ran the length of the dragon's body. First things first. Leo scanned the dragon for signs of damage. Festus's wings were working properly, though his left medius membrane was shot full of holes. His neck plating was partially fused, melted from the explosion, but the dragon didn't seem to be in danger of crashing immediately. Leo tried to remember what had happened. He was pretty sure he had defeated Gia, but he had no idea how his friends were doing back at Camp Half-Blood. Hopefully, Jason and Piper had gotten clear of the blast. Leo had a weird memory of a missile hurtling toward him and screaming like a little girl. What the heck had that been about? Once he landed, he'd have to check Festus's underbelly. The most serious damage would probably be in that area, where the dragon had courageously grappled with Gia while they blowtorched the sludge out of her. There was no telling how long Festus had been aloft. He'd need to set down soon which raised the question, where were they? Below was a solid white blanket of clouds. The sun shone directly overhead in a brilliant blue sky. So it was about noon. But of which day? How long had Leo been dead? He opened the access panel in Festus's neck. The astrolabe was humming away, the crystal pulsing like a neon heart. Leo checked his compass and GPS, and a grin spread across his face. Festus, good news, he shouted. Our navigation readings are completely messed up. Festus said, Creak? Yeah, descend. Get us below these clouds and maybe... The dragon plummeted so fast the breath was sucked out of Leo's lungs. They broke through the blanket of white and there... Below them was a single green island in a vast blue sea. Leo whooped so loudly they probably heard him in China. Yeah! Who died? Who came back? 
Who's your freaking supersized McShizzle now, baby? Woo! They spiraled toward Ojigia, the warm wind in Leo's hair. He realized his clothes were in tatters, despite the magic they had been woven with. His arms were covered in a fine layer of soot, like he'd just died in a massive fire, which, of course, he had. But he couldn't worry about any of that. She was standing on the beach, wearing jeans and a white blouse, her amber hair pulled back. Festus spread his wings and landed with a stumble. Apparently, one of his legs was broken. The dragon pitched sideways and catapulted Leo face-first into the sand. So much for a heroic entrance. Leo spit a piece of seaweed out of his mouth. Festus dragged himself down the beach, made clacking noises that meant, Ow! 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 Leo looked up. Calypso stood over him. Her arms crossed. Her eyebrows arched. You're late, she announced. Her eyes gleamed. Sorry, sunshine, Leo said. Traffic was murder. You are covered with soot, she noted. And you managed to ruin the clothes I made for you, which were impossible to ruin. Well, you know, Leo shrugged. Somebody had released a hundred pachinko balls in his chest. I'm all about doing the impossible. She offered her hand and helped him up. They stood nose to nose as she studied his condition. She smelled like cinnamon. Had she always had that tiny freckle next to her left eye? Leo really wanted to touch it. She wrinkled her nose. You smell... I know. Like I've been dead. Probably because I have been. Oath to keep with a final breath and all. But I'm better now. She stopped him with a kiss. The pachinko balls slammed around inside him. He felt so happy he had to make a conscious effort not to burst into flames. When she finally let him go, her face was covered in soot smudges. She didn't seem to care. She traced her thumb across his cheekbone. Leo Valdez, she said. Nothing else, just his name, as if it were something magical. That's me, he said, his voice ragged. So, um, you want to get off this island? Calypso stepped back. She raised one hand and the winds swirled. Her invisible servants brought two suitcases and set them at her feet. What gave you that idea? Leo grinned. Packed for a long trip, huh? I don't plan on coming back. Calypso glanced over her shoulder at the path that led to her garden and her cavern home. Where will you take me, Leo? Somewhere to fix my dragon first, he decided. And then, wherever you want. How long was I gone, seriously? Time is difficult on Ojigia, Calypso said. It felt like forever. Leo had a stab of doubt. He hoped his friends were okay. 
He hoped a hundred years hadn't passed while he was flying around dead and Festus searched for Ogigia. He would have to find out. He needed to let Jason and Piper and the others know he was okay. But right now, priorities. Calypso was a priority. So once you leave Ogigia, he said, do you stay immortal or what? I have no idea. And you're okay with that? More than okay. Well then, he turned toward his dragon. Buddy, you up for another flight to nowhere in particular? Festus blew fire and limped around. So we take off with no plan, Calypso said. No idea where we'll go or what problems await beyond this island. Many questions and no tidy answers? Leo turned up his palms. That's how I fly, sunshine. Can I get your bags? Absolutely. Five minutes later, with Calypso's arms around his waist, Leo spurred Festus into flight. The bronze dragon spread his wings, and they soared into the unknown. This is Nick Chamion. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Heroes of Olympus, Book 5, The Blood of Olympus, by Rick Riordan. This program was directed by Fred Sanders. Executive Producer, Janet Stark. Text, Copyright 2014 by Rick Riordan. Production, Copyright 2014. Random House, LLC. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.